he always felt unlucky. Like if you if you opened your pack and you got him, <laughs> it was like the black spot in Treasure Island or something. Absolutely. It's like, oh, ooh, another Jamie Braddock card. And he's just looking at you like, I dare you, I dare you to say something. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Dr. Holly Raymond, professor of English at Temple University. Holly, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you? I am great. Thank you for joining me. X-Men fans might know Holly for articles that she has written about Cyclops at Shelf Dust. Those are so good. Everybody should check them out. I will link them in the Twitter posts and in the description of the episode. Um, otherwise, you may know her on Twitter as Goblin Gavotte, a funny account if you are interested in drawings of Blackwood Smith or other things that might brighten your day. Holly, it is such a delight to have you on the pod. You're probably best known to Cerebro listeners as the best poster in the Cerebro Discord. Thank you. A coveted title, uh, and I've been eager to get you on the show for a while, but I thought now, since we had talked about doing this character, was a good moment for it, given that as you were listening to this episode, Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain number one, is dropping this week wherever fine comics are sold. Please do pick it up. We can neither confirm nor deny if Jamie Braddock appears in it, but right. I feel like the odds are good. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. I thought now would be a good moment because this is a character who has really been a breakout on Krakoa in a way that's kind of surprising. Right. Because looking back at his publication history, which I did for this, I read all 55 odd appearances of him. He hasn't been widely used by anyone but Chris Claremont, really. There's the Rick Remender Uncanny X-Force moment. Jerry Duggan did a bit with him in a Black Widow story. Mm -hmm. And that one is incoherent. I mean, I love Jerry Duggan, but like... All respect to Jerry, but it's, it's more yeah. just... It doesn't quite fit neatly into the trajectory of the character, but that's fine because mm -hmm. we'll get there when we get there. It really has been Teeny Howard's Excalibur and the other titles he's crossed over into that have made him kind of a hit with fans, which is fun. So I wanted to contextualize him for the listeners because he is, while not the most widely published character, definitely one of the more complex wrinkles in the fabric of the X-Men. Before we get into Jamie, though, I would love to talk a little bit about you, about your history with the X-Men, your origin story with this franchise, what brought you to this world, and why you love it. Sure. I think I'm a year or two older than you, so maybe in that like really narrow kind of generational fingernail where the cartoon hadn't come out, so it didn't have this kind of like hegemonic influence on, you know, whatever culture for six-year-olds was. Right. <laughs> but like X-Men 1 had come out. Um, if you were in sort of comics adjacent spaces, which I guess in the context would mean if you weren't in like 
Walgreens, you would see them and you would sort of be dimly aware of them. I, I think, I don't think the Jim Lee trading cards were out, but certainly they were in the Marvel trading cards. Mm -hmm. And so they were known quantities, but without this kind of like narrative glue holding them together that the cartoon gave. The very first comic I ever got that was in a hand-me-down was probably the worst possible one you could pick, which was Uncanny 280. Ooh, yeah. Every single page is kind of this, like an exquisite corpse exercise, if you're just jumping into it. Because it is. I mean, for people not yeah. familiar, 280 is the first issue of Uncanny after Claremont is taken off the book. So it's just kind of whoever was around in the office at the time trying to <laughs> cobble a story together. Yeah, it's so atypical for like really prosaic reasons. Half the people are possessed and Xavier is in some sort of psychic gladiator armor and then in sort of his like rifts advertisement armor the shadow king is there and you sort of get this kind of wayward notion that he's like their bad guy and you know before the sort of boom in dedicated comic book shops especially if you were in that sort of age coterie where the way that you got things was to just yell loud enough at the supermarket you wouldn't get 280 and then 281 and then 282 you would get 280 and then like Web of Spider-Man 39 and then a year and a half later get another X-Men issue and be like, who the fuck is Strife? <laughs> right. I think there's a tremendous appeal to that way of getting into comics, which I, I don't know is still being experienced much. When you are that young, so many things are sort of incomprehensible and very clearly operating under rule sets but rule sets that are inaccessible to you yeah sometimes when your parents just explain this is why it this is this way or um sort of the very kind of pedagogical like didactic mode of children's literature that was kind of demoed at the time you do kind of feel condescended to even when you are like four or five or six it felt really intoxicating to have access to these stories it clearly had decades of context and decades of interconnections between these characters but knowing that they weren't going to make it easy to you to understand what was going on. You do have to like kind of do the legwork yourself a little bit. And as a kid, there is something appealing to the idea that you are learning the lore yourself or that you are mm -hmm. finding the pathway through on your own, you know? Yeah, because like if you were really lucky, you maybe had a cousin who had some of the uh, official handbooks. Right. But otherwise, it was like, maybe you could read the back of a trading card. Maybe you could read like the little blister case of an action figure if you didn't like obliterate it. <laughs> also, the really like, not to bury the lead, but like I couldn't fucking read at that age. So in hindsight, I also feel a lot of sympathy for my poor mom. I'm sure she didn't know how to fucking answer like, who's this girl with the wings? Who is this guy with the head sock on? So much of it was both like, cobbled together in this really fun ad hoc way and also just kind of like passed around by people who also maybe knew like 30 percent of what was happening there's that list that we were just looking at you and i recently of like claremont danglers that someone had assembled back in it was like on usenet i think that was um paul o'brien in like 1992 yeah and it's just so funny to look at that because you can see how a community formed around people trying to figure this shit out when there were no wikis to consult. There was no uncannyxmen.net to help you out. There 
wasn't even really a robust community. You could, I mean, now you could go on social media and tweet, hey, comics fans, I'm confused about this issue, and people would help or yell at you. You know, it's Twitter, who knows? But I think that that's a very different experience from searching for every little tidbit you could find in those nascent years of the internet and being so excited to find community or even the little pieces of it that you could get finding other people who even knew what some of this stuff was when uncountyxm.net did pop up and i was on those forums as like a 13 year old you know the idea that i could talk to people about the psylocke body swap plot and my feelings about it is hysterically funny now to like think about how quaint that is but i couldn't believe it other people who had opinions on these X-Men stories wanted to discourse about them, not that at 13, that's a word I would have used, but it created a sense of specialness, a sense of community. The fan fiction circles were also like that once you found your way into those worlds. Some of that does feel like it's been lost and it makes me feel like, you know, all right, grandma, let's get you to bed when I complain about this. But remember when you could just get on the World Wide Web and use the Internet? I don't really understand 90s nostalgia a lot of the time, but I think that's right. one element that I really get, especially for younger people. The idea of an Internet without social media feels crazy now. Mm. Whereas the closest thing that we had was like Live Journal once that showed up, or like MySpace initially, kind of, but I never really got into that. I mean, I think it's regional, right? Because like I thought Zanga was ubiquitous. Yeah, I was gonna say Zanga was the other one. I just never had a Zanga, so it's not yeah. my first thought. You were missing out. I'm sure I was. I got a live journal to look at Scans Daily, though. Like, again, it all yeah, comes back around gonna, to the comics. I was gonna say. I was actually going to bring this up. We're from different Westchesters. I grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and did not know that there were two. And so I just kind of always assumed that the X-Mansion was near, like, the Gennardis or something. Um, <laughs> and just, like, I'd have to take a back road to get to it. But this was a moment, you know, I don't want to speak for every suburb, but for a lot of, like, kind of middle-class suburbs, there were not queer communities. Once you were maybe old enough you could go to like the college campus and kind of sneak into parties that you wanted to be at but for like middle school early high school you know god forbid elementary school let alone having like a sense of queer community and like a queer space to go to there weren't even really people to have conversations about like what what do these words mean in a way that we aren't like sneaking from jerry springer reruns at 2 a.m mm -hmm. and stuff like scans daily for me at least was Tremendous because it was people talking about media in a way that wasn't being done in, you know, the immediate vicinity. I was not a DC reader as a kid, but I will always go hard for Ted Cord and Booster Gold because Scans Daily, the way people talked about those characters and posted panels from their adventures and were like, they are in love. And everybody saying it understood that canonically in the text, that's not what the comic says, but it also isn't not what the comic says. And particularly right. with the character Booster Gold, since he was from the future, where perhaps these norms were different, just reading those conversations was so freeing or like 
you know, there are so many women who are probably now in their 40s or even 50s who were fan fiction writers mm -hmm. at that time who were writing slash fan fiction that I read voraciously. And I, you know, would lurk in the forums and whatnot and not say anything because I was a kid. I didn't even like Gambit or Iceman. But the idea that there was a thriving community of people writing gay romance fan fiction about Gambit and Iceman or about Cyclops and Wolverine or whatever, it was so freeing. And it also, it established to me that there were other people out there who related to the material in the same way that I did, who felt seen by the material in the same way that I did, even before I really had a name or a word for it. The emails that really floor me that I get on this show are the younger people who are feeling seen by listening to this podcast in that way. That is a responsibility I take very seriously because for so many of us, that was the only escape. The internet was the only escape, whether it was... MMOs where I played a female character and flirted with boys and all of that, you know, like, because mm -hmm. there was no way. I'm in the suburbs where the X-Men were supposedly living, but I assure you there was no Harry's hideaway where I could go hang out with the freaks. That just wasn't happening. It wasn't until college that I really felt I had that. And before that, the X-Men were my friends. The people online were my friends. I had good friends in real life, but with a couple exceptions, particularly like a female friend of mine who I confided in about what I was going through with my sexuality and everything, you know, my gene as it were <laughs> for Bobby. Right. right. Outside of that, I couldn't share the wholeness of my experience with anyone in my real life. I didn't feel comfortable doing that. But if I'm going to get on the internet and talk to people about X-Men, I can say that I think Colossus and Wolverine should kiss and nobody was going to have a cow about it. Right. And that was really exciting. Yeah. And I, I think that was precisely the appeal of something like Scans Daily to me as well. Like I could not. And, you know, I, I apologize. I was more of a DC partisan. No, that's fine. <laughs> it just, you principle. know, it just wasn't my, it just not my ministry, but I yeah. learned to love those characters from places like Scans Daily. That's where I learned so much obscure lore that by the time I did read DC, I knew who the characters were to some extent. It was like that and the trading cards were really my path into DC. And like, I guess to clarify, I, I did not transition until I was an adult. So like, I could not come into the cafeteria with like my fucking khakis and Evangelion t-shirt and be like, <laughs> I am thirsty for Nightwing today. Right, exactly. Like that wasn't on the horizon of like socially acceptable things to say. So yeah, it was like this parallel social world that felt like it was so much more permeable and where there was so much less visceral and acute risk about disclosing things about yourself because like you know as much as we were told to be like careful about stranger danger there is a lot less risk i think than there is now in terms of just like being out to online acquaintances and friends because they weren't going to like kick your ass at school like they were strangers right. 300 miles away or whatever who didn't know your real name i mean because right, in those right. days like it was all username based it wasn't uh without its dangers there are things that i look back on now interactions i had with men when i was underage that i don't feel great about sure 
Yeah, I was, but I, I, I was kind of in like a utopian rhapsody for a second. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm just thinking about it and like, at the same time that that's true, on the other hand, the level of anonymity that the internet was back then means like, you know, I didn't go anywhere. I wasn't like harmed materially. All that to say, I think that for a lot of us who didn't feel like we could be honest with our friends or didn't feel like we could be honest with our teachers or didn't feel like we could really talk to anybody about what was going on with us, internet comics fandom in the 90s and 2000s was really a lifeline. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting to me that so many young people still find that to be true because while situations have materially changed for the better in some senses, you know, certainly I think the high school I went to, you can be gay now and it would be fine, right? Mm -hmm. But that high school is in an affluent suburb of New York City. There are plenty of places in this country and around the world where that's not the case. I don't have to tell you that Right. Transphobia is having its big culture war moment that I think is hopefully the last gasp of like that, you know? Yeah. But we won't be able to say for a while. It just feels so Bush era to me that I'm just like 10 years from now, hopefully this will feel like the Bush era does now. But I just, you know, we can't say for sure, unfortunately. That's what I tell myself. I would say I'm an optimist with an anxiety disorder, which Same. often yeah. just like <laughs> on the ground, it can often just look like a non-committal pessimist. Right. But like, that's what I tell myself. And I often teach creative writing workshops and you get so many queer students in creative writing workshops who maybe have not had an environment where they can write about themselves in this kind of candid way before. And so a lot of my optimism is just sort of on their behalf because I want them to have every fucking thing in the world at their fingertips that's the thing is i now feel this responsibility you know i'll be 35 in a couple weeks which is not old by any means but it's the oldest i've ever been mm -hmm. and it's an age at which i now do feel a more profound responsibility to young gay trans queer people i, I just feel like i have to it's not that I'm trying to be a role model because that's not really my way. I prefer to be somebody who is very transparent about the things mm -hmm. I don't love about myself than, you know, say I'm the example to follow. But I do feel a responsibility to be there as a resource and to be there as a sounding board and to be there as someone who has been there. And part of that is that we didn't really have it because of AIDS. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is, we're getting way off the beaten path, I guess. Sure. We're only, uh, no, it's fine. I just realized I'm suddenly like, oh, this is way too dour. We need to have more fun. Jamie would be furious with us for being so maudlin. What is it about X-Men specifically that really spoke to you in your life and that compels you to be such a fan now you've read more extensively than almost anybody i know certainly i mean Corey mccreary has read every x-men comic that there is so that's right. but i think you also almost have i did myself some favors and gave myself a little bit of veto power you've mentioned a few series that you were like i don't need to read that you know i mean you know how passionate i am about blacksmith yes I have my shirt 
Yes, the Blackwood Smith was right shirt. I just noticed yeah. it. So Blackwood Smith with a QUE, like the girl group Blackwa Black, mm-hmm. for people unfamiliar, is Cable's mentor, who is a little Yoda frog turtle man thing. Holly adores him. Steve Orlando thought that no one had spotted Blackwood Smith in the group shot on Threshold in Marauders Volume 2, but Holly Raymond did and that is showed right. the whole Discord. So, yes, I am well aware of your affection for Blackwood Smith and for other weird little guys, as mm-hmm. you call mm-hmm. them, which is a term that I've now used in the podcast many times. And people think it's like something I made up. And I'm like, no, that was my friend Holly made that up. It's like WLG, weird little guy. It's a specific kind of character. Alan Davis loves drawing those. He does. So they'll come up in this episode yeah. <laughs> quite a bit. I adore him and he does not have an unwieldy amount of appearances. I think it's like 72 or something. Mm -hmm. But there were just like a few stretches of series where I was like, I know if I stick this out for 14 issues, there's going to be Blackwood Smith, but it's not worth it. It's not giving. Yeah, well, particularly with cable adjacent stuff, it's very feast or famine, right? Like some of it's great and other stuff you're like, I want to die rather than read more of this. Yeah. That's a solemn silence thinking about <laughs> late 90s cable. But yeah, well, if I can kind of circle back around to this yeah, uh, to answer your initial question. So the X-Men were this, I knew a little bit about them from the comics at a time when not all of my elementary school friends were reading comics. So when the cartoon hit in 92 and was sort of immediately like the playground monoculture, Mm-hmm. That was suddenly on like sort of a shitty level of this like cultural cachet I had because I could be like, I can tell you about it. big same like that was huge. The ability to tell people about X-Men characters was a huge amount of power to wield on the playground in the wake of the 92 cartoon. Yeah, I can't say in hindsight that I understood who or what Strife was. But like I could fake it. <laughs> right. And they didn't know any better. So if you just told them what you thought was correct, then, you know, it would all work out in the end. And, you know, unlike a lot of franchises like Ninja Turtles or I guess He-Man was a little out of the limelight by this point. Unlike a lot of these, it, you know, I was a super kind of pathetically eggy little kid. <laughs> and I discovered that, like, you know, there was no way that I could like kind of roll out of the cafeteria and be like, I'm going to be April O'Neil today. But if you timed it right, and like Beast was taken, and Gambit was taken, Wolverine was taken, you could come out and be like, I guess I'll be Jubilee. You could be Storm or Rogue or Jubilee. Yes. I could not be Storm. Oh, fair enough. I was bold enough to be stripped. I recognized that Rogue perhaps would have been more appropriate, but Storm was the one I wanted to be. Josh Trujillo and I were just talking about this, like the utility of x-men as a game on the playground where someone had to be one of the girls at some point mm-hmm. and you got to do it if you waited mm-hmm. for everyone else to claim wolverine and cyclops and gambit etc and like they weren't kind of shrinking violet type characters like they could be in some of those like boys cartoons storm had you know so much immediate kind of just like badass grandeur and rogue was super sassy and had like the best powers out of everybody and jubilee was kind of like the sassy little shit that you kind of wished you could be people who had power over you like they were fun to imagine being in a way that like you know i hate to pick on april o'neill but like that was an aspirational <laughs> you don't want to be like cleaning up after turtles who wants to do that right that jumpsuit is cute though it is but i look terrible in yellow so i keep thinking about her when i see the Charlie Jane Anders 
character? Escapade, yeah. Or she does escapade. have April O'Neil vibes. Yeah. The first time I saw her, I was like, I wonder why like this clearly like Zoomery character would know April O'Neil. I'd sort of just miss it. There were like a half dozen Ninja Turtle reboots. Yeah, there's always been a Ninja Turtles cartoon on the it's like Power yeah. Rangers, it never stopped. We just got old. Yeah. Today we are here to talk about James Braddock Jr., the monarch erstwhile king of Avalon for that brief period over 26 odd issues of Excalibur a character I really really enjoy but who as we said earlier was pretty obscure until recently what is it that you love about this character a lot of it is kind of what I was mentioning uh, at the outset about this sort of allure when you are young of not knowing what's going on in comics I never saw Excalibur in like non-specialty shops contexts. I don't know if it was like just direct market only or if it was just bad luck, but I would never see it at like the grocery store or the drugstore or like borders. So on the rare occasions early on when we did go to like a dedicated hobby shop, which, you know, was usually like 60% sports collectibles and cards, like a nice comic section in the back, that was the only time I really could get Excalibur. And I always really wanted it because the 1992 trading cards with all the Davis designs made them seem so like fucking cool. They were the coolest. Like people, those trading cards, people actually traded them. Like we would go to school and you would have X-Men cards. Everybody wanted the cards of the characters who were in the cartoon, but I loved the cards, the characters who were not in the cartoon who were just cool. So I got very into I also similarly like would pick up an issue here and there, but I wanted to know all about Megan and Cerise and Kylun and all of these freaks who were never going to see a nanosecond of Fox Kids Saturday morning block. Like that was simply even on that show where you get a lot of cameos, <laughs> like they have lots of people in the background. I don't believe Excalibur ever turns up. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of Nightcrawler. Well, right. But outside of him, like, I don't think Kitty Pride even ever appears because they were trying to bury Pride of the X-Men so hard, which honestly, it's pretty good. I don't get why they were so intent on that. But what are you going to do? I was kind of surprised about that myself because I hadn't seen it until about a year ago. That's pretty good. It's solid. For a pilot for a kid's cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so the Jamie, Jamie card. the Jamie card, I, I'm thinking specifically, I think it's 93, it might be 94, but it's the one where he's like in the white Speedo thong and is sort of like rolled into a gnarled ball and staring directly yeah. at you. Traumatizing. Yeah, I was really definitely, and like I was a big Psylocke fan. Mm-hmm. So it was like, this is her brother. And I'm like, what? Why is this? Why is this happening? Who is this? Why is he? What's the deal with anybody? And even if you were reading Excalibur, the secret about Jamie Braddock is like, he's not in that many issues of it. Right. He shows up occasionally in the Claremont run to set up the broader plot with Courtney Ross that never finishes out in Claremont. Mm -hmm. And then Alan Davis brings him in for the two-parter Ghost of Braddock Manor storyline to tie up the Courtney plot. And then he doesn't appear again for like 10 years. <laughs> so apart from uh, actually the 94 Excalibur annual, which I love, right. which we'll definitely talk about. But to me, for many years, he existed primarily as that trading card and as like right. my knowledge that 
actually Betsy has another brother and he's crazy and he's one of the most powerful mutants, but he's really scary. And here's the trading card. And Mm -hmm. the trading card would sometimes just like come to you unbidden, like a boogeyman like figure that existed in like the baseball card sleeves that you would put the cards into in your little binder. He always felt unlucky. Like if you, if you opened your pack, and you got him, it was like the black spot in Treasure Island or something. Absolutely. It's like, oh, ooh, another Jamie Braddock card. And he's just looking at you like, I dare you. I dare you to say something. <laughs> Come on, then. Come on, then. Here we are. But that's like an indelible image. For sure. I've never forgotten it. And if you never see him in another comic, or if you're like kind of half committedly reading 2004 Uncanny and he just pops up with boxer shorts on for some reason, you're like... That's him. Yeah, I'm like, did Chris Bocciolo refuse to draw the Speedo? I don't know what happened there exactly. Yeah. I just reread that one, which I hadn't read in a long time. The Forsaken plot. And we'll get there when we get there. But um, that's one of the most incomprehensible (laughs) storylines I think I've looked at in quite a while. My hope leading up to this I would revisit it and I would be like, you know what? Connor can explain this. Of course, Connor knows all about Amina Singe and her salamander Mm -hmm. powers. And I'm like, "Mm, so sorry. I don't know if I've got this one. I'm going to try. I I have some theories about maybe what Chris was doing with it, but it's a very, it's a very strange little story. What's been really fun for me, because I read the 80s Captain Britain stuff as a teenager, because I was like a Betsy obsessive, so I found it. But the 70s Captain Britain stuff, I never read until much later. It is remarkable to read the early stories where he is just a guy. It is. He's like Jimmy Olsen or Lois Lane or Perry White or any one of those friends of the hero who gets into peril. Or, and it's just very, very funny to reflect on that now when he is like the worst guy to have show up to your dinner party but in these stories he's like it's the sexy 70s and i'm a star race car driver he does look good oh yeah i think we should probably start at the beginning okay this is a character who hasn't quite hit 12 zaladanes yet and i would say that a solid third of his publication history is in the Krakoa era. So if you're a more recent reader, the work that Teeny Howard has done with him in Excalibur, etc., is more consistency than he's ever had as a character in terms of publication. Right. What we're going to do is give you our thoughts on what he says about Captain Britain, what he says about Excalibur, what he says about Brian and Betsy as characters enacting as their foil, and also just what his deal is, because his deal is very peculiar. (laughs) I was going to say mercurial. Yeah, he has. I mean, you know, it's funny because... We're later told, this is part of like the extensive retcons about the history of the Braddock family, but we're told eventually, I think this is in Ben Robb's sort of power, that the reason James Braddock Sr. had the twins was because Jamie didn't inherit the otherworld genes that were required for the role of Captain Britain. Right. Except he's the most fey folk 
of the yeah. three of them. Like he is old Mr. Scratch. He is the unseely fairy down the way. It's going to make a deal with you at the crossroads. And this, like that is absolutely his function as a character. And in that way, he is like James Braddock in more than name. And James Braddock is a character we don't really get much of. He exists mostly off screen and much like other absent father type figures, they just sort of stack new things on top. Atrocities. Yeah. It's actually a lot like Xavier's father who like steadily becomes more evil over time as right. people want to tell stories about that generation of people. And there's always an appeal to, oh, my father was kind of evil. I think the worst one of those for James Braddock, apart from sort of power, is the Remender Uncanny X-Wars story, which we'll get to at, at some point because Jamie is central to it. But when I was rereading that one for this and I hadn't paged through it since I think the Saturnine episode, I was just like, man, you skinned him? Like, it's just, <laughs> there's like, there's a certain you know, brutality to that one. What's crazy though, and I never knew this, and you know, I wouldn't have known this unless I'd been doing this encyclopedic kind of reread for some reason. That is actually a callback to Ellis. It's like this one little throwaway line where Brian's talking to the magistrate or the governor of Genosha or whatever. Yeah. And she's like, you know, your father had these sentient bullets made out of some mutant skin. And it's like not elaborated on. I completely forgot about that. It's like blink and you miss it. No, but it's that is one of the many times that they're like, oh, Brian and Betsy, your dad was a bad guy, remember? Like, which mm -hmm. I always find curious. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. And I do think yeah. we should probably go in chronological order. So without further ado, Jamie Braddock was created by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimp and makes his first appearance in Captain Britain number nine in 1976. This is one issue after the first appearance of Betsy, but notably in that first appearance, Betsy rushes to Brian because Jamie has been in a terrible car accident at the racetrack. We learn that Jamie... Brian and Betsy's older brother is a famous Formula One race car driver and something has caused his car to explode. He had like a flame retardant suit on, so Betsy was able to save him. But Betsy interrupts Brian's walk with Courtney Ross to convince him to come back to Braddock Manor with her. She has co-opted one of Jamie's custom cars from his posh flat in london it's like a mercedes convertible and she's like sorry about my driving brian you know we get the sense of who they are very quickly we immediately find out that betsy's a charter pilot brian even thinks about how he's been distant from jamie and betsy since he became captain britain because he has the secret that he has to hide from them which explains why we've gone issues without right being introduced to these siblings. The explosion was set by Dr. Sin, a character you do not need to worry about, but who was an old associate of the Braddock's father, uh, who has been driven insane by Mastermind, the evil computer that lives in the basement of Braddock Manor. 
not to be confused with Jason Wingard, Mastermind the Evil Computer killed Brian and Betsy and Jamie's parents for reasons. Right. (laughs) Is that also Ben Raup stuff? It's established in the early stuff that they die in an explosion or whatever. And then in the 80s, we get more about what Mastermind's nefarious plans were. And then in Ben Robb, we find out, and this is like when I'm saying that Ben Robb's sort of power is where James Braddock Sr. gets a real drubbing. Right. We're told in that that he programmed mastermind to kill her and his wife to like trigger the activation of the twins or whatever which is fully crazy to me but you know it doesn't super matter because he's a character who's been dead since his first appearance and we don't probably ever need to worry about him again Mm -hmm. anyway dr sin is now like a hypnotic vampire guy he gives betsy a psychic vision of monsters that makes her crash a plane that she is flying Brian in. Later, Alan Moore will establish that this incident catalyzed Betsy's psychic power, which Claremont will then further retcon into a mutant psychic power so that he can bring her to X-Men. In any case, Brian is awoken from an attack by Dr. Sin and all of that by his brother Jamie who has recovered fine from the crash and you would never recognize him if you were looking for the guy from that trading card because it's very much just a posh brunette fellow in a vest and a nice blazer and all of that the cravat is kind of his like yes character he's he's dandyish he is dandyish in a way that Brian well I was gonna say that Brian never is but I'm I'm looking at it now and at the end of number nine he has this kind of cute of a turtle ascot. Yeah, but like it's different. It's different the yeah. way that Jamie does it. It feels very much like he's a society fellow, you know, and like he talks about boarding school and stuff like that in a way that's more fancy. He's 10 years older than Brian and Betsy, which it's not quite so dramatic, but you do kind of feel like Lady Braddock was probably surprised when 10 years later she suddenly was pregnant with twins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dr. Sin immediately possesses Betsy with more visions. He says, your will is mine, Betsy Braddock, now and forever to do with as I please. Which is like, it's only 1976, but Chris Claremont is already in his mind control bag. Betsy immediately believes that her brothers have been murdered by monsters who are all around her. And so she picks up a battle axe off the wall of Braddock Manor and tries to kill them. Right. (laughs) Which is very funny. There's never been a problem Betsy Braddock hasn't attempted to solve with a bladed weapon of some kind, even at this juncture as the damsel in distress sister character with no powers. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, along with obviously the mind control stuff that even in like 1976, Claremont kind of knows what he likes. Mm-hmm. And what struck me about kind of the utility of Jamie in these early stories is that like, I think Claremont very quickly becomes enamored of Betsy. Yes. And her being this kind of prototypical Claremont dame. Yeah. He needs someone to be the sort of like delicate and kind of waifish figure. And so I think it's interesting that that winds up being Jamie in a, in a lot of instances, even like in the era after 
Claremont leaves when he's still getting like knocked unconscious every two pages. Yeah. If it's not Courtney Ross, mm -hmm. it's more often Jamie who is in peril with a villain than it is Betsy, which is just interesting because it's not what you would expect, but it also is because Claremont establishes that right. in these early stories, Betsy's more resourceful. She's more spunky. She's less likely to have this happen to her. Whereas Jamie, who is kind of a stick in the mud occasionally in ways that are fun. I mean, my one of my favorites is like in their second story, they're captured by the Red Skull. It's a crossover between Captain America and Captain Britain. So Brian and Steve have to team up to fight the Red Skull. And the Red Skull has Jamie and Betsy captive. And then after they rescue them, Jamie is skeptical because like during the dr sin adventure jamie discovers that brian is captain britain so that's the mm -hmm. thing is like betsy doesn't know but jamie does which is the other reason why jamie winds up in peril because he's more likely to be in the vicinity when like a supervillain attacks here because it was reported that captain britain had been killed he assumes that this captain britain's an imposter right he's like it was on the telly earlier that you and captain america had been killed so you can't really be my brother brian braddock can you and everybody in the room is like wait what and Be betsy goes what's this all about first we're captured by neo-nazis now jamie says that you're brian it's blowing my mind it's a cute moment Brian goes, easy dear, let me explain. As Jamie's already discovered, I have two identities, Brian Braddock and Captain Britain. And while I haven't the time to tell you how I got a dual personality, I'll prove to you I'm not crackers. And I'm not crackers. You see, just by rubbing this amulet, I again become your own flesh and blood. Oh, Brian, thank God you're alive. It's really you. And Captain America goes, now I know how come you were so familiar with the layout of Braddock Manor. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Steve. That does explain a lot, doesn't it? I feel really thankful that I had seen Garth Marenghi before reading the 70s Captain Britain. <laughs> There's just a lot of fun stuff in these 70s stories. It's not, you know, high art by any means, but it's very enjoyable when they pop up next, there's this moment where they're watching the news and Lord Hawk has sent mm -hmm. his demon hawk to attack. I do want to talk about this story because, like, I feel like, especially in the 21st century, there's so much ink spilled about, like, well, why does he hate Brian? Right. And it's like, I would hate my brother if I was in this story. <laughs> because what happens here is Brian is planning how to fight Lord Hawk, which don't worry about Lord Hawk. The nice thing about all of these Captain Britain villains from the 70s is that you truly never have to worry about them again because they don't come back. <laughs> There's a knock at the door and Brian's like, who's there? Jamie, let me in, Brian. Blast, I have no time for a family reunion. Not while I'm studying these plans. No need stalling. I know you're in trouble. You can't defeat Lord Hawk by yourself. You need my help. Wrong, brother, but I haven't the time to convince you, so I'll have to handle your well-intentioned meddling the hard way. And he whips open the door, transforms into Captain Britain, and cracks Jamie across the face. And Jamie is not unconscious. He could very well be dead. Like, Brian is not taking the situation seriously. Brian has super seriously. strength. Yeah. He ties Jamie up with ropes. 
To like a throne. To like a, a fancy chair that they have. And eventually when he wakes up, Brian is asleep because he's been like at it for a while trying to figure out the Lord Hawk situation. But Brian's like asleep on the desk in Captain Britain costume. And this, by the way, for people who haven't read the 70s series, is the fully crazy Lionheart costume with the full face mask and the hair out of the head sock. And like, Mm -hmm. so he just looks very silly sleeping on the desk. Especially because seated across from him in this throne is Jamie, who is very irate. Brian, wake up! Tell me what this is all about! Why the ropes? Come on, talk! Morning already! I must have fallen asleep poring over these blueprints! The heck with your blueprints! Why'd you tie me up? Sorry about that, but you were set on tackling Lord Hawk, and I had no time to change your mind. I only wanted to help you, but my enthusiasm has waned! (laughs) You're on your own, so you needn't keep me bound! And then Lord Hawk blows up a building outside Mm -hmm. and Brian's like, it's an accident or it's Lord Hawk. Either way, I got to go deal with it. And Jamie's like, hey, what about the ropes? He goes, no time for that now. I'll return as soon as I can. And just jumps out the window and leaves Jamie behind. Betsy has a psychic dream, which is kind of interesting because you can see why Alan Moore looking at this would be like, okay, so she's psychic, right? Like she has a nightmare about Brian dying. Jamie runs to her and comforts her. And he's like, but was it only a dream? And is it really over? When I last saw Brian, he was doing his Captain Britain thing. And we cut back to, sorry about the ropes, Jamie, but for your own safety, I can't let you endanger yourself by trying to help me. Brian leaping out the window, leaving Jamie in the chair tied up. Yeah, and like, again, Lord Hawk is blowing up buildings on this block. Yes! But then what's interesting is we see that Jamie manages to get himself free. And he says, when Brian didn't return to free me, I knew he was in trouble. So I worked myself free and headed back here. Later, they go to the... (laughs) So then we do get 39, which is... A story in which Captain Britain is mind-controlled into attempting to assassinate Queen Elizabeth, who, like, appears fully in this comic as, like, a character in it. Mm -hmm. So there's this news article about how, like, Captain Britain tried to kill the Queen. Later, at his brother's flat in Chelsea, Brian Braddock discusses his dilemma with his twin sister Betsy and their older brother, racing car driver Jamie Braddock. I can't believe it! Brian, how could you? And, like... (laughs) (laughs) he's like i was hypnotized and they're like oh you mean someone ordered you to kill the queen but how could they gain control of you how so this is sort of the vibe of 70s captain britain it's very Mm -hmm. silly in this like a mystical jewel does mind control queen elizabeth into declaring war on an african nation if i recall correctly it all gets resolved by the end of the story don't worry too much about it Issue 39 is the final issue of that 70s Captain Britain story because it then gets folded into a reprint book called Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain, which reprints in black and white Spider-Man comics and then has a backup that is a Captain Britain story. Mm -hmm. In Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain 243, the debut of Slaymaster, this is written by Larry Lieber and Jim Lawrence, drawn by Ron Wilson. 
we get a little window into what's up with Betsy and Jamie because Brian goes to visit the studio where his sister models, which is an abrupt new direction for Betsy that she's a model. And that obviously gets picked up by Morin than by Claremont. This story is a funny one because it's like ironic assassinations. So like Slaymaster kills Lord Arrow with an arrow. And then there's this guy like Major Gun. And so Brian's like, oh no, we'll have to find someone who has a gun who wants to kill him with a gun. They're all collectors of rare items. <laughs> we see Betsy posing in a little, frankly, surprisingly scanty outfit. Brian's reading something. Next day, Brian Braddock visits the studio where his sister models to take lunch with her. Seems all these gimmick murder victims had hobbies. One collected rare stamps, another fancied prize orchids. How about that rock star, Luke Lane? I bet he was too cool too far out to collect anything. Wrong, love, says the photographer. Lukey boy collected girls. He had dolly birds by the bushel. So he did. Okay, but what about the victim before Luke? Lord Quain? Good question. Jamie raced for Quain. Perhaps he could answer that one. So then he goes to see Jamie at Jamie's race where he's about to like go on because mm -hmm. he's scheduled to drive in a big meet or whatever they're called. I'm not a Formula One person myself. He goes to ask if Lord Quain had like other hobbies besides race cars. Oh, and uh, yeah. Jamie's like, yeah, he was a horse breeder, basically. This is how they find Major Gun, the next target, because Jamie's like, he's a great collector too. He has the most famous collection of race cars in England or whatever. So that's Jamie's little cameo. And that's Jamie's last appearance in any of the 70s material his last appearance period until issue nine of the 1985 Captain Britain relaunch series. This is the series that spins out of the Alan Moore stories in the Daredevils and other anthology books to have Captain Britain back in his own solo title. He's got the new mm -hmm. costume. We're fully in the 80s now. This story involves RCX and the Warpies. Megan has just achieved her power and her beautiful form and all of that. The evil computer Mastermind, who is now posing as Jeeves the butler yeah, at the manor, is conspiring with RCX to get rid of Brian and replace him with Betsy, which is how she ends up in her first brief tenure as Captain Britain. We cut to Brian and Megan in the living room where they are watching a news broadcast and we are told that the authorities of the state of Mbangawi, in whose territory Jamie Braddock was last seen during the Trans-African Rally, have promised full cooperation in the search for the missing Playboy racing driver, but so far there is no trace. This is specifically a reference to a real event. So it's 1985 right. when this story is coming out. In 1982, Mark Thatcher, the son of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who was a high-profile hobbyist race car driver, went missing with his driver and a mechanic in the Sahara Desert because he was driving in the Paris-Dakar rally which went from paris to dakar in senegal 
They were missing for six days. Maggie Thatcher's husband flew to Senegal. The Algerian troops joined the search, and it was a whole to-do. They found him. He was kind of just, like, chilling, right? Like yeah. <laughs> They found him in a hotel, mm-hmm. like, where he had racked up a huge bar tab and thought that everybody knew where he was allegedly, but maybe it was just on a lot of drugs, not super clear, like what was going on. It was a huge international scandal that embarrassed Thatcher at the time. She paid off the hotel bill personally, and she helped repay the local governments for their efforts with the search party. Notably, many years later, by which I mean like in the 2000s, Mark Thatcher was convicted by the government of South Africa for helping to fund a coup d'etat attempt in Equatorial Guinea. Right. So like that is just a coincidence as it turns out. Yeah. What happens here in this story is that Jamie Delano, who is writing Captain Britain at this point with Alan Davis on art, decides... It would be fun, since Jamie Braddock is not a character that's been used so far in this run, to do a send-up of this Mark Thatcher scandal. So you have Jamie similarly disappearing. Because here's the thing. Aristocrats who like to participate in race car driving was not like an uncommon thing. So it's convergent evolution. Claremont gives him that backstory in 76, Mm -hmm. but it's natural if you're then writing in the 80s about Captain Britain and he has an older brother who's an aristocrat race car driver to do a Mark Thatcher story. And that's especially like so in keeping with the other stuff Delano was doing at that time. Absolutely. His Hellblazer is like so stridently writing on the wall. Like I think there literally is graffiti in the backgrounds of a lot of those John Constantine stories about, you know, how livid he and his colleagues and his friends were about. About Thatcher. I mean, they hated Thatcher. Yeah. So most British comics of the 80s are about hating Margaret Thatcher, Mm -hmm. which Yeah, I agree. So I'm all about that. But this is about the excesses of the aristocracy, about the embarrassment that happened to Margaret Thatcher when her son disappeared in Africa. But he takes it further than the Mark Thatcher story went, because what happens as they are watching the broadcast is that the phone rings and Brian picks it up. And it's Jamie, and Brian's like, what's going on? And Jamie says, Brian, please, just listen. I I don't know why. And we cut to the next page, and he is tied up to a chair by characters we will later learn are Dr. Crocodile and the Witch Woman. The art here is... I really looked to see if I could find a Davis interview about this run. Because here's what I'll say. Yeah. It's racist the way that they are drawn here, but (laughs) it's racist, but is like never a great sentence to draw. I do feel like it's done on purpose given where the story then goes. The way it's initially presented to us, these are like 
a vicious warlord and a crone witch doctor lady who she in particular is drawn in a very racialized caricature kind of way i was gonna say i alan davis all-time favorite same but this witch woman is she's always given me pause she's rough yeah that said the point of this story you know last week we talked a lot about Stephen adwell and i talked about a song of ice and fire and comparing and contrasting x-men and and that universe and claremont and martin although they are friendly I forgot to mention this last week, but one of the M squad, those faux ghostbusters who mm-hmm. are in Inferno and then try to apprehend Jubilee at the mall is named Dr. Martin after George R. R. Martin. There's also a Dr. Snodgrass after Melinda Snodgrass. It's like all those fantasy novelists who Chris was friendly with. Mm-hmm. One way in which they are similar is they like a story where it looks like a character is a harmful stereotype of some kind but the true monster is the white person. Mm -hmm. So like this story to me is very akin to the way that George R. R. Martin handles the Dothraki specifically Mm. in a game of Thrones, which a lot of critics of color have talked about at length. I think that the TV show is actually way worse about it than the book is. So that also complicates it. But in the book, the point that Martin is making with the Dothraki is that while they are savages, barbarians, whatever, they're like sort of a a mix of Conan the Barbarian and the Mongol horde, right? Mm -hmm. They are more civilized in their way than the Westerosi people who have all this pomp and circumstance and etiquette and politesse, but are in fact soulless monsters by comparison to the Dothraki who have a belief system that they adhere to and who, you know, Khal Drogo is the only man who ever asks Daenerys her opinion in her entire life thus far up to that point, which is why she goes so all in on joining their culture, even though parts of it are not her favorite. Right. This story is interesting on a couple levels. One is that Dr. Crocodile, the bad guy here who has Jamie in custody, is a former RCX operative. He was trained by the British government and he was actually attacked and deformed in the way that we now see him by one of the Warpies when RCX was seizing the Warpies from their parents and taking them into government custody. He was ordered to snatch a baby out of his crib, and the baby blew up fire in his face, basically. That inspired him to quit his job at RCX and return to his native country, which is, as said on the news broadcast, the fictional Mbangawi. Which, if you look it up, is not that far from Genosha? Yes, Because it's in East Africa and Genosha is near Madagascar in the ocean. Yeah. Anyway, we get this panel where it looks like an African warlord with a ghastly burn scar and his bandolier strapped up soldiers and a voodoo witch of some kind are menacing Jamie, who's tied to a chair and manacled and everything. He's on the phone with Brian because they've given him a phone to call his brother. 
for ransom purposes, presumably, and he says, I don't know why, but they seem like serious people, and they say that if you're not here by Wednesday, they're going to do something savage and unpleasant to me. Okay, Jamie, don't worry, I'll be there. And we see Mastermind scheming that he is sending them there on purpose. It says, next, African Nightmare. Yeah. I'm just stressing this because... Your mileage may vary as to whether the surprise here, which is that Dr. Crocodile and the witch woman are the good guys in this scenario, merits the racist cliffhanger. Because it's bait and switch that presumes a white reader, right? It presumes that you're going to see this, you're going to have certain ideas about dangerous militant groups in Africa and be like, oh no, this is such a terrible situation for Jamie. In the next issue, the actual African nightmare is the nightmare that Brian experiences when he and Megan go to rescue Jamie and the witch woman shows him a dream sequence kind of montage of everything Jamie has been up to on the African continent. Dr. Crocodile and the Witch Woman believe, based on intel they got, that Brian has been protecting Jamie, when actually Brian has no idea of anything Jamie's been up to. So Dr. Crocodile, as a giant crocodile, because it is truly like a nightmare sequence that's really cool, where Brian's hallucinating, says to Brian, come forward, Jacqueline, gaze upon your agent's crimes, your crimes. And we see Jamie Braddock do a whole bunch of really terrible things. We see him seizing Red Cross famine supplies, for victims of presumably the famine in Ethiopia at that time. We see him grab a white woman by the hair, a blonde, and say, this one I can sell in Tangier. As for the rest, kill them. Some soldiers execute a bunch of kneeling people. See the life of luxury or accomplices torn from the bellies of the starving. Jamie in all of these panels is a shadowed figure. We don't see his face. We do see him ashing his cigarette in the cup of a starving naked beggar in the streets. Then we see that same blonde woman kneeling in a bikini before some Middle Eastern sheikh-looking type guys. Well, gentlemen, who will begin the bidding? Do I hear 10,000? Trading. 20,000 in blood. 30,000 and misery. We see then a chain gang of African men in manacles and a hand holding a whip with a bracelet that bears the monogram JB. Brian suddenly grabs Jamie by the throat as he comes out of the nightmare and goes, Jamie? Hello, Brian, old sport. The witch woman turns to Dr. Crocodile and says, your friends were wrong, doctor. He is innocent of his brother's crimes. And Brian... This is just a really interesting issue. Yeah. Brian is in a towering rage, like a murderous rage. He lifts Jamie into the air and shouts, you animal. Brian, don't. You've got to save me from these people. Save you. And he backhands Jamie across the face. I'm going to kill you. Dr. Crocodile grabs his hand and says, no, Captain, that is not for you to do. We have our own justice. It will take its course. I'm sorry for your ordeal, Captain, but my informants claimed that you had protected your brother from previous detection, and your reputation prompted me to caution. By informants, you mean the RCX? Your old pal set me up to get me out of the way, I suppose. It seems so, although they were right about your playboy brother's depravity. I think there's so much to say about this 
issue. And I think one of them is looking forward to how Claremont, when he started Excalibur, he probably was assuming that no one in the U.S. buying Excalibur had access had to Had ever issues. read this comic, right. Like, in, in, in fact, I sort of see it as like profoundly, uh, like a profoundly gracious move as a creator to be like, these British comics that for all I know will never be available to American audiences, they count, they happen. They're canon, yeah. Like Claremont liked these comics enough that when he mm -hmm. brings Betsy and then Brian and then Megan into the X-Men franchise, he maintains the canon of these stories pretty handily. Yeah, as just came up in the Forge issue, like James Jaspers is this huge Correct. accent center. Yeah, and... Jamie very obviously comes to stand in for Jim Jaspers in certain ways as the story continues. But one thing that I think is interesting about Claremont preserving this story for Jamie in his Excalibur run is that typically when Chris Claremont creates a character and doesn't like what you did with them, he just mm -hmm. pretends that it never happened. Right. You can see how much he liked the Moore and Davis, Delano Davis, Davis Davis, Captain Britain in particular, even the Thorpe Davis, that's a briefer thing. He loves Saturnine, uses her as much as he can, mm -hmm. likes Megan. Like these are characters he didn't create, who he keeps well saturnine is like it's astonishing that he didn't she was made for him in a lab it's wild yeah. that he didn't create her yeah. but yeah similarly like betsy being a telepathic spy with purple hair is something alan moore did not mm -hmm. part of chris's initial presentation of the character he gave her the psychic visions and things but it's more who established that and he keeps that it is Delano who establishes Brian and Megan as love interests and he keeps that. It is Delano who establishes this really sinister, horrific, I mean, for a superhero comic, this is like, it, I tried to describe the panels as best I could, but like Alan Davis draws the fuck out of this issue. Yeah. If you can stomach the slightly, I would say, insensitive way that the witch woman is drawn, it is a really instructive issue to look at just in terms of like the language of comic books and how you can communicate so much with fewer words and more images. It is very rare in a Marvel superhero comic to see anyone sell women into sex slavery or yeah. traffic African tribesmen. The things that Jamie was allegedly doing are crimes of a magnitude that you don't see a supervillain do. And it's because Jamie Braddock in this story is not a supervillain. Yeah. He's the shame of Brian's aristocratic heritage. What it means to be Captain Britain is that your brother would do these things. It feels like both a testament to Davis's range and also sort of the limits of the genre if you're going to weave it into that like kind of broader tapestry of canon. You have to downplay this if you're ever going to use this character again, which is what they do. Because Claremont, he reiterates a lot of this issue when Jamie shows up with TechNet, but he camps it up. Yeah, we'll get there because I do think yeah. that what he does is very smart, but we should get through to the end here real quick. So Megan and Brian leave the witch woman's home. Brian is feeling betrayed because Betsy has aligned herself with RCX, who have been objecting to him. Megan, what can I do? First, Betsy sides with those rabble from the RCX, and now Jamie turns out to be some kind of monster. Everything changes too fast. It makes you want to hide. You never knew Jamie very well, did you? He was older than me. He always liked to enjoy himself. 
I used to admire him for that. Now it makes me sick to know that he's my brother. I hope they kill him. But I don't want to be here when they do. I've got to go, not back to the manor, anywhere but there. Come with me. And that is when Brian and Megan have their first kiss. It's a really striking moment. I hope they kill him is again, like not something superheroes say. And the fact that Brian just turns and walks away and is like, I don't want to know what's about to happen in that house. And I'm Mm -hmm. not going to ask and they should do whatever they think they should do is really interesting to me. The narration as Dr. Crocodile watches Brian and Megan fly away is swollen and heavy. The blood red sun wobbles upward. Flamingos with wings of flame clatter into the African dawn. Below, alone, Dr. Crocodile breathes the dry, ruthless air and turns to consider justice. Again, this was obviously pre-Vertigo, but Davis fucking kills it in this swamp thing like gothic horror mode. Yeah, and Delano, who, as you pointed out, is one of the chief architects of Hellblazer at Vertigo, Mm -hmm. the way that this plays out, it reminds me a lot of, like, the story I'm about to mention is much more horrific, but, like, the 24-hour diner story in Sandman, the first time Mm -hmm. I read that, I didn't think comic books, like, could do that, like, were allowed to do That, and that's how it feels reading this story. And it's even wilder in this to me on some level, even though 24-hour diner or 24 hours or whatever it's called is so much more horrific because this is in the context of like a superhero comic with costumes and like the X-Men exist in this universe and stuff like that and Spider-Man. And so like the idea that this would happen is so crazy to me. And it really sticks with you. I mean, it's a story I didn't read until I was a little older, but... It's effective, and it's not until four years later in Excalibur 15 that Claremont picks it up at all. Like, this is just, for all we knew, Jamie Braddock died in that house at the end of that issue, and Mm -hmm. it was just not something that was ever mentioned again. Betsy doesn't mention him. Brian doesn't mention him. In Excalibur 15, we see the tech net the comedy mercenary aliens who have been recurring since Excalibur, the sword is drawn. They have been put on probation essentially by Saturnine because they failed to capture Rachel Summers. So they're stuck on earth taking odd jobs and they are hired by Nigel Frobisher from Fraser's bank. Nigel is the right hand of Courtney Ross, except by this point, Courtney Ross has been murdered and replaced by Opalun Satyrnin, the fascist dictator of Earth 749, or I forget, one of, yeah. something. <laughs> I was going to say 238, but that's not, that's Linda's Earth. Nigel is a fascinating character for a lot of reasons. Do you want to talk wanted... a bit about Nigel Frobisher? <laughs> Yeah, there is this sense, I think, that as Claremont drifts into books with less editorial oversight, or kind of um, even just kind of further afield from mainstream kind of blockbuster superhero comics. And, you know, to be fair by Inferno, I I would say it would be unfair to call Uncanny X-Men as mainstream superhero comics. It was something really kind of wonderful and peculiar. It was unique, yeah. Yeah, We're now in the midst of that, right? Like Inferno has just happened. This is the Siege Perilous era over in X-Men now 
when this is all taking place. I feel like as he gets further from that sort of triple A headlining book space, there are thematics and motifs that come to the fore. And one of those is, it almost goes without saying, this kind of stuff about gender transgression and gender mutability. One of the things that really changed how I read Claremont in the 80s was your interview with um, Innocenti. Mm-hmm. She talks about sort of their nightlife, the clubs they were going to. And it suddenly clicked like, yeah, he was hanging out with trans women. He knew trans women. That is a yeah. thing that it's a missing piece, right? Like for Annie Nascenti to say on this show that she thinks Emma Frost is inspired by like trans women and drag queens who they knew. Mm-hmm. It makes everything click together yeah. right? because like we've been saying that about emma frost for like decades i was a late adopter <laughs> i know you were i know you yeah. were but uh, the royal we perhaps yeah but like ever since grant morrison wrote that character that's been something that people have been talking about in terms of analysis and this and that so you know just to, to have it said that baldly as though annie felt it was just an obvious Thing. So Nigel Frobisher, for people who are not familiar, I mean, we should explain what goes on with this character. Right. One of the members of TechNet is a little baby. You know, the TechNet are all weird little guys for the most part, except for like there's a couple babes and then Gatecrasher, who's like a huge. He's like a big little guy. Powerhouse of a woman. And then there's all of these uh, weird little guys. And one of the weird little guys is a baby called Joy Boy that floats around in a little chair. Joy Boy has the power to perceive your heart's desires and transform you in whatever way will satisfy them. When he looks into the heart of Nigel Frobisher, he sees Frobisher's lust for Courtney Ross, but also Frobisher's desire to be Courtney Ross. Mm -hmm. There is a physical transformation sequence where Nigel sort of half becomes a woman and then like shifts back and it's this whole weird thing. And he's constantly protesting that he doesn't have any feelings like that. But as the story goes on, his appearance starts to change. He begins to transition. Mm -hmm. He bleaches his hair platinum white like Courtney's. He starts wearing a dangly earring that's similar to Satyr 9's insignia. That's a whole other thing. Cause like, Uh, I think I mentioned this to you that the sort of saga of Nigel, it feels like one of the, you know, dozens of Dessaud knockoff anonymous French novels from like the 1790s. For sure. Where he just kind of keeps tumbling from one sort of sexy transgressive situation to another with like increasing stakes of like bodily implausibility. And Nigel Frobisher notably like hit on Rachel and was rebuffed, is rebuffed by Courtney. He's pathetic. Diversity win Nigel Frobisher is not necessarily what I would say, but there is a trans narrative happening here that for 1989-1990 is shockingly textual. Mm -hmm. I think at the same time, it's sort of saturated in objection in a way that was very of its time. Absolutely true also, but... He loses that bet and kind of of winds up in this kind of semi-compulsory sub-situation. So that's where it then goes, right? Yeah. But the Joy Boy thing is what really complicates it for me because Joy Boy is like what you want is to be a beautiful woman like Courtney. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he at Courtney's behest, and I'm calling her Courtney, but again, this is the evil alternate Saturnine that has replaced Courtney. So I'm just calling her Courtney because at this point, real Courtney's dead. So we might as well call her Courtney. Courtney has instructed Nigel to hire the tech nat. 
because she wants Jamie. Not entirely clear to us why at this juncture, because for all we know, Jamie's just like a race car driver who got into organized crime. Mm-hmm. Gatecrasher shows them all holograms, and this is to explain for readers who didn't get to read Captain Britain, because this is now an American comic. This is during the cross-time caper, so Excalibur has disappeared. Therefore, all of this happens when they are being shunted through alternate Earths. She shows them Dr. Crocodile and says, This is the tyrant who has sentenced dear Jamie to death by slow torture. Joshua Ndingi, Doc Croc. And this is a funny moment. Scatterbrain, aka Fascination, says, First decent looking yobbo I vidied on this orb. So, like, she thinks Dr. Croc is hot, which I do find fun. Anyway, when they arrive, we see Doc Croc and the witch woman with Jamie. Jamie is suspended from two posts. It's such a weird tableau. His ears have been pierced, and the earrings have him chained to the posts. He's also chained by his hair, which is stretched out in different directions and has grown longer. He is in that now iconic white Speedo that is all he wears for the most part, most of the time. And he has some gold anklets that have also been used to chain him up and like bracelets, similar to the witch woman's. Basically, they've dressed him up, but they're humiliating him, right? Like they have stripped him. I mean, if it was not a Marvel comic, you get the sense that he would be naked, but he's not Mm -hmm. because he has to have some underwear on. What he's saying over and over and over again with his eyes wide and gone white rolled back in his head is... I feel happy, I feel happy, I feel happy in tiny, tiny, tiny letters. So whatever's been going on here, it's been rough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Joy Boy goes over to the witch woman and perceives that her heart's desire is to ascend to a higher plane and be one with the cosmos. He grants her wish, and she explodes into fire. She'll recover, but she'll never be the same again. Gatecrasher is confronting Dr. Crocodile, who throws some kind of gas into her face, which makes her see a vision like the one that Brian did in the Captain Britain story. So again, we get to recap that story. But I think it's interesting what we're shown here. First... And this I took a note of. She's suddenly like out on the savannah and it says, Africa, as it probably never was, but as our hopes and dreams tell us it ought to be. And it's just this pastoral scene with all these like safari friendly animals. And again, like assuming a white reader, but it feels like a pointed critique yeah. that Claremont is making. And then we see shadowy monsters start killing all the animals. So much for paradise, but the wholesale slaughter is merely a means to an end. And they're skinning the leopards and whatnot. And Gatecrasher says, poaching for profit. We've seen it before. So long as someone's willing to pay, others are eager to kill. But who are these folk? Why will no one help them? And it's African famine victims who are standing waiting for red cross relief she looks behind herself to find a soldier a white soldier 
who has stolen the famine relief goods and destroyed them, like blown up most of them. Gatecrasher is horrified. Gatecrasher, who is like not a good person, right? She's like an intergalactic bounty hunter. And the soldier says, where's the sense in giving away for free what can better be sold? Yo, boss, another for the Tangier slave mart? As he chains Gatecrasher up. And she says, you, James Braddock. And we see Jamie Braddock. This drawing of him is actually in the cover art for this episode. He's in Uh a white dinner jacket and a nice black suit. There is a sexy lady in a red dress leaned up on him and he's smoking a cigarette. There's actually like half a dozen. There's a whole bunch of bikini babes and a sexy Mercy Graves style lady chauffeur Mm -hmm. all at his race car behind him. My dear Raffi, one's reputation is based on providing quality merchandise. I'm afraid this walking hippopotamus simply will not do. And he holds a knife up to Gatecrasher's throat. Please, don't, I beg. Falture bait, Raffi, get rid of her. No, I am Gatecrasher, I will not grovel. Basically, we are shown what a bad dude this is. I do think that this treatment of it is a little softer and more Marvel Comics friendly than the Captain Britain story, which makes sense to me. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is that, you know, Gatecrasher is essentially a Saturday morning cartoon villain. Right. She's a really cool one. She's a really fun one. I love Gatecrasher, but it's less serious than... Like, seeing her put through this is different from us watching that blonde woman, whoever she was, that Jamie captured and sold into sex slavery. It is different from seeing him hold a whip next to a bunch of African tribesmen who are being trafficked into some kind of servitude. Mm -hmm. That's the stuff in the Captain Britain story that's really, really wild that here we get hints of but in a way that marvel us was probably more comfortable with right because it's less graphic and also it just it distances itself from sort of the shock of it just by using this kind of like bigger iconography delano he's in like a blue racing suit i don't know what you call the little jumpsuit onesie people race in but here he's in this kind of like pux almost with these like sports illustrated mid-80s models behind him Right. Like, it's so, I hate using comic booky as a pejorative. It is comic booky, though. It's this distancing. Yeah, it's effective, but it's not nearly as visceral as the earlier story. And I think that's in part because the tone of Excalibur as a book is lighter than the tone of Captain Britain as a book. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. But the thing that's interesting is, like, Claremont didn't need to touch this story at all. He never needed Mm -hmm. to reference this character again. I think what happens here is the Jim Jaspers element that you mentioned, which is that Claremont has now, by this point, been denied the use of Jim Jaspers and the Fury, both Alan Moore, Captain Britain characters. Well, actually, Dave Thorpe created Jim Jaspers, but... The Jim Jaspers, Jaspers warp stuff. Like, Dave Thorpe's Jim Jaspers just like a weird villain. Yeah. The reality warping, surreal, nightmare, reality cancer guy, Jim Jaspers, is Alan Moore. And what Claremont does here with Jamie is two things that I think are smart, both in terms of economy of character and in making this a character you can use without him being a wicked slave trader you know right what doc crock 
and his witch woman have done is torture Jamie in revenge for their countrymen that he has harmed until his mind has completely shattered. He is now 1000% insane, has no idea what's real, what's not. Maybe they triggered a psychotic break in him that was an illness he already had. I mean, he clearly didn't have much regard for human life, but he's now unaware of what's going on in a very different way. He believes that he is still asleep, that he was put to sleep by the witch woman and never woke up. He believes that everything around him is a dream and that it's his dream. It's not dissimilar from the way Grant Morrison writes Cassandra Nova in the sense that Cassandra believes only she and Charles are real. And so therefore, while Cassandra Nova commits atrocities, to her, it's barely, like, it's not really genocide to her because they're ants, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about this a lot during the Sebastian Shaw episode, Mm -hmm. especially towards the end when you're sort of talking about what do we do, especially in Krakoa, with these characters that have done stuff that are kind of like beyond the pale. That are really, really heinous. Yeah. Yeah. Because like when I would tell people that I was doing this episode and I was excited, they'd be like, I don't know who that is. Who is it? First of all, not to bury the lead, he sells people. Yeah, one of his most famous stories is him being a slave trader in Africa. Just FYI. You do kind of have to lead with that, but I do think that every story that follows is sort of in the service of taking him away from that story and making Mm -hmm, him mm -hmm. into a character you can use in a superhero comic, which I think makes sense. Yeah. But I also get why, much like I said about Shaw last week... There are some people who just don't want to read about this character, and I think that that's fair, you know? Yeah. I think making him mad in that sort of, like, capital M, Gilbert and Gubar mad kind of way, Mm -hmm. it kind of gives the story permission to not make this a story about class in the way that the Delano very much is. I kept thinking about that Peter O'Toole movie, The Ruling Class, Mm. which is kind of very much about both of those things. And sort of about this, like, almost kind of politics of, like, passability of what kind of madness with a capital M again is permissible in high society and which can kind of go stealth. O'Toole is kind of ranting and raving at the end about embodying this kind of, like, demiurgic politics of carnage and retribution. He's getting standing ovations in the House of Lords. Right. When he's in this kind of very, like, free love, post-hippie, libertine mode. Everyone around him is like, how can we get him committed? How can we get him to, you know, cut his hair and get out of our lives? There's this sense that the thesis of that movie is that within this kind of structure of British aristocracy, the more your particular damage focuses on projecting this kind of carceral attributive logic outwards, the more it's indistinguishable from something that's just permissible. Whereas with Jamie, it really feels like you're either telling one story or the other. Yeah, I think Claremont sort of gets to have his cake and eat it too in this story because, like, I've seen people question how Jamie can be 
just around on Krakoa because of this origin story with the slave trading and the exploiting famine victims and this and that, which all like truly mm -hmm. horrendous, heinous crimes. That's a little much, even if we're doing amnesty. A part of that is there are a lot of stories between what we're talking about right now and Krakoa that do a lot of rehabilitation mm -hmm. of Jamie Braddock as a character, including a Chris Claremont story that significantly dials back the level of Jamie's crimes. And we'll get there right. when we get there. The big thing, though, is I think this does work as a salient critique of Brian and Betsy, right? Like, And I love those characters. I love them. But... Brian talks a big game in Captain Britain 10 when he's like, I hope they kill him. I'm leaving him. to die. And he does leave him there to be tortured into insanity. But right. for the next 20, 30 years, Brian and Betsy are both praying that they can get their brother back in some right. way. The brother who they knew who maybe was never a real person in the first place. Right. But it shows the willingness of someone like Thatcher, the willingness of someone like, I mean, Jamie is to some extent the Prince Andrew of mm -hmm, the Braddock mm -hmm, royal mm -hmm. family, right? Yeah. And the Queen protected Prince Andrew to her dying day. So there is a way in which it functions as a class critique to me, but Claremont also manages to avoid it to some extent by making Jamie now such a broken monster that's barely human mm -hmm. that he becomes an object of pity in a way that actually is very reminiscent of the Gabby Holler defense to me. Or we talked about this with Shaw last week, like when Hope Summers defends Shaw after Emma has mind wiped him and is like, you can't hold him responsible for the things he did before you wiped his mind, he's a new person now. Mm -hmm. I think that Jamie is given that here to some extent because his mind is now so fractured that, like, I doubt he remembers doing any of those things. You know what I mean? I, I think there's still, as I'm sort of talking out loud about it, I feel like there's something trenchant there about the privilege of distance. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think it works is what I'm saying, but I also think that it enables the character to move beyond that story while still functioning as a villain in a way that's interesting in, again, more of a superhero context. And what's interesting about this story is like Claremont takes time to give us his inner thought process because we need to see how broken and alien and strange it is if we're to understand like he's gone. Whatever dandy ladies man who was a predator that he was before, what's left is a very different creature. And the narration is really cool. And also, Alan Davis, I mean, I know that we're just singing Alan Davis's praises throughout, but the way Alan Davis renders Jamie's power is remarkable. Mm -hmm. Because what the witch woman accidentally did in breaking Jamie's mind was, as often happens to latent mutants in traumatic situations, activate his mutant power. He didn't use it until the tech net roused him from his state of catatonia. But we see him, he looks directly at the reader and says, I feel happy. His eyes are wide. 
he is staring into infinity. The backdrop is yellow, a sickly yellow. And all around him, in front of him, behind him, are pink threads. And it says, Behold a broken man in the process of putting himself back together, a puppet whose strings have just been cut, casting him loose upon the world. And it's worth noting that the way Jamie now stands and holds himself, he walks at weird angles, he holds mm. his head, at, like he does look like a marionette that has been broken. It's very... um. I want to say in the 60s or 70s, there was that Japanese avant-garde dance style. Mm-hmm. Buto. Yes. It's definitely that kind of vibe. I think the varied lead here, uh, alongside the power signature, is that this is suddenly like a very horny character. Well, that's the other thing. He's now very sexual, but in a scary way that's not yeah. sexy. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to make it sound like I think Claremont is shying away from his predatory aspects. I think that what is shied away from specifically is the racial element to the original Captain Britain story. Right. Because that's just harder to tackle head on in a Marvel comic in 1990 in this way. It's real. He's a bad guy is what we need to know, you know? But you can read him here in kind of like that tradition of like a literature of transgression and excess. Like Absolutely. Mark Thatcher is a different order of no good Nick than like a Bataille protagonist. <laughs> right. But it's in the same family of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The world he perceives is not quite the one we do. I feel happy. It's a world made of string, filaments of energy so fragile they seem to snap at the merest touch, and we see him reach out and break some of the strings, only to then miraculously reform and renew themselves immediately thereafter. A veritable puzzlement. So he stands, stock still, to sort it out. I feel happy. And in truth he does, more vital and alive than at any time since he left these shores years ago. It hasn't yet sunk in that it's because he's back, because he has teleported them back to England. And then Technet try to apprehend him, and he instinctively, believing that he is in a dream, wrecks the absolute shit out of all of them. (laughs) And, And, like, there's, like, 15 things I would say Claremont is, like, the pioneer for in superhero comics, but I think one of the big ones is these really kind of bravura sequences of a bunch of people that you know are powerful and that you like getting just their asses kicked. Yeah, this is very reminiscent of when Shaw beats the Mm -hmm. shit out of the X-Men in Dark Phoenix Saga, actually. And also the Nimrod thing. And also the Nimrod thing. It's so... Like, I read this issue as a kid, and I was very frightened by him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The way that he moves, the constant rictus grin on his face, the fact that his eyes are always wide, wide open, the way that his hair is kind of blowing in the wind all the time, the very weirdly sexually aggressive character design of just, like, the white thong and the gold Mm -hmm. anklets and bracelets and earrings, which, like for a male character was something as a 90s kid you know lady death is on the wall of every comic shop like i'm prepared for women in but like there was something very arresting about this character in a way that was erotic but also terrifying because he's a scary monster there's this great moment where scatterbrain who's sort of the 
psychic of Technat descends on him and tries to fry his brain. Unfortunately, it's she who gets psychically fried. And Claremont loves that too, right? It's like when Rogue tries to absorb Sinister or Spiral or Apocalypse and they take control of her instead. And he made whole, sort of. How? What a charge. And what odd people I find running about England. Gay Crusher goes, he seems more rational. And Dr. Crocodile, who has been dragged along with all of them, says, All that means, Gatecrasher, is that his power is now directed by intelligence rather than brute instinct. If anything, he's just become even more dangerous. And we see him defeat Waxwork and China Doll and Ring Toss. And then Joy Boy floats up. Yeah. Joy Boy scans for Jamie's heart's desire, reasoning sensibly that if he's content, he'll no longer be interested in fighting. Of course, that all depends. Joy Boy collapses to the earth on precisely what makes a body happy. Poor baby, I guess you have limits. Not me, not anymore. And that's another one, Claire. Like, that's what Maddie Pryor says to Sinister, right? It appears you have limits and I do not. Storm does one of those at some point. To think I've been missing this my whole life. I'd be shrieking with rage if I wasn't so gosh darn happy. And I have you lot to thank for it. Almost a shame it's just a dream. Imagine if I could do all this in reality. Dr. Crocodile realizes he thinks he's still imprisoned, so he runs forward to attack. Whatever the risk, Gatecrasher, whatever the cost, we have to stop him. We don't get to see what happens next, but there's an explosion of the threads and energy overhead. And then we cut to Brighton, where Nigel Frobisher, in an androgynous white suit with the Courtney Ross blonde hair with the dangle earring now, finds Jamie, who's wandering and singing a crazy song. And so they go off to meet with Courtney, and we cut to the tech net. <laughs> and Thug, who's one of the weird little guys in the tech net, TechNet is all living together in a little flat now because Saturnine cut them off. And Thug finds a tiny cyborg crocodile in the bathtub, which is all that remains of Dr. Crocodile. I think it's so funny that I don't want to call it pulling his punch, but I, I just I do really love that TechNet is functionally fine at the end of this. Yeah, he doesn't kill any of them, including yeah. like body bag who it looks like he kills and they're all like holy shit she's fine and like eating a can of paint in the group (laughs) shot at the end of the issue yeah it says paint on the side so you know that it's paint so that's how jamie enters our story as x-men fans and it's a very memorable debut which for american readers this is his debut issue I mentioned that it does two clever things. And one is that in breaking his mind and making him like this unmoored psychopath with no understanding of really what's going on around him, Claremont unburdens him from being the very serious villain that he was in that Captain Britain story, which is helpful. It's like Mr. Sinister. If a character is ridiculous enough, it no longer feels tacky to be dealing with a character who is connected to real human atrocities right like if they are a cartoon Mm -hmm. the red skull to me is a cartoon character you know it's different from a story that's about very down-to-earth grounded nazism and i think that that's smart the other thing that he does here is because he can't use jim jaspers anymore he gives jamie jim jaspers's reality warping power but so that it's not just a cheap copy 
it's played very differently. The quantum string stuff that Jamie does, it's very visually distinctive, but it's also functionally very different from what Jim does. Jim is reality cancer, as Saturnine puts it. Things just kind of bleed out from him and the world is deformed and altered in his wake. Jamie makes very deliberate decisions by pulling on things. Mm -hmm. It's just that because he is mad, his logic is not logical to us. And I think that speaks to where Claremont and Moore were respectively at that time where I think Claremont needs that really like tactile sense of even if the tethers connecting these characters are kind of intangible or, you know, metaphysical, they're there. Jamie's not just making shit happen. He's sculpting in a way or deforming in this very like, like haptic sense. Yeah. Whereas Jim Jasper's is ideation. It's not as all in with the western esotericism as more will obviously get much later right but it is more of this like conceptual thread well it's kind of from hell right like if we're gonna go to a place of alan moore like it's sort of predicting that and like the way that gulls for listeners from hell is alan moore's original work about jack the ripper and it uses certain conspiracy theories about jack the ripper being a cover-up by the british crown to examine the character of Queen Victoria's physician, William Gull, as in this story being the Ripper. But it shows the Ripper murders as being part of an occult ritual that Gull is performing to try and shape the future. Jim Jaspers is like that. Mm -hmm. Jim Jaspers is trying to affect the world around him for the purposes of domination and corruption jamie's motivation is hedonism Mm -hmm. he is the libertine character in the way that you're identifying as something that a lot of the existential and postmodern writers were interested in something that desaad and people like that were very interested in in earlier times the idea of the aristocrat who is so privileged that everything around him becomes i mean It's Epicureanism, right? Like it goes all the way back Mm -hmm. to ancient Mm -hmm. times. There's all kinds of shit that you can point to, but he only does things that amuse or delight him or bring him comfort or pleasure. And that is Claremont building on not only his initial presentation when he created the character of Jamie as like a famous playboy race car driver who was a nice guy, but like that was his deal. And then the way Delano wrote it as like the kind of criminal who's in it for gratification, Mm -hmm. not to achieve a base of power, to get money and women and drugs and have a fun time. That makes them very functionally different as characters in a way that's useful now that Jim Jaspers is also a character who can exist again in X-Men stories. By the time Claremont's back for Reload, he uses Jamie and Jim in those stories and they don't feel like the same characters. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a testament to how specific this is. But Jamie Braddock is scary. He's like a spider. I mean, the way he moves is sort of spidery and then the threads around him are always like a web. And then there is an implied sort of, he's not a rapey character. But there is an abject, frightening sexuality to him always. I was thinking about this 
You know what I think part of it is? At this point, I think in Western superhero comics, and I might be wrong, and you know, there's exceptions like Neil Adams. If a male character is hairy, that's signifying something. Yeah, there's a virility, there's a sexual... Famously, John Byrne has complained that the inkers on his X-Men work made all the men look gay. And what he (laughs) means by that is that they overdid the chest and body hair. (laughs) Now, I, all my life, was crediting John Byrne with awakening my homosexuality, and I always thought that was ironic, given what a famous homophobic transphobe John Byrne is. But, turns out, I have the anchors to thank for that because yes, even in the seventies, especially in the eighties, by this point, proper male sexuality is like very buffed and waxed. Mm -hmm. Even in like gay porn, it's not Joe Gage trucking company is sorry. This is not a history of gay porn podcast, but like we're now looking at the very blonde plucked buffed thing. Davis is interesting on that score because he always gives Brian Braddock a little bit of chest hair, Mm -hmm. but it's not like Jamie. Jamie Mm -hmm. is virile in a weird, scary, unkempt sort of way that makes him look like a 70s porn star. Yeah. And that feels very out of place in the smooth 80s vibe of the rest of this, especially because we're going into the 90s now where like everyone on TV had their chest waxed. Yeah. You know, like it's just a very different energy. Like if a Mark Bagley Spider-Man takes his shirt off, he just looks like Spider-Man with no shirt on. Yeah, completely hairless. Jamie looks naked. He looks nude. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's like there's something more naked about in fact honestly like the thong makes him look more nude than if he were nude mm-hmm. my brother and i actually were talking about this once with the arkham video games design of poison ivy he was saying and my brother is like me but straight if you have to imagine my brother my brother actually i didn't used to ever mention my brother on the show because he's a private person but he told me over the holidays that i'm allowed to Funny Goldsmith family lore for people who might be intrigued. He is better known to some on the internet as DMC Redgrave. He wrote a lot of analysis of the video game Bloodborne, and he's kind of known in like gaming spaces. But he's a brilliant guy. To me, he will always be like my baby brother. So, you know, whatever. But point is, we are always told by people who are his friends or my friends who meet one or the other of us, wow, your brother is just you but straight or you but gay. So it is funny to like look at him and see what could have been. The reason I say this is because that reaction that I have to Jamie where I'm like, this feels sexual in a way that's like weirder than if he were just nude yeah, is exactly what my brother said about that design of Poison Ivy in those games. He was like, Poison Ivy is usually just naked or like walking around with leaves or whatever, but they gave her this like sexy red silk top with no pants. And that makes her look so much more naked in a way that mm-hmm. is... Mm-hmm kind of off-putting to him he was just like you don't have to do that you know she was already sexy but now it feels kind of porny i think with jamie that's done on purpose yeah he is supposed to make you very uncomfortable and he does i think now might be a good time actually for us to do the cerebro character file because jamie has now become the character in our ongoing imagination and honestly 
after Claremont and Davis Excalibur, it's a weird little road to Krakoa. So I think that yeah. we're going to talk about the funny stuff, but not dwell probably too much on the first fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think now is a good time to pause. I will take you through Jamie Braddock's complete publication history from Captain Britain number nine in 1976 up to where he is going into Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain number one in 2023. And then we will come back for more with Dr. Holly Raymond. We will talk about all of the much lighter and funnier and less serious stories with Jamie Braddock that will be more fun to talk about, but we had to get through the really rough stuff here. So I'm glad we did. But I think, I, I think Alan Davis is at such a height with some of this material. Oh, I think that these stories are incredible. Mm-hmm. It's just the content warning on this episode is mostly for the stuff yeah. we've now already covered. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like now he's yeah. kind of just fun. But the fucked up thing about Jamie Braddock is always that he's fun, but like also he has this despicable history. So mm-hmm. we needed to sift through it. But anyway, we're going to go through all of his stuff And then we will come back. We will talk about his stories in Claremont and Davis Excalibur, his stories in Claremont's Returns to the Franchise, which is mostly where he's popped up otherwise. His brief, strange, he's the best part of it, but it's a very, very strange story in Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force. And then about his time in the Krakoan Age. Then we will answer some fun questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. James Braddock Jr., called Jamie Braddock, or recently by the mutant name Monarch, is a memorable supporting character in the Excalibur sector of the X-Men franchise. Created by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimp and heavily reimagined by Jamie Delano and Alan Davis, Jamie is the playboy elder brother of aristocratic twins Brian and Betsy Braddock, 10 years their senior. Like Brian and Betsy, Jamie is half-otherworlder, but unlike them, he does not have an innate bond with the realm. He does, however, like Betsy, possess a mutant X-gene. Originating as a helpful supporting character for Brian's adventures as Captain Britain in the 70s, Jamie shifted over time into an insane reality-warping supervillain. After several failed attempts at rehabilitation over the years, the character achieved greater prominence than ever before in the Krakoa era as the first mutant king of Avalon. Jamie makes his debut in 1976's Captain Britain No. 9, Demon Fire, the second part of an arc about Brian's battle with the wicked Dr. Sin. Jamie's a famous race car driver, and his attempted assassination has compelled Brian and Betsy to travel home in her charter plane, only for Betsy, the pilot, to be telepathically attacked en route by Dr. Sin. Jamie's recovered from the previous attack and helps Brian and Betsy into Braddock Manor, where Betsy is mind-controlled by Dr. Sin into attacking her brothers with an axe. Brian's forced to reveal his identity as Captain Britain to save Jamie, and Jamie begins helping Brian's superheroics out where he can. Shortly thereafter, he and Betsy are kidnapped by the Red Skull, and Brian teams up with Captain America to rescue them. During this adventure, Betsy learns the truth as well. For the rest of the 70s stories, Jamie and Betsy recur to provide exposition or chat with Brian about his latest Captain Britain dilemma. Jamie last appears in this capacity in 1977's Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain 243. After a long absence from publication, Jamie returns in 1985 under writer Jamie Delano and artist Alan Davis. We learn that Jamie's disappeared during a race across the African continent. He calls Braddock Manor to announce he's the hostage of Doc Crocodile, Prince of Mbangawi, and begs Brian to rescue him. Brian, who's currently on the outs with his government liaisons at the RCX and his sister Betsy, travels to East Africa with his new paramour, the elemental empath Megan. 
In a series of terrifying visions, Doc Croc and his witch woman show Brian a series of visions detailing Jamie's horrific international crimes, particularly human trafficking for profit. They'd been misled by the RCX to believe Brian was in league with his brother, but the witch woman is able to discern Brian's innocence. Repulsed by Jamie's crimes, Brian abandons him to face execution in Mbangawi. Four years later, in 1989, Jamie's creator Chris Claremont and longtime steward Alan Davis bring Jamie back in issue 15 of their new title Excalibur, a UK-set spin-off of the X-Men franchise featuring Brian Braddock and Megan. The crooked banker Nigel Frobisher, working on behalf of Courtney Ross, hires the alien mercenaries TechNet to rescue Jamie Braddock from Mbangawi, where he's still imprisoned by Doc Croc. While they're successful, it's immediately apparent that Jamie has completely lost his mind during his prolonged torture by the witch woman. Jamie's psychotic break has also catalyzed his extremely powerful mutant power, the ability to observe the quantum threads of reality and rearrange them to his liking. Jamie teleports them all to England. He now believes all existence is his own lucid dream, but his new abilities easily overpower the entire tech net. Nigel Frobisher arrives, eager to bring this new asset to Courtney. As always, with these characters, a brief sidebar to explain that Opal Lunasatyr 9 is an evil alternate version of the Omniversal Magistrix Opal Lunasatyr 9, and both characters are alternate versions of Earth 616's Courtney Ross, Brian's college girlfriend, who is Nigel's boss. Satyr 9, the evil one, murdered and replaced Courtney Ross early in the run of Excalibur, so when I talk about Courtney here, I am talking about the evil imposter Courtney. Go back to the Saturnine episode if you're confused, because fair. Meanwhile, Excalibur are being shunted across different realities during the story arc The Cross-Time Caper. On one of these Earths, an anime-inspired world where a culture is based around race car driving, Brian and his teammates are surprised by this world's Jamie and his strange reality-warping powers. Jamie battles Brian, Megan, and Rachel Summers, but is defeated when Kitty Pride accidentally finds her way back to Earth-616, where she confronts our Jamie. 616 Jamie is somehow in control of the Jamie on the alternate Earth, and when Kitty orders the psychotic Jamie, his mind broken to a state of childhood by torture, to go to bed, the world around Excalibur fades away. It appears this entire world was a pocket dimension created by Jamie himself, and not a true alternate Earth. Excalibur remained trapped on their tour of different realities, while Kitty, separated from the team, falls under the spell of Courtney Ross, who begins grooming her for some purpose. Jamie, meanwhile, collaborates with Nigel to capture the female crime boss, the Vixen, whom Jamie transforms into his new pet fox. He warps reality to give Nigel the ability to shapeshift into the Vixen, much to Nigel's dismay, and explains that this is how Nigel will control the Vixen's operations on behalf of Jamie and Courtney. Lonely and unhappy in what he still believes to be a strange dream about his childhood homeland, Jamie resurrects a simulacrum of Emma Collins, the deceased Braddock family servant who'd helped raise him and the twins. In Excalibur 27, Real People, he meddles in one of Excalibur's adventures from afar by using a television to warp reality around them, but is outsmarted by Nightcrawler. He vows to truly take Excalibur as his toys, but this is the last Jamie story before Chris Claremont abruptly departs the X-Men franchise after 16 years. Two years later, after returning to draw and write Excalibur, Alan Davis wraps up the Jamie and Courtney storylines in a two-parter over Excalibur 55 and 56, in which Brian and Betsy host a dinner party at Braddock Manor that's attacked by Jamie and infiltrated by Courtney's soldiers. Jamie murders Excalibur's ally, Brigadier Alisand Stewart, while Courtney reveals her true nature as Satyr 9 and places Brian under mind control. Jamie, who still believes everyone around him is simply part of his dream, twists Betsy and the rest of Excalibur into dreadful shapes, but is eventually overpowered by Megan, whose shapeshifting power and fey nature make her resistant to his reality warp. 
Satyr 9 orders Brian to kill Megan, which enables him to break the mind control and fight back, and Betsy's able to render Jamie comatose with a psychic knife, the focused totality of her psychic power. Satyr 9 and her soldiers escape with Jamie's unconscious body, and Brian vows to avenge the murder of Courtney Ross, but this plot is not revisited again before Davis's second departure from the title with issue 67. Somehow, still comatose, Jamie is now a patient on Muir Island by the 1994 Excalibur annual two years later. After getting lost in the time stream, Brian, now calling himself Britannic, don't worry about it, it doesn't last, has experienced a precognitive vision showing a rehabilitated heroic Jamie will be key to saving the world. In the story, the interpretation interpretation of dreams written by Richard Ashford. Brian and Betsy team up in an effort to heal Jamie telepathically, but this leads to a big sibling brawl on the astral plane. This story establishes that Jamie's evil deeds were in part motivated by his crippling gambling addiction, which got him deep into debt to organized crime syndicates. Betsy's finally able to help Jamie begin healing by creating a false memory for him, one in which the twins had made him feel more loved by them in childhood. She leaves Jamie to his sleep, hoping that his brain will slowly reconstruct itself. Ten years later, Chris Claremont returns to Uncanny X-Men in 2004, and Jamie Braddock begins appearing to Rachel Summers in a series of strange and obscure visions. After Betsy, who'd been killed a few years earlier in Claremont's Extreme X-Men, is mysteriously resurrected, Jamie begins appearing to her, too, maneuvering her and Rachel together. This storyline does not resolve before the 2005 company-wide event, House of M, in which the Scarlet Witch's reality cancer threatens to destroy Otherworld and all the Earths that spin around it. Saturnine attempts to destroy Earth-616 to cut the cancer out, but Jamie suddenly appears before her and Brian and destroys her earth nullifying machine. As the reality alters, Betsy and Rachel have an adventure together in the new timeline, where Brian and Megan are king and queen of England and Rachel is Princess Betsy's bodyguard. After entering the white-hot room, the core of the Phoenix Force, Betsy and Rachel are startled by another apparition of Jamie, who explains to them that he has bound their fates together for a purpose. Jamie, like Betsy and Rachel, is one of only roughly 200 mutants worldwide to retain his powers after the House of M warp ends in the Decimation. He reappears a year later in Uncanny X-Men 472, explaining that he was the one who resurrected Betsy, and that he altered her so she cannot be impacted by reality warping ever again. He did this so that she might battle the First Fallen, an ancient cosmic entity once contacted by Jamie and his old school chums, a clique called the Forsaken. This, uh... This story does not really make any sense, absolutely does not matter, and Holly and I are going to get into it after the break, so just sit tight. This arc does significantly reframe Jamie as an anti-hero, greatly downplaying the severity of his crimes depicted in earlier versions of his backstory, and ends with his heroic sacrifice to defeat the First Fallen and send everyone home. Six years later, Jamie returns without explanation in the very strange Otherworld arc of Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force, a book about a Black Ops team featuring Betsy. Betsy's summoned to Otherworld by Brian, its current ruler, who needs her help fighting back a demon sorcerer called the Goat and his armies. By Brian's side is Jamie, who's apparently been completely rehabilitated, regained his sanity, and dedicated himself to serving the Captain Britain Corps off-panel. Brian and Jamie attempt to prosecute Betsy's lover Phantom X, do not worry about it, and are stung when Betsy helps Phantom X escape the Starlight Citadel. Eventually, Betsy realizes the goat is a future version of Jamie, transformed after a demonic pact, and she tells Brian the only way to stop the carnage is to kill Jamie now and prevent the goat from ever existing. When Brian refuses to do it, Betsy telepathically assumes control of his body and snaps Jamie's neck herself. Six years after that, in 2018, Jamie's alive again without explanation and battles Natasha Romanova, the Black Widow, in Jerry Duggan's Countdown to Infinity Black Widow one-shot. 
He's using dark magic now and has ensorcelled some children to do his bidding. Natasha guts him and leaves him to bleed to death, which apparently he does, because in the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Jamie is a major recurring character in Excalibur by Teenie Howard and Marcus Toe, about Betsy Braddock's adventures as she takes on the role of Captain Britain when Brian is compromised by Morgan Le Fay. Jamie's resurrected by the power of the circuit called the Five as a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Granted amnesty for his past crimes, Jamie helps Betsy and her unlikely ally, the immortal mutant Apocalypse, depose Morgan and free Brian from her control. With Morgan imprisoned, Jamie assumes the vacant throne of Avalon and becomes its king. As the first mutant to be so crowned, he declares Avalon's alliance with Krakoa. This doesn't make him any less meddlesome, and he causes no end of trouble for Betsy and Saturnine when a pocket dimension he creates ends up activating several false alternate Captains Britain. These captains are imprisoned at the Starlight Citadel, but during the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords, they escape and attack Jamie. After that's handled, Jamie helps his sister evade Saturnine's machinations and claim the Starlight Sword, which forever binds her to the role of Captain Britain, and vice versa. Brian, meanwhile, draws the Sword of Might and becomes Captain Avalon, defender of his family. Jamie also makes a few memorable appearances in Hellions by Zeb Wells during this event, bartering with Mr. Sinister and his operatives. When Betsy is apparently killed in the Ten of Swords tournament, Jamie is sad, though he admits he bet on her opponent, Iska the Unbeaten. Once the event concludes, with Betsy officially considered missing and therefore ineligible for resurrection by the Five, Jamie calls in a favor for Mr. Sinister to have a clone body of her created, to house her psyche if it can be found. This body is briefly possessed by the psychic entity Malice, but with the help of Kanon, the new Psylocke, we don't have time right now, the real Betsy is able to return to Earth-616. After participating alongside the other Omega level mutants in the terraforming of Mars, Jamie is deposed from the throne of Avalon by the end of Howard's Excalibur, when the forces of Merlin and King Arthur assert Arthur's claim as the rightful heir, and begin a campaign of extermination against witch-breed, mutants, in Otherworld. In the follow-up miniseries Knights of X by Teenie Howard and Bob Quinn, Merlin and Arthur are defeated, but Arthur, now gravely injured and understanding he was wrong, remains on the throne, assisted by his witch-breed son Mordred and Brian as Captain Avalon. Where all this leaves Jamie isn't entirely clear yet, as the new series Betsy Braddock Captain Britain by Teeny Howard and Vasco Georgiev begins this week. But idle hands are the devil's workshop, and Jamie Braddock rarely stays bored for long. X-Men, X-Men. DC Comics' Spencer Ackerman, what are you doing here? Connor, after five Cerebro guest appearances, I recognize that this is not an Amanda Waller podcast. But it should be sometimes, a little bit. I am here to tell the Zala gang about my DC Comics debut, Waller vs. Wildstorm, in your hands on March 21st. This is the end of the Cold War as the pathway to power for Amanda Waller intended as her year one. What we're also doing is setting Waller's first year in the context of the Wildstorm universe. Our principal adversary for Amanda is the leader of Stormwatch. A co-write with fellow friend of the pod, Evan Narcisse. That's right. Who's the artist on this book? The great Spanish artist, Jesus Marino. At the height of his powers, How are you bringing your experience as a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist to bear on this series? To put some pressure on a conception that I've encountered in my journalism work on national security over the years, America is a pin and the world a grenade. 
we're going to use one of my absolute favorite characters in comics, the spy master Amanda Waller, to put some real stress on that idea. She's one of my favorites, too. And I know that you, like me, are a big Greg Rucka fan. You and Greg have actually become friends. I'm excited to see you pick up a character that he did so much incredible work with in Checkmate. Absolutely. Also, his work on Lois Lane in his great maxi series with Mike Perkins, another real big influence on this. Wildstorm is a line with a rich history of its own before it was folded into the DC universe. How did you go about making characters from Stormwatch, The Authority, Wildcats fit into the specific DC story that you're telling here? It was a perfect fit and a very natural one because the Wildstorm universe, the main characters aren't so much like superheroes and supervillains, but rival intelligence agencies and corporations. And that's something that my journalism has always been about. I really wanted to bring that into my comics work and the Wildstorm universe was so naturally a vehicle for that. Well, there's no one I'd rather see write about Stormwatch and or Amanda Waller than you, frankly. So I'm very excited to see what you and Evan have come up with. Waller versus Wildstorm number one hit stores March 21st. Zalagang, if you're listening, it would be awesome if you would pre-order that comic. First week sales are huge. Spencer, when you told me about this pitch a long time ago, I was over the moon excited for you and to read it. And I can't believe that so soon it will be in our hot little hands. If you've enjoyed my episodes on Cerebro about Beast, about Magneto, about Professor X, about Callisto, and unfortunately about Fenris. Not unfortunately, <laughs> that episode's great. Waller versus Wildstorm across its four issues really benefited a tremendous amount from our conversations on Cerebro and the Zalagang reaction to them. So thank you. Well, thank you, Spencer. I can't wait to read it. I know not everyone who is a Marvel fan also reads DC Comics, but frankly, you should. It never hurt anybody. And maybe if this book does well, you'll get to see him writing some of your favorite Marvel characters as well. Who knows what the future holds? There is no destiny. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that accounting of the travails of Jamie Braddock. Holly, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to not talk about slavery. Yeah, no, I'm glad also because... Here's the thing, guys. This is fundamentally a comedic podcast, and it's hard to do bits about a British aristocrat doing human trafficking. So I'm glad we're through that part. If I can peel back the curtain a little. A few months ago, when you reached out and asked me if I wanted to come and do the podcast, you asked for a list of, I think it was like a dozen odd characters. And I overthought it. I have OCD. I overthink. Big time same, as you know, from listening to the show. Yeah. Yeah. I sent you, I like to be careful about negative self-talk, but I feel secure calling it something of a dog shit list. Like, (laughs) I seriously thought that people would be like, oh, it's four hours about Di Thomas. Mm -hmm. It was like a mix of people that could not sustain an episode. And people that were kind of swinging for the fences. You came back and suggested Jamie. And the slavery arc looms so large that at first I was like, that is a tall order. Sure. But rereading his entire history, 
I think there is such a sharp shift in register after that initial kind of reintroduction. Yeah, it's like right at this moment that we're at now, which is why I was like, yeah. let's do the break now so that everybody can like go, you know, smoke a joint or like mm -hmm. take a walk or something and then come back for the fun stuff. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I do think that part of what is important about this character is that like he is fun, but there is something deeply sinister beneath the surface. Yeah. Particularly for this genre. I think it adds something important to the register that Captain Britain and his whole orbit is in. Mm-hmm. Because you need that sort of like unsealiness. You need that sort of what do you call him? The wild green man, you know? Yeah. He has something to him that is untamed and wild and inhuman. Mm -hmm. And I think that for that to work you need that initial story where he is the most human kind of villain. Mm -hmm. Because the Jamie after Witch Woman breaks his mind is a very different character. But it's because, like, when I said earlier that Doc Croc and the Witch Woman are the good guys in that story, I don't approve of torturing someone into a state of insanity. Sure. But do I get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get what they were doing. The, like, specific kind of, like, physiological iconography of that initial story aside, I think there's no reason Doc Croc couldn't be, like, a, a usable character. I think when he shows up in Astonishing, he's not quite a usable character. I'm going to put that solidly at the feet of Warren Ellis and say yeah. that someone else could try again. Yeah. Like, if he showed up in Captain Britain. Yeah, that would be totally doable, I think. Yeah. I do think that you would want to make sure that he and particularly the witch woman, if they ever appeared again, were drawn in a more human looking way. Yeah. But he's also like part crocodile man. So it's like, <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. I'm actually not sure. Does he predate when Killer Croc started looking reptile-y? Yeah, I would have to check, but it's a similar vibe for sure. Yeah. Anyway, with that in the rear view... The next time Jamie appears is actually, it's the most abrupt tonal shift you can imagine because it's technically not our Jamie, but the multiversal Jamies are connected. The Jamie that we meet next is part of Cross Time Caper. It's Excalibur 18. This is the anime issue, like the two-parter here. It's a parody of Dirty Pear, which is an extremely funny thing to, ha like, again, Chris Claremont is crazy for this, but, like, Dirty Pear was a very recent manga at the time. It is about these two hot chicks, Ki and Yuri, who are bounty hunters. They're intergalactic mercenaries who keep the peace. They are called the Lovely Angels, but because they inevitably cause a huge amount of trouble whenever they appear, they are more popularly known as the Dirty Pair. And in this story we meet these two characters inspired by them who are called the Dirty Angels. So it's not, you know, a subtle homage. Dirty Pair were light novels at first, but then they became manga, anime. It's a whole franchise. The original light novels, I think, came out in like 1980, and then the anime ran in 1985, the first one anyway. 
I'm not like a huge dirty pair aficionado, so I don't know which like OVA or series it's in, but there is a very iconic episode of Dirty Pair about a trans woman criminal where the fact that she's a trans woman is really secondary. And when it comes up in the plot, the main characters, like the dirty pair who are these cis women are like, oh my God, like one in 10 people changes their sex these days. We live in the future, you know, <laughs> which is like a very yeah. funny moment. And I had, I had no familiarity with this property until, you know, we were talking about Jamie. For all I knew, these were kind of just very broad anime pastiches. But like, it is kind of an extraordinary thing to see. In the middle of the 80s in Japan. I mean, it's pretty wild. And yeah, what I love about that is that like, did Chris Claremont watch that episode? I think he absolutely did. Like, it, it just feels like such a Chris Claremont moment because this is at the same time that the Nigel Frobisher plot is happening. And like, Chris's obsession with transformation, transgression, reshaping of the body. You know, I try not to psychoanalyze creators on this show, but it's just clearly mm -hmm. something that really interests him. And so Dirty Pair being also like a trans-friendly anime is a funny side note to all of this. I think Jamie is a trans ally. Oh, for sure. Much like Spiral, Jamie gives the people what they need. I think that if the body shop isn't in network... Your provider will send you to Jamie Bradley. Yeah, yeah no... It's not going to be as clean as Spiral's work. One of my tits is yelling, my arm is just Nightcrawler. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also yelling, but in general, I'm satisfied. Yeah. And it was all nothing out of pocket. Well, yeah. I mean, like you regaled the Discord with the story of your tit installation for mm -hmm, a couple mm -hmm. months because... The hoops that one has to jump through to get a pair of titties in this country, yeah. this free country. And Jamie Braddock could just snap his fingers and give you a bodacious rack. So there's that. He could. And he does do that for Nigel Frobisher, which we'll get into in just a moment. Yeah. But first, there's this sequence. So the Dirty Pair storyline is mostly like a side story with Nightcrawler, which like makes sense because he's the one who's like the swashbuckly whatever. The main thrust of the story is twofold one is kitty getting back to earth 616 and then getting stuck there which is where she will mm -hmm. fall prey to courtney ross's manipulations but then also megan and rachel who have this weird bond that's never quite explained in these stories later alan davis in his run will intimate that what it is is megan's empathy picking up the phoenix and also megan's lack of psychic shielding letting rachel in very easily so their minds tend to like interface mm -hmm. but that leads to a really fun adventure here where rachel telepathically transmits her memories of the X-Men to Megan so that Megan can shapeshift into all of the X-Men in the process of fighting in this adventure. There's a very memorable moment that has been shared a lot on social media over the years where Megan turns into Wolverine, but like in her sexy green low-cut Megan costume. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they're in this alternate Earth, and Brian has immediately been overpowered by Jamie. Jamie, in this reality, is his playboy debonair race car driving self, but has the powers of the crazy Jamie that we've now met a few issues prior. But Brian has no idea that Jamie has any kind of superpowers, so he's not prepared for Jamie to knock him on his ass. 
Right. And kidnap Megan, who he mind controls and puts into his convertible and starts driving around with her. I think there's such an interesting kind of, and I, I'm I'm a little split right now because I'm just trying to find out who penciled this issue. It's Dennis Jensen. He's a guest penciler. I had the epics and then the, the omnis came back out and I gave my epics away. It's interesting, actually. The first issue is that guy and then the second one is Rick Leonardi. And the Leonardi is, you know, it's a much more conventional looking issue. <laughs> yeah, that's the one where Megan turns into all the different shapes and whatnot. Like that's Rick yeah. Leonardi having fun doing an anime pastiche. This first one is uh, is Dennis Jensen and is less good visually. I mean, part of the research of just kind of like trying to go from not knowing what Dirty Pair was to being able to like at least keep up. <laughs> I found out that like, Adam Warren, like a young Adam Warren, has been doing like original stories with those characters. Hmm. And so a lot of what feels like a really clumsy kind of like hybridization between like an 80s anime style and like Western pencils, that's kind of still there in the early Warren stuff where like the women have that very like 80s OVA type look to them. Where it's more Disney house style inspired because yeah, that's where yeah. like a lot of the anime style derived from originally itself homaging Western animation, right? So it's sort yeah. of this feedback loop. And my, my anime knowledge is very thin on the ground just because I'm pretty pretentious in my mid thirties, but it's only softened with time. Whereas <laughs> I feel like in high school, I was like, I can read Grant Morrison or I can know about anime, but I cannot afford to do I both. I can't do both of those things. No, that's fair. I uh, I was a big Sailor Moon fan and then like I loved Evangelion and a couple other things. But my exposure to anime as a young person was more like the anime adjacent worlds of like JRPGs and video games and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, I did, for me, Ava didn't count because it was like, I am watching this too understand xenogears better right like it's that this is the xenogears ova right so yeah i see you i respect you i honor you the few the proud the people obsessed with xenogears we matter a ton and uh i value our experience if anything we matter we matter maybe more than most people i agree actually you know so uh i think that that's that's true and we should we should honor that anyway so in this first issue kitty manages to tap into the local TV station on this alternate Earth. It's a weird Earth where they are constantly doing a global Grand Prix. So Jamie, obviously, is a huge celebrity because, like, if your whole world is based around, like, Snowpiercer style, just shoot the race cars around the globe again and again and again and again, then top race car drivers are going to be people you really like. Jamie now has Megan in his clutches, there's an interesting moment here that I remember I sent you a screen cap when I was going through Unlimited because I had forgotten this bit from Kitty. She's thinking as she watches TV, Brian's big brother Jamie, or rather this world's incarnation of him, seems to be numero uno among the drivers. Wonder what Brian has against him. Sounded like serious bad blood. Is it some kind of boy thing? Because Bri's twin sister seemed to like Jamie okay when I knew her with the X-Men. Right. And that I think is really interesting because Kitty 
and Betsy overlapped in the Xavier mansion for like roughly one week, like mutant massacre. That's it. So that means that at some point in that time, now this is in part that Claremont loves for every character to know every character. Mm -hmm. As we just saw today, as we're recording this extreme X-Men volume three, number three came out and we suddenly were faced with Sanzu and soul scream, the Galera associates of beastie brute, which means, um, Struggle. It does mean struggle. It means struggle. We were informed that previously. But, you know, does every character in the comic immediately know that Sanzu is the leader of Galera and that Soul Scream is sure to be close behind her? Yes. Do we know how they know that? No. Right. Is that just pure Chris Claremont right to the dome? Absolutely. So we are to assume that Betsy and Kitty had some kind of conversation about Betsy's brother, Jamie. What I like about this is that it shows us that Brian didn't tell Betsy about what Jamie had done. Right, which is interesting because this issue comes out... This is 1990, I want to say. Yeah, and the Acts of Vengeance dream sequence... Has already happened. Where, you know, frankly, if I had never read the Delano stuff, I would think that that was a remarkably sweet depiction of like siblings yeah actually let's so, like when we're when we're done with this particular story we'll go back to that because that's mm-hmm. coming out right at the same time basically yeah. as this is the key that breaks the lock which is the story where betsy is transformed into an asian woman for the next 30 years but in that issue which is an incredible character study of betsy braddock there is a really complex series of dream sequences one of which prominently features jamie and so We'll get to that in a sec because it's being published pretty much simultaneously to this story. And yeah, I just think it's interesting that like it was international news that Jamie had disappeared in Africa. Right. Brian went there, found out about his crimes, left him there to die, reunited with Betsy, who had become Captain Britain. Then Betsy gets her eyes ripped out by Slaymaster. Yeah. And I get that a lot was going on. Yeah, I was going to say she might have just been busy. But it is crazy that Brian didn't tell her about any of this. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you raised the really good point that Claremont characters have sort of like Claremont osmosis. Yeah, they just absorb facts, you know? They all just know Misty Knight. They all just know Jessica Drew when they need to. Exactly. Now, maybe Betsy just told Kitty a story about her childhood and didn't mention that Jamie then grew up to be like, a human track. <laughs> like it's entirely possible right. that Betsy just omitted that part, but it's just an interesting beat to me that Kitty has heard of Jamie from Betsy, but doesn't know why Brian wouldn't like Jamie. Yeah. I think this kind of like instant transmission of knowledge is so prevalent in him that when there are these communication gaps, they're almost always a thing. Like, uh, there's that period kind of early-ish and uncanny where half the team thinks the other half is dead. Mm-hmm. And it's drawn out in this really interesting way. Because when he wants to sort of dwell in that space of people having kind of overlapping information, I think it's something that fascinates him. It's just not a story we get here because he, you know, he leaves. Because I think in the 2004 stuff, too, one of the most consistent things with Claremont's Jamie is that Betsy loves him. Yeah. I feel like for him, there would definitely be a story to Brian telling her this. Yes. And I it's almost like he 
waited to tell it and then never got to because by the mm-hmm. time Davis like the next time Brian and Betsy are on panel together I think is the ghost of Braddock Manor story yep. in 92 and by that At point, which point she just... Betsy just already knows all about Jamie and his crimes so it does feel like one of those things that I mean because Claremont was clearly setting up a plot with Jamie here that doesn't happen so because he didn't know he was leaving. I mean, that is the right. thing about this specific era of the X-Men in like 1990, 1991. We do get an interesting window here. It's the alternate Jamie, but we do see that our Jamie is puppeting him somehow. So we can assume that they're similar Jamies, right? And when he has Megan sort of forced to sit with him as arm candy, he says to her, What did Brian ever do to me to make me hate him so, hmm? Other than be born. Him and Betsy, the terrific twins, as though I was the prototype, the test bed where mummy and daddy made all their mistakes before getting things perfect the second go-round. The irony is, the brats worship me, and why not? I'm the champion. As he's saying this, this is also, like, just a fast... Because Megan is doing her sort of like uncontrollable shape-shifting thing here. She turns into Brian as he's talking about Brian, which I find to be... Sometimes I just think about Megan turning into Brian. Yeah. It's... Anyway. <laughs> well, because the, the, the very... the very I don't even want to... I can't explain really the mechanics of this issue, but... Rachel and Megan are also kind of body swapping. Yeah, they're well, they're connected, and then he per, he's able to see by looking at the strings of reality around Megan because, like, suddenly he's like, "Wait, wait, wait! I didn't ask you to turn to a redhead." And she turns into Rachel for a second, <laughs> and but that's interesting because it implies he did ask her to turn into Brian, right? Like, there's there's a lot of yeah. weird shit going on here. But when suddenly she's a redhead with like a mullet, he's like, "Wait, who the fuck is that?" He looks at their strings and he goes, "My special." reveals two matrices of energy where there should be only one. Megan's I'm already familiar with. Let's see what happens when I grab hold of the other. And the answer is, like, nothing good, right? Yeah. He reaches through and grabs Rachel, which, you know, doesn't go well. But then the Dirty Angels burst through in their car. Jamie Braddock, this is the Dirty Angel Strike Force, a fine pair. In the name of Chief Turin, you're under arrest. And he's like, can this wait? I'm busy right now. This issue is mostly just silliness, but... The confrontation between them is the first time Brian has seen Jamie since Africa. What he says is about their relationship on our Earth. Brian says, You dare call yourself civilized? I can't imagine you qualifying as even human. You were everything a younger brother dreams of. The kind of man I wanted to be and knew I never could. I worshipped you, Jamie, but it was all a lie. My idol, the world champion racer, was really a common gunrunner, a slaver, grounding his fortune in the abject misery of others. How could you? And Jamie, blood pouring from his mouth because Brian's been beating the shit out of him, goes, I wanted to, Brian, old boy. It gave me pleasure. That, I think is the key by the time kitty arrives on our earth she finds herself in our jamie's flat in chelsea the one that we heard so much about whenever betsy would be like borrowing his in the 70s like borrowing his cars or they're watching the news there or whatever which like in the in the 70s it seems like such a kind of pg version hip pad you know yeah like it seems like a cool aspirational place and it's so kind of shabby here 
here it's like dark and dilapidated, but I think that's because no one's been there in years, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this moment that's interesting. Well, first of all, Kitty wakes up in a pair of Chinese silk pajamas that are said to be Betsy's because it's from Betsy's room. Like she has a room in Jamie's flat for when she's visiting. And this is at the same time that the Lady Mandarin story is happening. So that's clearly meant to be like a wink. The more important thing is that she is awoken by Emma Collins. The Braddocks made a character from the older run. She basically raised the kids because their parents were, you know, aristocrats who were busy, but she's like the nanny. She was the charwoman and she's a sort of pleasing cockney stereotype sort of character. Very upstairs, downstairs kind of vibes. Right. She tells Kitty not to go upstairs because that's Jamie's room. Kitty phases up through the floor and finds our Jamie in his thong playing with X-Men figurines while the alternate Jamie is fighting Megan using the X-Men's powers. So, Which I think is such a smart way to kind of get away from the baggage of the Delano stuff. Because starting here for a while, he is infantile in a way that I think gives him this narrative dodge. Well, it's like the Gabby Holler defense. Like I said, it's like if you make mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. a baby, then how can he be responsible for the crimes he committed before you de-aged him? And what happens to him in his psychotic break is essentially that he becomes a child again. Mm-hmm. As we will learn in a later issue, Emma Collins is dead. Right. She died between the 80s stories. And now, and when Jamie came back, to London, he was like, that won't do at all. This is my dream and Emma should be here and brought her back, just like whipped her up. But it's not really her. It's like his idea of her, which is why she's very simple in the way that she interacts with people. It's an insane aristocrat's imagined version of the working class woman who helped raise him who he summons from the ether after her death to serve him and take care of him and coddle him like she did when he was a child. Which I think is consistent with how we see him sort of dealing with, not even dealing with, kind of fantasizing the role of women in his fantasy life. Mm -hmm. Because this is, compared to the Davis-Drawn issues, this is such a sort of sexless and anodyne story, I think by design. Where it's like he wants to be surrounded by sort of beautiful women. But he doesn't touch them. He doesn't want the no seatbelt sign in his passenger seat to go off. And he wants to talk to them about his brother. It feels so... If this story came out in like 2013, it would feel too on the nose about like certain discourses of like the incel. Sure. He wants to be taken care of by his nanny. He wants to sit there and so imagine a world where his hobby is deified and he can have anime babes. Right. And like the way that the story ends is fascinating to me because Kitty instinctively understands how to make this stop. Mm -hmm. She walks up behind him and says, young man, that is enough. Is this how you behave playing with toys till all hours of the night? And Jamie is embarrassed and looks up like, oh, my God. And she goes, it is well past your bedtime, Jamie Braddock. I want you undercover straight away. And he goes, yes, ma'am, and goes to sleep. When he falls asleep on her 616, the alternate Jamie and the whole insane world that Excalibur is stuck in starts to fade away. Mm -hmm. 
it underlines how infantile he now is, how childlike his logic is, how he believes that he's in his dream, but that doesn't mean that he can't be cowed by a parental figure suddenly, you know? Yeah. I think for Claremont, it matters that in his dreams, he chooses to be cruel. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter in quite the same way as someone, you know, like the Shadow King, who just right. makes that decision. No, it's much more playful. And as a result, it feels less evil. Right. He feels like one of those Star Trek aliens that turns out to have been a child of its species or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where it's like Trelane or one of the Qs or what? It's like, it's very that. I don't want to overgeneralize because I'm sure I'm forgetting some shit about Elias Bogan. But like, <laughs> I feel like especially before 1991, when he wants to have like a godlike antagonist, if it's a woman, the story is about their agency and the story is about their personhood. If it's a man, it's about they know not what they do. Like even Proteus is very much right. like this prepubescent child. Proteus is a child also who is not yeah. really responsible for what he does. And that's the tragedy of Proteus. But is also why you can have Proteus now on Krakoa be a character that we're supposed to like and identify with. Which is, I don't want to literally jump 21 years ahead. Yeah, no, but... I do think it's interesting that Proteus is on the five and Jamie, who can just bring people back from the dead, is kind of kept. Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think one is that they make a point of saying Proteus has been stabilized by the Xavier bodies that he's now inhabiting, like that what was causing his confusion has been resolved. So he is someone that they can reason with in a way that Jamie is too much of a wild card to reason with. I also think if you look at the history of Jamie bringing people back to life, it's his siblings specifically, mm -hmm. and then the false life that he gives the simulacrum of Emma Collins, who I don't think is actually back from the dead. You know what I mean? Did he bring Roma back or is that the other way around? I don't, I don't fucking know what's happening I in that story. I don't care, frankly, if we're going to keep it 100. So yeah. like, let's not worry. But uh, even then, like that would be because of like the Braddock connection to other. Like what I mean is I don't think Jamie Braddock can just like bring Wolverine back from the dead on a whim if he wants to. I think that he sure. has to have some kind of thread connecting him to the souls that he's manipulating. But that's my no prize. I think the other thing is, honestly, Teeny Howard had more interesting shit for him to do. Well, right. Like, the characters who are on the five are there because no one else had anything more interesting to do with them, right? Like, mm -hmm. because there are characters who could sub in for all of them. And in fact, now that Kieran Gillen has a story he wants to tell with Hope, she's doing a lot of <laughs> other stuff that has nothing to do with being on the five. Proteus is a character who doesn't have much going on, whereas Jamie had a lot of stuff that teeny wanted him to do an excalibur so it's just a functional thing on some level at the end of the day anyway back on our earth jamie and nigel go to meet with the vixen who is a lady crime lord she's an older woman with pink hair who wears men's suits she's a character from the 80s captain britain run can i say i would kill for the vixen to come back I would not be mad about that either. She's fun. I don't think they show up in this story, but she has like, her henchmen are always like these huge muscle guys with women's names. Yes. 
I mean, they are here, but like, I don't think she refers to them by names. The Vixen is just a weird little character who I would also like to see. This is her last like functional appearance though. Mm-hmm. Nigel's meeting with her and then introduces her to Jamie, who is like, walking around with his like weird puppet people gait in uh, his thong and she's like what the hell is this they announce that they're going to take over vixen's role in the london underworld so she has her minions like tommy gun them but jamie first turns nigel into like a ball of fluff that the bullets mm-hmm. go through and then turns the bullets into little tweety birds like, it's all a whole thing. He says, Braddock's the name, but you can call me Jamie. I'm the <coughs> nasty one. Reality's my game. I play with it, and the vixen's running away, and suddenly she begins to transform as the strings wrap around her into a little white fox. Pull the cosmic strings that bind everything together. Twist them, turn them, tie them, any way I please. Always wanted me own wee doggy. And he picks up the fox. So what if it's a fox? Shame this is all a dream. Well, maybe it's for the best. Nigel goes, we needed Vixen alive. She is. And human. Who's going to run a gang now, eh? And Jamie says, no problem, and reaches for Nigel. No, wait, what are you? Leave me out of this. Please stop. Don't. Jamie transforms Nigel into an exact replica of the Vixen, turns him into a woman. I feel like there's a miscommunication between the script and the page in this issue. Because he just kind of looks like, yeah, he's he's not the vixen, is he? The way that it works is that by thinking of her, he takes her form. He can switch back between them at will. So when they're walking to the car, he is the vixen. And then they get in the car. And once the partition goes up, he turns back into Nigel. Mm. Okay. And there's a great line from Nigel that's, how can women wear these shoes? The heels are murder. And it's like, stop complaining, Nigel. You'd love to wear these shoes. But I mean, again, I think there's something there. Oh, there is. It's a narrative I don't love. The sort of like force femme fetishistic narrative where it's like you have committed ills against women or, you know, discounted their experience. So now you will be kind of lamming into that shape. Yeah, which is... It's not, it's not not there with Nigel because he's, he's such a not not there. He's such a he's a huge misogynist. Yeah, yeah. It's not not there, but it's the joy boy thing that makes it work for me. Is the idea that this is something he's denying himself that he really wants, and that Jamie, who looks at the strings of causality, also knows that it's what he really wants, even if he doesn't want to be the vixen because mm-hmm. she's old and ugly, right? And also like somewhat somewhat fudgy. And yeah, Butch, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, she has huge lesbian vibes as a character also. And not in like a sexy Chris Claremont lesbian in a corset kind of way. In a like... Right, because initially Nigel is hot for Rachel. Yes. Who is at her sort of like peak dyke era. Yeah, although when he meets her, notably she's in her little red miniskirt. So it's like she's also kind of playing with it there. It's at the same time that Alistair Stewart is trying to get Rachel to date him and she's just mm-hmm. not interested. I mean, I think the fact that the vixen apparently does wear heels is interesting because you wouldn't know that from looking at her when she's walk because usually her feet aren't in the frame and she's wearing a men's suit all the time. So there's just a lot of interesting, like, gender weirdness going on here. And, like, again, I wouldn't say that Nigel Frobisher is, like, 
great trans rep, but like, I just, I think that this story is fascinating. I will claim her. Yeah. I just, I mean, you know, there's, there's just, you know, I think my initial kind of like reluctance with Emma is that Emma is too cool. So you like that Nigel is like the least cool. I like a weird little guy. I like a weird little he guy. He is a weird little guy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's also a character I think could come back in some way, but it would have to involve probably Jamie. He seems like a Paul Cornell kind of, kind of bloke. I think that the hesitation would be that if you bring him back now is the character a trans woman. Um, you know what I mean? Which like. Because be... like I do see, I see, I do see the objection that you kind of want more that aren't him. Right. So, like, maybe we give it a minute and we have more trans women in the Marvel Universe. We've got more than we've ever had before, but maybe a couple more before we bring back Nigella Frobisher living Mm -hmm. her truth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, Jamie keeps the vixen as his little pet now. And Nigel is going to act as the vixen when dealing with her criminal empire. Now is a good moment, I think, for us to dip back, because this, again, was happening at the same time, to Uncanny X-Men 256, the key that breaks the lock. Right. Just for that dream sequence, which is after we see Betsy and Brian as children fighting, it recharacterizes again, because, like, for American readers who had never read Captain Britain, the relationship between Brian and Betsy is kind of obscure, right? Because for most of the time that they've been in publication together, I mean, still up to this point that we're talking about, Brian believes she's dead after Fall of the Mutants. So that we'd only, in American comics, seen them interact twice in like two different annuals. So they're arguing, and then suddenly Jamie arrives, pulls up in a convertible with like a hussy in the passenger seat. (laughs) Betsy screams, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie. And he's like, hello, sis, Brian. And Brian is clearly not intrigued scene now this is all betsy's Mm -hmm. fantasy so it's not necessarily real but this is the dream sequence that betsy experiences while the hand is brainwashing her the whole issue is like a recap of betsy's entire life up to this point there's a very key sequence in terms of her role now where she's talking to storm and she is just like why was brian chosen to be captain britain instead of me it isn't fair it's all i ever wanted and he never wanted that life so that i always think is worth pointing out but here jamie is with this woman and betsy leaps into the car with him i saw you in the world driving championship you were magnificent of course could a braddock be anything else like my new toy She's all right. You've done better. And the hussy goes, which, is, which I think is really funny. It's, it's, it's a perfect, like, it's, it's a British a sitcom yeah. bit that's just really good and on point. Yeah. But I love your car, a Ferrari Testarossa. Wow. Got it from old Enzo himself, a token of his esteem. Care to take it for a spin? Oh, can I, Jamie? Please, can I? Jamie, dearest, you must be joking. This little slip of a baby, isn't she the cutest thing? How could she possibly handle such a brute of a car? And Betsy in this sequence is like 12, to be clear. (laughs) She's blonde. It's child Betsy. She has, I mean, not even 12, actually, because we see that she has a missing front tooth in a second. Jamie says, I'll work the pedals and gear shift, you steer. Righto, Jamie, this isn't funny. And Brian says, no offense, but I think I'll walk. 
pity you could have enjoyed the other lap. Factory specs say zero to 60 in 5.4 seconds. Figure you can top that. And we cut to Betsy who screams, hit it! And drives away into the distance, leaving Brian in the dust. And they go faster and faster and faster to 200 miles an hour. And the hussy is screaming and screaming in the back as she gets pitched into the back. And then when the Ferrari finally lands and pulls up outside the body shop. Right. Betsy is now an adult, still blonde, but in a sexy, insane cat suit. This is a Jim Lee issue. Yeah. She looks like Jim Lee, like... Um... Carol Danvers. She looks like Jim Lee yeah. drawing Carol Danvers as Ace, like as Wolverine's yeah. like projection of Carol. Mm-hmm. What's more interesting to me is that Jamie has transformed into Doug Ramsey. Or the babe has transformed. Oh my God, you're so right. She turned into Jamie. She's Jamie now. She and Jamie merge as they speed up. She gets out and with the feet up in the back, like Jamie's girlfriend is Doug. You drive like a maniac. We could have been killed. No, you're absolutely right. That's exact. I'm looking at the two pages now and that's the visual language of it. I've always found it super interesting. And I think this actually works with the Rob retcon, which is really kind of goofy that James Sr. does not have much interest in his kind of brunette, darker, thicker body hair son, this kind of like racialized air. Sure. Whereas Betsy cannot get away from this kind of blonde look fast enough. Yeah, she wants to escape the blonde, blue-eyed vibe that she was born with, to the point where in this story she's transformed into a person of color but like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the swarthy jamie is i mean he has a certain we talked about this with black tom too in the black tom episode there is a certain kind of look that's also a little bit what's going on being celtic and like other things that are not posh yeah right whereas brian and betsy are in anglo-saxon viking slash British thing going on, you know? They're very, especially in these flashbacks to their childhood, they're very like, um, they look like Fenris. A little Fenris. Also, a little, um, I gotta Google her name. She was like a British children's author, really fucked up. And Enid, Enid Blyton. Yeah. This kind of like beatification of this kind of untainted Anglo Saxon childhood mm-hmm. that Jamie is always going to be a fly in the ointment of from this particular like class stratified angle. Absolutely. And this has to do with the way that class in Britain functions differently from the way that it does in America Mm -hmm. and the ways that it is racialized in ways that are different from the way it's racialized in America. Because certainly class is also racialized in America, but there's a certain Even poor white people in America are white Mm -hmm. in a way that Britain stratifies white people more extensively by class in a way that is not socially malleable. Mm -hmm. Kate Middleton is going to be the queen of England and she is still referred to as being middle class, even though she grew up in a palatial mansion because her parents are not aristocrats. Mm -hmm. It's just this very complex structure that I'm not an expert on, but 
I do agree that Jamie as the brunette, as the one who is her suit, as the one who is more sexual, who is more libidinous, has that Latin lover or hot-blooded of the continent vibe that Mm -hmm. would make him a less suitable heir. And when we say that he didn't get the genes of Otherworld like Brian and Betsy did, like he doesn't have the royal pedigree that they do, what does that mean, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that's definitely part of it. But I also think that it is important that Betsy rejects being blonde as a young woman, as a model, and then never goes back to the point where when she reconstitutes her body in Mystery and Madripoor, we see in her astral space that she's blonde and she looks in a mirror and goes, no, 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 and brings herself back with now naturally lavender hair because she doesn't want to be the proper British lady. That's never appealed to her. I do think like being a girl is important to her, but I mean, there's a reason that we make jokes about like common people by pulp with Betsy. Like, I mean, Teeny's made a joke about that in the comic itself. She wants to be part of that world. Mm -hmm. In the same way that Brian wants to escape it to be like a man of science, Betsy wants to escape it to be a woman of the people, a woman who's cosmopolitan and cultured, but not a toff. And, you know, there is that really great, I don't know if it was just a drawing that he did or if it was a variant. There's that Phil Noto image of her. Yeah, it's just a drawing he did where she's in the Joy Division shirt with the cigarette. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's my favorite image of Betsy. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what this dream sequence is about. And it's unfortunate that it gets tied in this story to the like race swap storyline that's a disaster. But Mm -hmm. it does have dividends for the character now that that has been undone. This character study is still pretty consistent with the way the character has been carried forward. So that's Jamie's appearance there where he represents the ability for Betsy to leave Brian behind and become something more than a noblewoman. Mm-hmm. Brian really comes off pretty poorly. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting, right? Because if you think about it, it's like her recollection of their childhood and he comes across kind of poorly. And then much later, like, I don't like that Rick Remender Otherworld story, but mm-hmm. I do think the interplay between Brian and Betsy and it makes a lot of sense. And there's that great flashback in that mm-hmm. with the fox to Brian seeing Betsy and Jamie come back from a fox hunt. Right. Betsy is really proud that she killed a fox and Jamie is praising her and Brian is disgusted with it. And I think that the through line of their relationship, I mean, it is notable that in 80s Captain Britain, when they reunite, he doesn't know her hair is purple and she doesn't know that he's become a giant muscle man. Mm -hmm. So they haven't Mm -hmm. seen each other in a couple years when they reunite in that Alan Moore story, which for twins is unusual. Mm -hmm. And I get that she's been traveling the world as a model and that he was missing, but like he was missing and she didn't look for him, you know, like they're not close like that or Mm -hmm. they weren't anyway at that point. And so when we get these flashbacks to their childhood and we understand 
their differences that were so strong from the beginning, that starts to make more sense. It's also interesting, though, because of the 94 annual that we'll get to, where we find out that Jamie was so jealous of what he perceived as the tight bond between the twins that he could never access. Mm -hmm. All three of them have sort of this inferiority complex going. Brian thinks he's not as suave as Jamie and not as masculine as Betsy, frankly. Yeah. And Betsy thinks that because she's a woman, she'll never be allowed to have the things that her brothers have. And Jamie thinks that because he is the beta test child who didn't have the qualities that his father wanted and isn't as perfect and beautiful and powerful, it seems to him at first, as these blonde twins who arrive in his life when he's already 10 years old, they're all kind of in this weird state of tension with one another and also envy of one another. This is one of my favorite families in comics. And I think it's because those Obviously, it's all heightened by, like, the extremity of each character because they're in a superhero comic. Mm -hmm. It does feel like a realistic sibling relationship to me despite that, which I find really compelling. It does. As the oldest of three siblings myself, a boy and a girl younger than me, I don't identify with Jamie, but I do see how similar yeah. some of these things could be to a real situation, you know? I'm the oldest as well, and my brother and I are both adopted mm. and um you know i feel like i have a certain uh i i feel like i maybe could have been a, a, a certain kind of washerwoman in a 70s sitcom where my brother <laughs> my brother is very um hemsworthy ah and so especially as someone who had this very vexed relationship with you know embodying gender and performing a gender if you're thinking of yourself as his brother mm -hmm. when you're a child and having a gender dysphoric experience at the same time and then also mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. add that on top of it that's a lot going on yeah especially you know he um has always been super confident super self-assured in like his his presentation there is a sense that I, I i think full disclosure i don't sell slaves i would hope not i wouldn't be tempted if the if the opportunity emerged but like i do really understand some of my not involved in human trafficking t-shirt is provoking a lot of questions yeah. already answered by the t-shirt i do think that kind of like occluded kind of motif of envy almost that's in jamie and that's also in to a certain extent in betsy is something really understandable and something really legible to me well it's why i think as the years go by jamie becomes further and further away from that Delano story because there is something compelling about this sibling relationship and you kind of do have to dial back the absolutely over-the-top horror of that initial story if you want him to be a character that Brian and Betsy could interact with at all. Yeah. Because there is something interesting, the fact that he is so much older. I mean, I'm six years older than my sister and that feels like a significant gap to me you know i went to college when she was 12 we've only become close as adults i can't imagine 10 that seems really hard <laughs> and for it to be both of them are 10 years younger than you and their twins who have like a secret language and it's implied many times like twin telepathy is a thing in lots of fiction and according to some twins is like kind of a phenomenon in reality but Betsy is literally a telepath and she and Brian have an innate psychic rapport 
that she severs when she leaves home, which is something mm-hmm. that's not really discussed, but it's like they just lose it. I guess when he becomes Captain Britain, maybe. But as children, it's implied that they had this almost soul connection, a connection of psyches, one might say, that Jamie is not privy to. And so that's why I actually find that annual very moving. His next appearance is in Excalibur 27, Real People. This is the issue that I talked about on the Excalibur podcast, Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow. So if people want to check that out, I go through the whole issue with that crew of smart folks. This is a really wild issue because it's drawn by Barry Windsor Smith, but inked by Bill Sienkiewicz. So it looks like nothing else on earth. And I love it, but it is a divisive issue in terms of its visuals. I think it looks awesome. I wish it had a different plot attached the plot is just not good unfortunately yeah because it's this is the one about nth man what is mm-hmm. that and don't worry about it i um i found out for about five dollars <laughs> usd i just made such a noise i'm so sorry holly just held up in plastic floppy copies of nth man the comic that I didn't know existed when I first read this issue as a kid because I assumed it was an in-universe fictional story. So did I for years. But Nth Man is all too real. Oh, man. There is a prologue here where we see Jamie in his flat. The narration here is so Claremont that it makes me scream, so I'm just going to read it. Also, the boxes here, like, to emphasize that he is... Jamie and his thinking is askew like they sort of cascade downward in like diagonals and stuff it's well done it's cool lettering by Orzakowski it also is just a splash page of him seated looking really spooky in his easy chair with the vixen in her fox form sitting beside him looking pissed because I imagine she's pissed all the time it says Jamie Braddock sits watching the world whiz by whee wonderment pausing every so often to note to himself with a giggle of sagacious delight like the supercomputer Shalmaneser in John Brenner's classic stand on Zanzibar. Cripes, what an imagination I've got. I think everybody reading that was thinking, this is just like the supercomputer Shalmaneser. Absolutely. In John Brenner's classic stand on Zanzibar. I did try to get through that for this. It's it's really long. I'm not a big classic sci-fi novels head myself. I mean, I assume that that's like Heinlein-esque. These are 60s. Yeah. It seemed interesting, but like not interesting enough. This is not a supercomputer shamanesser podcast. No. So I forgive you. Because reality to us, to him is purest make-believe, thinks himself fast asleep, you see, and all about him the sum and substance of gossamer fantasy. Ow! You're right there, love. That's a great comic bit. Like, Windsor Smith kills that transition. Kills it. Emma Collins leans in. You're right there, love. I heard you cry out. Bump your head, did you? Emma, I had a thought. Isn't that nice? Have some tea then. Perhaps you'll have another. Which is fun. It's good. Piping hot this is, Master Jamie, with your favorite bickies besides. Yum, you spoil me, Emma. My prerogative, I figure, seeing as how much has raised you, a good kind soul she was. And this is where we get that reveal. One of the few things he missed when he left home. Didn't like coming back to discover she'd died. 
nasty, vicious twist for a dream to take. So he fixed it and brought her back just the way he remembered her best. And that is also such a fucking panel. We see him looking at her and there's nothing there. The strings are just radiating out from an absence. Mm -hmm. Which is why I think she's not really back in that way. Do you get what I mean? Like, I think there's something else going on. Seemed only fair. His dream, after all. Why shouldn't everything be just the way he wants? On the other hand, the unexpected does make it much more interesting. And that's when Nigel Frobisher shows up to tell him that Excalibur's back. And Nigel makes a critical mistake, which is that he is rude to Emma. Mm -hmm. Jamie, therefore, stands out of his chair, pulls the strings, and Nigel walked in again. He was already wearing lipstick and an earring. Right. Of his own volition. He does steadily become more and more feminized in his day-to-day in a way that's interesting, but Jamie pulls the strings and turns him into the vixen, but in, like, hooker wear. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. That kind of, like, very heightened Warriors-esque leather wear that people just wind up in in late 80s Claremont. Yeah, it's, like, very Hellfire Club-y. Or, yeah, like, what Empath put Sharon Friedlander and Tom Corsi in. Yeah. But also kind of mixed with Rachel's leather jacket and miniskirt ensembles. Mm-hmm. I have, That hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, it's like the silhouette is similar to what Rachel was wearing when she met Nigel, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it also is like a slutty corset with underboob. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to a summit with all of the heads of crime syndicates in England tonight. I can't be wearing this. This is not what the vixen looks like. And he's like, your problem. Figure it out. Then he turns on the telly. The television in his power suddenly becomes a window into the adventure that's going on with Excalibur and Nth Man. Which again, you don't have to worry about. This is kind of... A meta-commentary satire on television. Jamie manipulates the scenarios all around them through the TV as though he's, like, backseat driving by talking to the screen, basically. Mm -hmm. Because he thinks it's a show that's great on the telly. This story is mostly about Rachel, pushed by anger more and more toward, like, a dark phoenixy kind of place. And Kurt has to yank her back to herself. We end on Jamie looking at a comic book he has conjured of Excalibur, where all of the members of Excalibur are his little puppets. And he says, can't play with other realities, have to make my own, do better next time. Can't have my dreams getting too uppity, or my toys slipping from my grasp, demanding lives of their own, the nerve. I get him again, I got him for good. That's the picture. Finn? Question mark. Clearly, this was supposed to go into a deeper arc, but Claremont is pushed out of the franchise, so it never happens. He must have been near a breaking point at this point, right? This would be late 90s. He only writes like four more issues. I think it's interesting that Jamie at this point is mostly just this kind of like idiot savant who comes in and fucks up what Excalibur wants to be doing, what the plot wants them to do. Right, because the mastermind is Courtney. Mm -hmm. Claremont's last arc is Girls' School from Heck, which is all about like whatever Courtney's evil designs for Kitty are. But that doesn't come to fruition either because he leaves right after. And so Alan Davis, once he's back on the book in 92, takes it upon himself to tie up the Jamie plot and the Courtney plot in The Ghost of Braddock Manor, a story from Excalibur 55 to 56, 
which opens with Brian and Betsy sparring. She's now Ninja Psylocke. They have, honestly, a really sweet reunion. They both comment on how much they've both changed. She's like, you know, obviously I've visually changed more than you have, but we've both changed a lot and grown a lot. Brian is perturbed because he's realizing that part of him likes to fight the way that Betsy mm-hmm, does. Mm-hmm. And she's like, we are descended from the warrior caste of other worlds. Our privileged life here at Braddock Manor insulated us from the ravages of the real world. It's in our blood. So we cultivated a veneer of British reserve, but it was a pretense. And he goes, it was manipulation. Dad was Merlin's agent. Our lives were part of a plan, but Merlin is out of the picture now. I certainly hope so. Maybe that's why you feel so insecure. Yes, for the first time, my life is my own. I can be myself and not a pale imitation of your big brother. I always felt I was in competition with Jamie. He seemed to be so smart and sophisticated when we were kids. Jamie knew how to enjoy himself, but he was an arrogant snob. So was I. You grew out of it. Thank you. So that's the context we're given there. And that, I think, is interesting because it's different from how Betsy regarded him in her dream, right? But, like, she has the maturity now to recognize that he was a bad dude. Mm -hmm. And they're also talking about him like he's dead. Right. Which leads me to believe that they've now gone over what happened in Africa. Anyway, he's not dead, unfortunately, for Alisande Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Who is called Alice Dane throughout this arc. It's just a typo, but like it's every time her name is uttered. Brigadier Alisanne Stewart is part of the Weird Happenings organization. She is a frequent ally of Excalibur. She's Alistair Stewart's sister. She is a real great Claremont dame. She was one of the Muir Island X-Men in that arc. So that's like high-level Claremont Dame activity. She has immortality through the um, Sporkle. That's true. She will always be part of the Every X-Man Ever Sporkle quiz. Yeah. Unfortunately, in this story, she dies rough. Right. She is under investigation by her superiors because secrets from who have been leaked to S.H.I.E.L.D., And they believe that she is the mole because Nick Fury helped her with something and they think she did a quid pro quo. So she's being court-martialed, which everyone is appalled by. But at the moment, she's just going to enjoy this party at Braddock Manor. Betsy's come in for the party. Courtney shows up with Nigel, which kind of freaks Brian out. But she's like, oh, don't worry. I didn't betray your secrets. Nigel had already figured out all of your secret identities. And like, I love the Davis run, but it doesn't have that kind of, I I guess, like plasticity of desire that the Claremont stuff does. I think Nigel is looking a lot less. The femme stuff is gone in this story. It's just gone. He has the earring. But like everything else is a lot more straightened out. Yeah. Whatever gender thing Claremont was trying to explore with that character is not in this story particularly. Anyway, while Courtney, quote unquote, and Nigel are distracting everyone downstairs, Courtney's making Megan jealous by kissing Brian. Cerise is learning what kissing is. Everybody's having kind of a fun time. Meanwhile, Alisande is upstairs doing her makeup We've seen kind of a ghostly shadow throughout the house, throughout the issue, and it turns out it's Jamie who shows up. She high kicks him in the face, which is awesome. Like, again, this character is really great. Yeah. 
he says, foul strokes, sweet cakes, hurting me is against the rules. And if you don't play by my rules, you don't play. And there's a disgusting crack. When they find her, all of her bones have been broken and crushed in on themselves and she's dead. Right. This is a really grisly death. There is such a weird sense of escalation throughout this issue. The early scenes at the party are so like effervescent and so cute. Mm-hmm. The Kurt and Cerise stuff. It's so funny. It's so good. Even the Courtney and Megan stuff is funny, but then it suddenly yeah. turns into a slasher movie, like really abruptly. And even like comparing how he hits her. Mm-hmm. It reads as a punch before you find out that all of her bones are broken. Yeah, it's in silhouette. It looks like a backhand, but we realize now, once we see what happened to her, that he didn't actually punch her. He yanked the strings back. Yeah. Whereas, like, even a few pages earlier, when he sort of, like, clocks out Theron, <laughs> which, like... Someday you'll be back for the Theron episode. Never you worry. I was going to say, I, I noted there was very little sympathy for Theron getting hit in the head in this conversation, but he does. He hits his he hits his cheek right against a stump. But it's so much more slapsticky and so much more broad than what happens to Alistair, which, like... It's tough. This is a tough one. Yeah. I mean, Claremont clearly wasn't happy about it because, as I mentioned in uh, the Forge episode, on his Fantastic Four run, he introduces an alternate reality, Alisand, who Mm -hmm. he brings in, Caledonia. Caledonia? Yeah, who's like Captain Scotland in her reality. Keeney had a reference to Alisand, like when Betsy was hopping realities after Ten of Swords on the earth where Betsy was queen, it's referenced that like Alisand is the head of security or whatever in a data page. And I was just like, ah, Alisand Stewart. I do think that if Jamie's going to be a friend of ours who we keep around now forever, we might have to find a way to resurrect Alisand Stewart because it's pretty sure. horrible. <laughs> but that's not urgent because this character died 30 years ago. I do get that. 30 years ago. I know. 31. Jesus. Yeah. Anyway, it turns into a scary horror movie sequence that Davis draws the hell out of where C and another telepath who's visiting, Amelia, who's this older woman who works for the British government, are both like having freakouts because they can sense like murder happening. Megan gets shot in the fucking head mm-hmm. with a gun, which is crazy. And the final splash of the issue is we see at last that it's Jamie because Betsy goes, there's some sort of force field I can't move. Hello, it's nice to see you again, Elizabeth. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Jamie! This is a famous image of Jamie Braddock. Like, if you see, if it's not that trading card where he's freakishly, like, contorted, it's this image of him standing in the doorway in his thong and his anklets and bracelets and earrings. like, And this is Davis. Part of what makes Davis's men sexy is that he is not afraid to draw a suggestion of genitals. Right. Which a lot of superhero artists just don't do. But like Davis men have a bulge. Mm-hmm. There's something about how prominent the bulge is on this page that makes it like that much more horrific because he is holding his sister who is unconscious by the hair. Yeah. In like a very violent, possessive way and dragging her behind him. And he says, you remember, 
oh, I just love family reunions. And I, I, I feel like, you know, this would be opaque if you were reading this off the shelf in 1992 because, you know, Delano stuff wasn't available. Right. But it, with the benefit of the Omni and all that, it recalls so uncomfortably. It evokes the way he grabs that woman's hair when he's going to traffic yeah. her. It does. That, I was also going to say, the really creepy arc with the uh, the the Brian from Saturn's dimension. Yes, absolutely. The incestuous assault that occurs mm-hmm. when the alternate reality Brian, who's evil, attacks Betsy. It's a similar, like, violation of that norm here. He's not doing anything sexual to Betsy, but his existence... Jamie's existence is so sexually mm-hmm. vibrant in like a stressful way. The Charisturo and the cum gutters here. Yeah, like his nearly nude body is very lovingly rendered here and he's very mm-hmm. scary looking and she is unconscious and he is dragging her by the hair like the Sabine women, you know, like. Right. Anna Papard, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned her podcast. Mm hmm. She's written, I think, really beautifully about the physicality of Kurt in this run. Mm-hmm. And the way that he gets to have form accentuated in a way that men in early 90s comics in particular often don't. And this feels so much like kind of, not even an inversion, but like kind of like, I don't want to say clipothic every day for the rest of my life, but it does feel like this kind of shadow. It's a dark reflection of the healthy sensual male eroticism of davis's work yes jamie braddock is the sinister male sexuality that is the equal and opposite number to the way he draws brian and kurt yes it's like this almost like um to be clear i'm not calling davis reactionary but this almost like reactionary impulse against the really ludic sex positivity of bodies in the rest of this run it goes into this place of like painful jouissance, which is like a Claremont hobby horse in the 21st century. Yeah. But it also, I think, is because of how childlike he is. Yes. There's something disturbed. Like he also is the innocence, like turn of the screw innocence. I mean, like the Deborah Carr movie in the sense that he's simultaneously sexual and a child in a way that is really distressing. I would say... Though, if I had one big critique of this particular arc, aside from getting rid of a character, I think had a lot of gas in the tank. Yeah, I think getting rid of Alisand sucks, but you know. In the Claremont stuff, how Jamie deals with gender is so idiosyncratic and so strange, where it's like he does not know, he knows that women exist, but he does not know what he's supposed to do with them except put them in cars. Right. Whereas here... He really just kind of seems to hate them. Yeah. And this, I mean, Davis and Delano did that initial story, right? So like when Davis is writing here as opposed to Claremont, I think the lightness of Claremont's approach to Jamie is just kind of gone. Mm -hmm. And what we're left with is the horror. The next issue is interesting because like the the playfulness of Satyr 9 is also not present in this story. Like in this story, she rapes Brian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she mind controls him into striking Megan, mm-hmm. tries to force him to kill Megan with his bare hands, gloats about murdering Courtney and replacing her, says hateful things about Courtney. It's very different from Claremont's approach where Satyr 9, like, method acted and almost became Courtney. Right. It's just very different. 
And I think that the playful, because like it was raped by deception in the Claremont stories too, when she was sleeping with Brian while pretending to be Courtney. But this is like violent in a way right. that is different. And that also is a dark mirror to, like I was saying, the playful way Brian is sexualized by Davis throughout this run, which usually is pleasurable for the reader. But here, when we see him naked in her bed with just the sheet covering his groin, it's not pleasant. It's gross. He has just been violated. And that is actually the moment it's a counterpoint to what happened to Betsy that you were talking about in the Delano run with the Brian of Saturnine's Earth. Saturnine here does that to Brian. And that's when Betsy connects with him telepathically because Jamie has fallen asleep with the vixen in his lap. But first he has twisted and stretched all of the house guests into deformed creatures. Like they don't even look human. They look like weebles. Right. What were those little like party favors where you kind of squeeze them and like. And their eyes bugged out. out. Yeah, Yeah. It's like that. So Betsy is like just this like weird malformed thing, but she is able to contact Brian on the astral plane. She says, you've been drugged and psychic dampers have been activated, but we're twins. Our link is stronger than ordinary telepathy. Brian says, she killed Courtney. She gloated, told me everything. It's Saturnine, the fascist dictator of Earth 794. I remember she was infatuated with her reality's version of you. Byron Bradock, Captain Britton. He escaped from her domination by trading places with me. And I killed him. You had no choice. He was as evil as Satyanine. Her whole regime was. I'd still be a prisoner there if Gatecrasher hadn't released a carnivorous fungus. And they recap this story for us. What's interesting here is that he says the experience of having all of her people die around her in that escape drove her insane. And there's kind of a parallel to the Jamie thing. But, you know, uh, the problem here is that this story doesn't go anywhere because Davis isn't on the book for much longer after this. Yeah. Like Brian swears vengeance on Courtney who escapes with a comatose Jamie at the end of the story. He swears vengeance on Saturnine. Like he will avenge the real Courtney, but she's not seen again until house of M because <laughs> like, it literally is not, I think she has a cameo in a daredevil story, but it's like when you see a bunch of villains, it's not like a, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. The one thing that we do get is that the reason she sent TechNet after Jamie was because on her Earth, Jamie already had his mutant powers. So she knew that he was an incredibly powerful reality warper. And another interesting thing is the way that Brian describes the Dr. Croc storyline, which we see a flashback to. Jamie's villainous activities had brought him to the attention of Doc Croc, an African prince who hoped to cure Jamie's evil nature with mysticism. Yeah. I like that. Mm Mm-hmm. You go back and you're like, oh, were they torturing him? Like they were, but like, what were they doing? And it sounds like they were trying to do something positive, but we'll never know. I just, I like that reframing of it as like, they thought they could fix him. Right. Not that we should torture criminals into compliance, but. I would say they didn't do a great job. They definitely did not do a great job. To be fair, they did get interrupted in the middle. Yeah. 
Brian says, it's all gone according to plan, but I think Satyr9 is scared of Jamie. Whatever Doc Croc did to him has made him unstable. And Betsy says, I know, he's barking mad. Jamie thinks he's living in his own dream. And then Jamie, and this is what I think is interesting, invades the psychic rapport. Mm -hmm. He just Mm -hmm. steps right in. He is back in his sort of dapper suit. His hair is cut and combed. Yes, he looks like the war prophet. Yeah, and Jamie. he is talking totally lucidly. Yes, yes. Tut tut, little sister, my ears are burning. Didn't mum and dad teach you that it's bad manners to talk about a person behind their back? Well, if you're going to be naughty, you must be punished. And then he punches Betsy across the face in reality, where she is fully distorted and distended again into like a gangly monster. We see Megan crying and crying and crying in the back, but unable to move. And Jamie says, and in future, when you are having a cozy little telepathic tete-a-tete, dearest Betsy, remember I am a Braddock too. That's when one of Megan's like coolest moments ever happens. Oh yeah, I I love this Megan. Yeah, and I'm sorry that I'm reading so much this episode, guys, but like I fucking love all this dialogue. It fucking kills. So Megan interrupts like, you know, screw you, Jamie or whatever. And he has turned her into like a gnarled little thing. And he says, you ugly fat pig, you interrupted me. That isn't allowed. You are just a figment of my imagination. This isn't a dream. It's real. Yeah, right. You must think I'm nuts. If this was reality, I couldn't turn you inside out by pulling on these invisible strings, see? Sorry, you can't. They're invisible. Well, take my word. The universe is made of string. And we start to see his perspective as he pulls at her. Mm -hmm. Thick and thin, everything is linked, and you're just a dense knot. I grab a handful, tug, and what have you done? Because then, as we get back to reality, we see that Megan has taken on not her regular form, But her true form, which is something she had recently unlocked in the Davis run, her hair is enormous. She has spooky fairy eyes. It is her true shape as a creature of fairy. And she says, I am a shape changer. The threads of order cannot buy me. I was drugged before, so my power made me become what you desired. Brian says I'm empathic, but now my mind is clear and free. You cannot affect me. No, this is my dream. I am in control, you stupid bimbo. You think me stupid because I cannot read or understand clever words. But life is bigger than words. Words are just small noises that hide the truth. I see more than you could ever know. You have the power to return my friends to normal. This is not a dream. It's real. As real as this pain. And then she backhands him across the fucking face. I will hurt you until you return my friends to their true forms. And she punches him again and again. He's got a black eye. Mm -hmm. I take no joy in causing you pain, but you are an evil man and pain is all you understand. And then Brian shoots in and punches Megan in the back of the head because he's mind controlled by Saturnine. She goes, Brian, kill that shape-shifting cow. She's a greater threat than I anticipated. And Megan turns back to her regular shape, whispers Brian, and he can't. He refuses. He breaks free from his conditioning, fights back against Saturnine. Kitty gets her moment to be like, fuck you, Saturnine. You made me believe that you loved me or, uh, wait, that that you were my mentor. I mean... Then Betsy psychic knifes Jamie to stop him from attacking Megan. With a banana for some reason. Yeah, he jumps in and he's like, you want a reality? Is this knife real enough? But he's holding a banana because he's crazy. I mean, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Betsy says, that's not a knife. This is a knife. The focused totality of my telepathic abilities. He's left comatose. Mm -hmm. Nine's people grab him, lift him overhead, and run off with him into their, like, helicarrier and fly away. And that's that. 
and Brian is devastated and swears vengeance and all of that. And um, Jamie doesn't appear again for 10 years. Yep. I believe he just explodes with with the rest (laughs) of Mirror Island. So there is the annual, which we mentioned. Mm -hmm. This is the 1994 Excalibur annual. So it is in the height of the Scott Lobdell era on Excalibur that is garbage. But Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. lot of that run he occasionally has a co-writer richard ashford who was an editor at marvel this story is written by richard ashford and i actually think it's really good yeah unfortunately brian is britannic in it so like uh i feel like there's a gradation of how distracting britannic is yes sometimes he's just like a completely new guy and sometimes he's just red brian yeah and in this story it's just brian with knowledge of the future so like britannic is for people who've forgotten go back to my brian braddock episode with jordan d white if you want it's a fun one it's episode 12 i think it's early in the run of the podcast this is after rachel and brian have switched places in the time stream after brian was lost in the time stream when they went to save the days of future past he has come back as Britannic, who has perceived the time stream and has this knowledge of future events that must come to pass and is having lots of nightmares about bad potential futures, etc. In this story, he has a weird vision of a threat that is coming to destroy the world and of a heroic version of Jamie who must be at his side when the threat comes. And he looks a lot like 90s Mikhail. He does. And he also has arm pokies like Strife. It's just like a very Mm -hmm. strange little 90s design that he never has outside of this story. When I was reading the 90s stuff, I thought a lot about how as soon as Claremont leaves and this kind of vacuum is filled without a really crisp plan, there's this big flurry of villains who you could describe as just sort of mutant fail sons. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Jamie kind of slides more into that role. You have Mikhail coming back. You have Shinobi. Yeah. Who obviously got a really great close reading last week. You have even like someone like Carter Reiking or Graydon Creed. These people who have these legacies of power and this sort of narrative gravity, but no clear sense of what to do about it and how to wield that power, which I think is so different than these sort of mutant fail sons that come along let's broaden that up to mutant sort of failed children of the 21st century that feel like a much more studied response to the legacy of Claremont, like Cassandra Nova or I guess Vulcan. Yeah. I would say Ray's and Charles Jr. If we want to talk about maybe less compelling. And then I think Dokken is the big one in that sort of next Mm -hmm. generation. I think in the context of this annual, which is such a strange and fun story it's bizarre because it recaps all of the jamie stuff that we've already talked about but it's interesting because we learn that ever since betsy psychic knifed jamie in that moment she experienced all his memories of what he did Mm -hmm. as a criminal and she hates him like she is so repulsed she's like brian doesn't know brian thinks he can be rehabilitated but he doesn't know Jamie the way that I now know Jamie, and I don't believe that he can. And the narration is interesting here. After she cycles through all the memories and sees right before he's captured by Dr. Crocodile, Psylocke realized at that moment that she did not hate her brother, only what he'd become, what Jamie believed his brother and sister had forced him to become. Do you remember the time he stepped out of line one too many times and was taken down by Joshua and Dingy? The odds were catching up with him. And you know what the kicker is, Brian? Jamie blames us. 
Where were we? He was on a treadmill to hell and we didn't stop to save him. In his mind, I saw how I failed to love him enough, how we failed to save him. You were forced to abandon him in Africa to endless torture at the hands of Dr. Croc, which triggered Jamie's latent power, which, which is, is not true. Yeah, but that's that clearly is... how Jamie perceives it, which I think is mm -hmm, fascinating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Betsy tries to perform psychic surgery to rehabilitate Jamie, but can't manage it at first. And we get a flashback to their childhood where we see him bullying them as children because he wants to play war games and they don't want to. Betsy says, he's so mean. He used to be great fun, not anymore. Brian says, I think it's because you're a girl. Jamie says, girls are sissies. He hates all girls. No, no, I don't believe it. He doesn't hate me. Does he? And she's sort of astrally fighting Jamie, like in his own mind. And the resolution to the story, which I actually like found very beautiful is she says, you were never the fighter in the family, Jamie. You always wanted things too easily. I think I can take more than you can give and give more than you want. And he says, it's not fair. I should be stronger than you. Help me, Betsy. I think I've gone mad. Eventually, the resolution is that she creates a false memory. It flashes back to him thinking that they're twins and that he'll never understand them and that they have secrets from him. And they're in their secret hiding spot that he doesn't know about. Mm -hmm. And we don't know that this is fake. He finds them in their hiding spot. I don't believe it. I finally found you. I knew you were close by. And Brian says, this is our secret hiding place. And Betsy says, why don't you join us? Jamie says, me? You really want me to? An afternoon together passes so quickly. Brian, Betsy, don't leave me. Promise you won't ever leave me. Of course, Jamie. We can play together forever. They're children, but I'm doing their adult voices, sorry. Even when we grow up, we can all remember this time that we spent together. And then the narration says, Psylocke knows that this last incident never happened, an attempt at childhood wish fulfillment, hoping it is not too late to grant. There's a final confrontation between them all on the astral plane. And at the very end of the story, as Jamie is back in his coma, Brian says, we have to have made a difference, Betsy, but the final battle's up to him. He must face his own demons. Can you feel it? An inner peace, a calmness that wasn't there before. And she says, I know, I feel it too. Is it a sign? Is Jamie trying to let us know we changed things, we helped him? God help us if we didn't. Whether what you saw was a dream or a vision, I know now, I need my brother. I need you both. I have a plane to catch, but let's try to stay in touch this time. There's so much I haven't told you. And somewhere in his own twisted reality, Jamie Braddock is playing in their secret hiding place. And in his mind, he is happy. Never the end. And never the end is what it says at the end of Captain Britain in the 80s. <laughs> I had never read this until very recently. And yeah, I don't think it's... It's not on Unlimited. It's not collected. I had to go... No, I got it on eBay. I'm hopeful that there will be an Excalibur Omnibus Volume 3, even though Claremont and Davis are over. I just don't know. That's going to be a like, rough purchase, though. I know, but, like, if you, if it's, I mean, it's rough because also, like, it's now rough to want to buy Warren Ellis comics, right? But, like, yeah. I do think it would be good to have all that stuff collected, even if it is the shitty Lubdell stuff and then the decent Warren Ellis stuff that unfortunately Warren Ellis is no longer someone I feel super great about but yeah I mean I just I don't know how they're going to collect it because like you can't really do an Excalibur by Ben Robb omnibus can you like I just don't they, <laughs> like, if, 
I like would I, people buy that? I mean, maybe they will. I, I don't know. I, I would. I I would buy it because it has Ferron in it, and I would buy it for the crazy <laughs> gang. I would buy it because I'm sick and twisted and I have the 12 omnibus and other omnibi that have no business being on my shelves. I want to pause and just thank you for the community you've made and the discord that talked me out of buying the 12 when I was on post-surgery. <laughs> when you were on painkillers after surgery yeah. and you were like, I could buy the 12 omnibus. And everyone was like, Holly, you don't actually don't. want the 12 omnibus. But yeah, I never read this until doing this show and uh, I cried reading this which is a very weird emotion to feel about it's quite good it's really good i I absolutely was not expecting from like a mid-love don't run yeah annual with britannic i think it adds a lot to their relationship and sort of to piecing together how we could make this guy work yes granted he's then comatose for the rest of the decade literally from 1994 to 2004 but but like the groundwork is there It's a good way to kind of rehab the character a little because now we can assume that he is off panel repairing his brain with the happy memories that Betsy gave him for the next decade. Again, it's a way of saying like he's a different person now, which I think is important because, again, if you want to tell stories about this family, he can't be the same guy who was human trafficking. He just can't because it just... It doesn't work in an ongoing narrative. And I think this is a little bit lukewarm in this story, but it also adds this stuff that the reason he was getting involved into crime was this kind of slippery slope from gambling debts, which like... And Claremont digs into that later on, which we'll get to. That's not a good excuse to human traffic. It's absolutely not. But like, it's something. Yeah, the implication is that he's a gambling addict who got way in over his head to the magia yeah it makes him someone with a profound moral weakness rather than just sadism rather than just a psychopath who yeah revels in slave trading which is the way it's presented in the delano story which makes sense for the delano story because absolutely that's a story about telling the thatchers to fuck themselves yeah that's a story about saying mark thatcher yeah That's what that comic is about. It's a different story now in the 90s if you want to tell a story about Psylocke's family, which is now what this is. Because Psylocke is now a much more important character than she was Uh at the time Jamie Delano wrote that story. Like, Betsy Braddock is now a more important character than Brian Braddock. Uh So if you want to tell a story about her family, you need them to be usable characters. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb if we're talking about characters who are in this issue. I think she's a more important character than Nightcrawler. Like, she's enormous now. Oh, by this point in the franchise, Psylocke is one of the most prominent X-Men there is. She's the guest star in this Excalibur issue because they Mm -hmm. wanted people to buy Excalibur. Yeah. The other thing that I think is new to this story, but I might be wrong, is Jamie explicitly kind of articulating this resentment that he was not Captain Britain. Yeah, it's sort of implied in that cross-time caper story, but that's not quite our Jamie. Yeah. But here it's like, I should have been Captain Britain, I'm the oldest. It raises kind of an interesting kind of speculative question for me. And I think one of the weird things about the 2004 Claremont stuff is that he has Jamie running around and he has Jim Jaspers running around, but then he makes the first of the fallen. Jamie's kind of bad guy. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It feels like it's building to the big Jamie versus Mad Jim confrontation, right? And then it doesn't. It seems like if you were cultivating someone to deal with Jim Jaspers, you would want someone with kind of Jaspers-y powers. You would think. 
I'm still waiting for that story. And I think we're now closer to it than we've ever been before. It, whenever mm -hmm. that's an other world story that Teeny or someone else wants to tell, but it does feel like now it's possible in a bigger way. Yeah. What'll be interesting at this point, because Mad Jim is a lot less mad than he used to be now that he seems to have integrated all his selves. Who in that conflict would be on the side of the angels? I'm not 100% sure which one of them it would be. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. or, or if either of them, I mean, it might be very alien versus predator. Like whoever wins, we lose, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll save that for when we get to Krakoa. Yeah. So anyway, 10 years after that annual, Chris Claremont is back on Uncanny X-Men and Betsy has been miraculously brought back from the dead, but no one is sure how. This is the Rachel Gray era, and a lot of this era is about Betsy and Rachel bonding intimately, nice. like in a very Claremont girlfriends kind of way. They refer to Rachel as Betsy's companion several times. It's notably right after Chris has Rachel and Kitty break up on page insofar right. as he can say it because Piotr is also back from the dead. If people who did not read Claremont Reload were wondering where Teeny and Leah got the idea that Betsy and Rachel would be a cool couple, it's from this stuff. Because this is where they really get to know each other and they have a lot of fun chemistry and it's very like classic Claremont lesbianism kind of stuff. Jamie begins popping up throughout this run in sort of like visions and things. The Fury is back for reasons, go back to the Sage episode maybe, I don't remember if I've talked about this story at length, but the Fury's around, they fight the Fury, Rachel is like, I can't do it, I can't stop it, and suddenly in her mind's eye, Jamie appears and goes, of course you can, scrumptious, of course you can, it all depends on you, and Rachel's like, what, that was Brian's crazy brother Jamie. Then the X-Men go to Braddock Manor to visit Megan and Brian. This is before Betsy comes back, actually, these issues right here. It's mm -hmm, right before mm -hmm. because we see Rachel looking at the portrait that hangs there of Brian and Megan and Betsy longingly. And Brian says, for what it's worth, I miss Betsy too, but there's no cause for sorrow. My sister found her true path as you have yours. Time now for everyone to move on, which makes... Rachel feel like something's weird and off with Brian and Megan. When she looks around as they leave Braddock Manor, there's this really cool page where suddenly she sees it as ruins, like dilapidated, crumbling ruins with Jamie standing in the middle going, bye now, baby. And she goes, Jamie? And then suddenly flashes back and it's just Brian and Megan waving from the door. See you soon. That doesn't really go anywhere, though. Like, th th this is the thing about this era of... Jamie. The implication is basically that he's steering Betsy and Rachel together for a purpose, but we don't right. really get an answer to what that is. Well, I was confused enough about the uncanny X-Force stuff that I just went and read a bunch of synopses of Jamie's publication history. Uh-huh. And apparently some people think, like, I think the reading on the Marvel appendix is that he's like impersonating Brian and Megan in this story. Yeah, that it might not be them because they're in Otherworld at the time. Yeah. They're ruling Otherworld in this period. And they say like, sorry, we haven't been back in a while. We've been in Otherworld. And Rachel senses that something's off with them and then sees Jamie. So maybe it's not really them, but it doesn't really yeah. get answered. A year later, after Betsy has been resurrected, she also sees Jamie in like, 
her mind's eye. I have two brothers. Brian is my twin. Jamie, the eldest of us who I worshipped as a child, is mad. Mm-hmm. Whatever made me think of Jamie, but she keeps thinking of him. She can't help it. There's something really interesting in this little dream sequence. First of all, I th- I really love that throughout this kind of build up to the first Fallen, which I don't think is a super successful resolution of this, is that when he appears to Betsy, it's usually mediated through images or reflections. Yeah, he, the gender stuff from Claremont, I mean, this is mm-hmm. Claremont again, is yeah. back too, because there's that really weird page where like Betsy is flirting with Hank. Mm-hmm. as he's doing her medical checkup and then as she walks away from the mirror her reflection stays put in the mirror right and then like her female body suddenly has jamie's head in the uh the weird like high collar training costume yeah and he says enjoy your new life baby sister as for dying that's the least of your worries then later she's giving rachel a pep talk about rachel moping because kitty left her for Piotr. Mm-hmm. Rachel's like whining and whining and Betsy goes life is too short and whining is totally unattractive Mm -hmm. which is like again they're like flirting like crazy but suddenly she sees Jamie out the window waving at her and freaks out but then he's gone when she looks for him this just happens throughout several issues but doesn't quite shake out into anything that makes sense it's just a problem that she's having she sees him all around That all leads into the House of M storyline that Claremont does that's just a Captain Britain story in the middle of Uncanny X-Men. Wanda's reality cancer is starting to destroy mutants on other worlds, so Saturnine freaks out and runs to the Celestial Nullifier because Otherworld is, like, experiencing destructive energy waves and all of this bad shit. And I think this is like a really sensible way to do this tie-in. Oh yeah, it's this is one of my favorite things Claremont does yeah. in his return is this series of issues. All the Betsy and Rachel stuff is great. All the Brian and Megan stuff is great. And Saturnine and Roma are great here. Saturnine runs to the nullifier, which is like what they use to erase a reality if it becomes cancerous. It's what they did to Earth 238. Before she can do it, suddenly Jamie appears and goes, your fancy toy. And Saturday goes, I know him, my older brother, Jamie. He's completely mad. Jamie looks at the nullifier and drops a huge rock on it and says, she broke. Bye now. And disappears. I want to pause and kind of celebrate that he has gotten a new Speedo at this point. It is tan or like brown kind of. Mm -hmm. It is an interesting new color. Later, when Betsy and Rachel are in the white hot room. Which I feel like this has to be one of the first times that we go there post-Morrison, right? It is. And Rachel explains what it is. And Claremont reestablishes that there's only one Rachel in the multiverse and like gives you a whole explanation of that just in case you idiots listened to any writer who wasn't him and Mm -hmm. paid attention to any stories where there's alternate Rachel's. There's a line like that teeny references in uh, Knights of X, where it's like there are other daughters of Scott and Jean named Rachel in the multiverse, but they are not analogs of this Rachel Summers. Mm -hmm. Anyway, as they are like sort of existentially talking about their experiences with death and resurrection and Rachel missing her mom and all of that, Jamie suddenly appears with Brian in like a sort of warp thing. Betsy says, I was dead, got better, changes your perspective. Just thinking about me and my mom and the being dead thing. 
All three of us have that in common. My brother, too. Brian was killed and resurrected, and then Jamie appears. Both brothers, I think. Betsy, that's Jamie. You see him? I've been seeing him for months now. That's enough downtime, sweeties. No more revelations. Back to the salt mines. And he pitches them back out of the White Art Room. World needs saving. You're just the gals to do it. I've gone to a lot of trouble to bind your lives and fates together. Broken every rule there is. Don't make me regret it. And that is interesting. What the fuck does that mean? We owe him a lot. We owe him a lot. Jamie Braddock, lesbian ally. He tied that red string of, like, literally he pulls red strings. That's his power. Yeah. He tied that right around those girls. And it only took 20 years after this comic, but it mm-hmm. had dividends. And I think this becomes really salient with him after this story. Mm-hmm. Someone who grows more into this kind of folkloric niche of giving you what you need before you might know what you need it for. Yeah. And I think this is such a perfect example of that. Absolutely. Because I think Claremont had been around the block enough times that he, he knew that he couldn't have them like making out on panel in 2004. Yeah, well, it wasn't going to be allowed, but he knows yeah. exactly how in his Claremontian language to convey that there's a romantic attraction mm-hmm. between these mm-hmm. two women. Mm-hmm. And that's what he does in this story. I'd be interested. I mean, I know he really liked Teeny's Excalibur because he told her so. Yeah. And he almost never likes when other people write his characters. So that's a huge compliment. I don't know if he's read the stuff with Betsy and Rachel getting together, like Knights. So I'd be interested if, I mean, I'm sure someone's told him about it, but I'd be interested Mm -hmm. in his take because it is very much based in the work he did in this story. So that's fun. I feel like this is not a super well-read run. No, I mean, it's not very well collected is the thing. Yeah, It's been in trade and stuff, but I think there is a general consensus that Claremont's return is not good. And I don't think that's true. Yeah. It's certainly not as good as the classic material, but there are pretty good parts of Extreme. I think his strongest thing overall is this reload run. Mm -hmm. Even if I find the characterization of Rachel in it kind of strange. Yeah. Other than that, like there's weak stories like The First Fall and all of that, but like overall... It feels good. It feels like X-Men. It feels like Chris in his bag. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeously drawn. There's not a bad looking issue. No. And even with my issues with some of the ways Rachel is written, I just think he writes her very young suddenly. Like in addition Mm -hmm. to the feminine design, which she says, like, I'm wearing this outfit in honor of my mother. It's not something I would have picked. It's supposed to be a weird fit. That just doesn't get interrogated enough for my taste. And then she's just written very Kitty-esque to me. It feels like some of that is in service of him kind of working out how he feels about Emma. Yeah, a lot of it is about how angry he is about Emma and Scott, honestly. So I think that that's just a complication. But anyway, all that aside, End of Grey's is one of the best Rachel Summers stories Ever. So, like, mm-hmm. even amid the stuff I don't like, he tells some great Rachel stories also. And one of them is this thing. And a fun bit in uh, the House of M reality warp, in the reality where Betsy and Brian are the royal family, like where Brian is the king of England and Betsy is Princess Royal, they go in the psychic space to a place where she and Brian and Jamie used to play as children. Right. She says, my brother and I made these ruins our second home. And Rachel says, Brian, the king? No, Jamie, older than we twins by a decade. Brian lived in his books, trying to solve the secrets of everything, while Jamie and I, we had adventures. And you see them fencing while Brian reads. Mm -hmm. And Rachel says, 
but ma'am, because in this reality, Rachel is her bodyguard, which is, again, a very Claremont coding. Sure. It's very Storm and Callisto. It's like all of that. But ma'am, if he's firstborn, why isn't he king? Because I'm quite mad, you know, says like an astral Jamie. And she says, power runs deep in our family. He got the full measure, the ability to pull the quantum strings that define causality. He got himself so tangled, he'll never twist free. That, I think, is an interesting bit. I kind of wanted your thoughts on this because I really did not know what to make of it. This kind of runner in this arc about her being drawn back to this ruin or whatever that she used to plan. Mm-hmm. And it keeps shifting back to this kind of like vaguely Asian architecture. It's like a Chinese inspired thing. I honestly, I tried to look this place up and I'm not clear on if Claremont made it up or not. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's weird. And I'm just, I don't know how to unpack that beyond like, she's also wearing like a jumpsuit with a dragon motif. Yeah. Like the big flaw in this arc, unfortunately, that makes it hard for me to recommend that everyone in the world read it is that it's Asian Betsy. And I just always find that hard to recommend now when like looking back, it's weird. It was weird at the time, but it's weirder now. I'm sure I can surmise the like extra textual reason why he brings her back to life in this body, but I'm just not sure... I think the idea here is that it's like this place that Betsy was inspired by as a child was a marriage of Eastern and Western aesthetics. And so now she, as the perfect warrior, is both. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work for me because the race stuff with Psylocke just never works for me until now on Krakoa. So this might be, am I misremembering that he wanted to bring her back? In her original body in extreme? Claremont wanted to bring her back in her original body in extreme. He wanted to undo it because Claremont's intention had always been that Lady Mandarin was a temporary arc and she was going to turn back right at the end of it. Right. But the Asian Psylocke design was popular. So he was like, we'll keep it around for a bit until Jim Lee is off the book. Mm -hmm. And then Claremont was taken off the book before Jim Lee was off the book. So it just persisted for 30 years and he killed her in extreme specifically to undo the body swap. But then Joe Casada said, wait, 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 no, I have a new policy that I've told everybody about. If you kill a character, they have to stay dead. And so she was dead for like three or four years, something like that. And then when he gets the approval to bring her back, I don't know what happened, but I have to assume that editorially, because when Mike Carey tried to turn her back, he was told no. Wait, when did he try to do that? Age of X. When Age of X ended and Chamber is back to normal, Carey also said, and Betsy Braddock should be white again after Age of X ends. And he was told no. So I think there was a belief at that point that is simply true that the Psylocke character was an Asian character to the general Mm -hmm. public and that it would be confusing and also do brand damage to turn her back, which is why I think that the solution that Kanan is Psylocke now and Betsy is Captain Britain is the only solution that really works. Yeah. Like, I don't think Betsy can be Psylocke without being Asian because that's what people expect of Psylocke. Right. It's an inertia problem that you can't really fix. So I have to assume that when he was given the go-ahead finally to bring her back after agitating about it for years, he was told you can bring her back, but she's got to be ninja Psylocke. Hmm. But I don't know. That's just my presumption. Yeah, I think, I mean, that feels intuitively right. Because it doesn't make sense in story. There's never a good explanation for why Jamie does that. 
I mean, there's a version of Jamie that would do that out of like fickleness or cruelty, but I don't think that's the Jamie that Claremont is writing. Not the one he's writing here, who's very protective of Betsy and seems to really love her. Yeah. And is much more lucid than he's ever been since the 80s or the 70s, really. So, you know, like, it's just not, I don't think that's what's going on. Anyway, after House of M, a year later in 2006, we get the first Fallen arc that we've been talking about, also called The Forsaken. This is after the decimation. Valerie Cooper is talking to the one operatives and is suddenly befuddled by the appearance on her screens of Jamie Braddock, who is now wearing white boxers with gold hearts on them and a top hat with a flower. This is a Chris Bocciolo joint and it's beautifully drawn, but I do miss the Speedo. It also is a little weird because his strings are visible in this storyline in a way that they never have been before. I really like how he does the strings. They look great, but it's weird that other characters can see them. Yeah. But whatever. What I like is he introduces himself, and in a rare moment that's unlike Claremont, Val Cooper does not know who that is Mm -hmm. and asks them to, like, figure out his deal. That's when... Betsy goes and confronts him and they all see the watcher looming over the Xavier mansion, which means like something bad is about to happen, right? This issue made me do a reread of every watcher appearance. That's so funny. Because I was like, surely he had better shit to be doing. You'd think. But the first Fallen, according to the story, is really important, Holly. So, you know, he's there. Can't have a Ned Calthrop appearance without Uatu on hand. Jamie addresses the Watcher and is like, Oi, what are you doing here? Which is funny to me. And Jamie explains that he brought Betsy back from the dead specifically to shape her into a perfect weapon. Anyone who can muck with reality now, the Shadow King, Proteus, whoever, none of them can affect you which is an interesting beat for her. I don't think it's true anymore after the body unswap, but it was true at this time and it comes up a couple times in stories. And she's like, what do you mean the weapon will need? And he's like, the cosmic threat that I mentioned, listen closely and I'll tell you all about the Forsaken, which is Forsaken with a U, like the number four. And guess what? This story is really dumb. In a big retcon, we learn... <laughs> so Nightcrawler's like, Fossey's the Forsaken. And Betsy goes, the Forsaken? That's what my brother and his best mates called themselves back in the day. And we just abruptly meet these three new characters who have never existed before. They look like if a little life was about the Neo. <laughs> like, these fucking people. There was Jamie, his girl Amina Singe, plus Ned Horrocks and Godfrey Calthrop. You know what I think this arc is? This is not long after Claremont created Vange Whedon. Mm -hmm. I think this is an insane feedback loop of Claremont X-Men influencing Buffy, influencing Claremont Reload X-Men. Because this is literally Rupert Giles' backstory. He was selling slaves? Not the slaves part, but the part where... Giles was a boarding school kid who was a rebel who had these three friends and they were a coven and they summoned a demon together. This is a season two episode of Buffy called The Dark Age. 
that's really quite good. It's about Giles and Ethan Rain, who is his like implied ex-lover to me and Deirdre Page. And I forget the other guy's name, but the point is the demon comes back and causes a lot of trouble for everyone. I think that Claremont liked that episode of Buffy. Like, I, I truly think that's what happens here because it's the exact same thing. These friends and girlfriend are retconned into the past story of Jamie's disappearance, all this stuff, which doesn't make sense because Jamie never had a steady girlfriend. That's like something that's essential to the character. So that doesn't really make sense. It also, this is just like fully a retcon. Well, unless we're supposed to assume this was a different race, because Betsy says, on a lark, the four of them joined the Trans-Sahara rally. As usual, my brother was winning. Then something went wrong. There was a terrible sandstorm and only Jamie came back. Over 50 vehicles, racers, drivers, support staff vanished without a trace. After that, Jamie was never the same. I think that's when he went bad. I know it's when he went well and truly insane. So I guess this is before the Dr. Crocodile incident? So like, in 85, the race he was in, and this is super pedantic, but, like, it was the trans-African race. Paris to Dakar, yes. The Pan-Saharan race was what Mark Thatcher was in. Yes. And, you know, Marvel fictional maps change all the time. But if he was going across the Sahara and he wound up on the eastern coast, he was not that good at racing his car. Well, neither was Mark Thatcher, though. The reason yeah. he got lost was because Mark Thatcher went east instead of west or something like that. So, like, that's in keeping. I just... What I read this story as is Claremont saying, look, I love Captain Britain, but that Delano story was a little much. Mm -hmm. And I created this character and I want him to be Betsy and Brian's whimsical, crazy older brother who's not the most evil character imaginable. So I'm going to ratchet it back. That's what this story feels like to me. And, you know, in his defense at this point, had the Delano stuff been in print in the U.S. for like 30 years? There was a trade called Before Excalibur, Captain Britain. It's the one that Jordan D. White read as a kid that made him love Captain Britain so much. It only collects that solo series. So none of the more stuff from Daredevils or Mighty World of Marvel, it starts with the issue immediately following. And it's just Delano Davis up through the end of the Davis by himself stuff with Betsy and Slaymaster. That's it, though, and it wasn't easy to find. And certainly by 2004, I don't think it was, like, in regular circulation. So, yeah, as far as Chris Claremont knows, no one reading this comic has ever read that story. So the revisionism here, it's like when he decides that Xavier and Charles are old besties, and that doesn't fit the 60s stuff, but he didn't think anybody was going to go back to check. Mm -hmm. Or, like, you know, him being in a platoon with Carmen Pride and Logan. Right. Or, you know, Moira McTaggart suddenly being a scientist after she was a housekeeper for three issues. Like, there's just, he does this. And Mm -hmm. I, I think in this case, it is a pointed attempt on his part to walk Jamie back a little bit. Even when he was bad, it wasn't quite so bad as the stuff in the 80s had intimated. What matters is... (laughs) you know what that's a weird way to phrase it because it doesn't matter but the watcher explains to them what the first fallen is which is the anti-phoenix where was he for the other ones i have to think that this is supposed to be an aspect of the shadow king right it'd be a bogan i think it's gotta be the shadow king but like the thing that's weird is that claremont is writing new excalibur at this moment Mm -hmm. which i think is quite a good book and the shadow king is in that yeah yeah I feel like there's a version of this that he finished scripting by himself that 
probably makes a little more sense. That is about the Shadow King. Like, I truly feel like he was told this can't be about the Shadow. Like, it just feels like yeah. one of those, like Elias Bogan, because it's so clearly, especially after I just did the Farouk episode, this is what mm-hmm. he's doing with Farouk in all of those old stories. The Watcher says, the phoenix is both the spark that ignites creation and the final fire that consumes it. But nature is also about balance, and there exists a polar opposite of the phoenix. As the phoenix is female, this entity is male. He is known to some as the first fallen. As the phoenix perpetuates the cycle of life, death, and rebirth, so the first fallen seeks to end it. His goal is a perfection that must never change. This is a pretty standard story otherwise of like, I mean, again, not to go to a place of Whedon because he's far from the only person to do this, but the villain Jasmine in season four of Angel is basically this. Like, she's a good guy who wants to create world peace, but it's by completely overriding free will, right? So like, it's an order over chaos kind of villain, which is interesting to me because like the Phoenix as good chaos is very much something that's true to the older Claremont series. So this being as evil order, and again, that fits the Shadow King's BDSM motifs, right? So it just feels to me like this is supposed to be the Shadow King, but it's not, and it doesn't matter. It scans as like, if you want to use Jamie in this protagonistic role yes make a position where him being anarchic and him being the sort of agent of jouissance him being chaotic is good right yeah i don't know why we need his wad party in it but yeah i don't think we need his ex-girlfriend amina singe who has the power to conjure soul-sucking salamanders but why not i guess it turns out that the First Fallen chose the four of them in the desert as his instruments. They conduct this horrible ritual or whatever to summon the First Fallen and bring about paradise, they keep insisting. Betsy wakes up in ancient Mesopotamia. I had the most awful nightmare. My brother and his old school chums had summoned the devil himself. And when I tried to stop them, I got dragged straight to... That was no dream. Kurt, Rachel, Jamie? Runs out, finds them all in confrontation Well, first, she actually comes across the first Fallen, who's like a floating Sumerian god guy. It's such... It's not that great of a design, is it? He's cool looking, I think, but he's just... I mean, he just looks like a Mesopotamian god. He's not an eldritch entity, you know what I mean? Like, he's just like some guy with wings. But I also think it's a front, right? It's meant to look nice for us. Mm -hmm. This is where Claremont rolls back Jamie's evil deeds a little bit. Yes. One of them, I forget which dude this is. It's probably like Ned Horrocks or something. Benazir Carr's dad. I I mean, Amina Singe has Benazir Carr vibes, but is not nearly as cool as Benazir Carr. Amina says, Jamie isn't right in the head, hasn't been since we last parted ways. And Rachel says, Betsy told us about that. She said you got lost in the desert, swallowed by a sandstorm. She said her brother was the sole survivor and the guilt drove him nuts. And Ned says, as usual, dear Betsy only had half the story. It was day seven of the Trans-Sahara Rally. We entered the contest to share Jamie's success in the international racing circuit. It was just a spot of fun, but our dashing friend hadn't told us about some of the other dealings he'd had in the region. Jamie's gambling losses got him in hot water with gun runners and slave dealers. Not the sort who'd let you skip out on a debt, then take a junket across their territory. But more arcane forces were at work, yada, 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 and that's when the first fallen got them all. Jamie, bless his heart, ran away in terror, right back into the arms of his bandit friends who tortured him for weeks. He only got free when the trauma brought about his gift from mucking about with reality, which is just not, that's not what happened. Right, 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 right. That's a really weird retcon. 
It's a really weird retcon and it doesn't work. I do think what does work is saying Jamie got into all of this because underlining the thing from the annual about how he got in too deep with his gambling debts and started doing horrible stuff in service of these people as opposed to being like the ringleader. Right. I think that's a retcon that works, but the rest of this doesn't at all work and simply can't be true because we read the comics and it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not what happened. It wasn't bandits who tortured him. It was Dr. Crocodile. Like it just, that's just not what happened. And it's it's strange timing for the retcon because I, I feel like this is around, you know, within a year or two of the Warren Ellis, Dr. Crocodile story. Um, I forget. That's after Whedon, oh, so I don't right. know. Oh, and the Whedon stuff takes so long. And Whedon drags on forever. Whedon starts before the decimation, but ends after the decimation, and they never yes. talk about the decimation because Whedon right. was so behind schedule. Right. Okay, so this had to be like five or six years before the Ellis stuff. Um, Ellis, astonishing. I just reread this for the Forge episode. Ghost Box X-Men. This is two years before that. Okay. So, all right. That makes sense. The reveal is that the first Fallen does create peace in paradise, but only for the four people he chooses from each species, and he obliterates the rest of each planet, and they live on in the memories of those four. Even the Forsaken are not willing to make that bargain, so they all stop him, and it's fine. It doesn't super matter. Betsy has been honed as a weapon against the first fallen by Jamie. That's why he brought her back and made her immune to reality warping. She is able to psychic sword him in the head, which frees the host from the first fallen. Again, it's a fucking Shadow King story. Mm-hmm. The host is like, kill me, kill me before it can take me again. Kill me, kill me, kill me. Much like Farouk, right? Mm-hmm. In the like Vidaiala stuff, but also in the stuff Claremont was suggesting with Farouk toward the end of that run back in the day. Jamie at the last moment can't allow Betsy to sacrifice herself, so he takes her place and kicks them all back out onto Earth and apparently sacrifices himself to destroy the first fallen and et cetera, et cetera. Sure. And that's the end of that story. I think it's a little undercut just because Roger Cruz, who's doing the villains at this point draws such a deranged looking Jamie that it's kind of hard to take his sacrifice seriously. The pathos is not yeah there enough, but also it's that like all these new characters suck. They are truly, like you said, it's like the Neo or the goth. It's just like these characters bite. I'm sorry. They just do. On paper, if you told me he had this goth that just threw salamanders, I would eat that up. If you told me Jamie Braddock had a coven of school chums who were ne'er-do-wells doing dark magic, yeah, that's fun. But this story is not fun. No. Are they mutants? Or did they just have salamander powers? No, they were given powers by the first fallen, so I don't think they're mutants. Okay. But I don't think we'll ever see them again, so it doesn't really matter. Then there's the Uncanny X-Force arc. This arc's super fucking weird. This is six years later in 2012. Rick Remender is writing his Uncanny X-Force, in which Betsy is the protagonist, essentially, of the run. This is during her torrid romance with Phantom X, which is just not... It's not that I think Remender writes Betsy poorly. It's that I just don't like any of the stories he puts her in. He puts her through too many crucibles in a row, I think. It just gets exhausting. She doesn't get a break. 
What's frustrating about this story as a Captain Britain fan is that it's clear that Rick Remender has read this stuff and likes it enough to have done this whole story, mm -hmm. but none of it tracks with any other depiction we're ever given of Otherworld. Brian is completely out of character, except insofar as like his conversations with Betsy are pretty good, but like everything else is crazy. And Jamie, without explanation, is completely sane, is a good guy now, has brought back the Captain Britain Corps at the yeah. behest of Merlin? Question mark. If anything, he's a bit of a stick in the mud. It's very, very strange. He offers to turn Betsy back into her old body, and Betsy mm -hmm. says no, which is also a beat I don't agree with. Phantom X is hauled before the Omniversal Court because he's a multiversal defect. Like, he's not supposed to exist. He doesn't exist in any other timelines, which also is something I don't like because that's Rachel's gig. And then, like, mm -hmm. Phantom X, really? Like, I just don't buy that. If anybody would make sense as kind of like a mass-produced mutant, like... Right, like, you'd think Phantom X is in a bazillion realize He's not bespoke, like... Yeah, like, shut up. There's a lot of... Anyway... Greg Tacchini draws this and the art's gorgeous. I'll give it that. Mm -hmm. Beautiful mm -hmm. gowns. There's a trial that Saturnine presides over to execute Phantom X. And Jamie, this is interesting, is the prosecutor, much like Jim Jaspers was in the trial of Magneto. And I don't mm -hmm. know if that's intentional, but if it is, I'll give Rick Remender a point for that one. This is all about the death of the little apocalypse in the first arc of Uncanny X-Force. Yeah, little Evan. This is not Evan. It's the other one who does get killed. Mm -hmm. Don't. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Jamie addresses the court and says, as the court knows, I myself am a rehabilitated criminal. Given endless love and confidence, I was able to rebuild myself after countless years of damage and tampering. Rehabilitated and now serve the greatness of the Captain Britain Corps, keeping the Omniverse safe and logical. That's why, like, this is bizarre to me. Could this child you killed have been salvaged in a similar fashion? We'll never know. Neither will he. Otherworld is being beset by a creature called the goat and his demonic armies. He's a goat guy in a robe. This is when we get that fox hunt flashback we talked about, which is great. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for everyone, Betsy realizes the goat is a future version of Jamie. Right. For some reason. Brian and Jamie are fighting side by side, and it's this really sweet lovely moment for them and betsy is like a few years in the future he is going to make a pact with this demon and it is going to take over his body and we need to kill him right now because he is destroying endless realities and i know he's our brother but he's not worth more than all those people and brian's like i can't do it i can't do it and betsy says and this moment's great when remender is on with betsy he's really fucking on mm -hmm. and this moment is really on Brian's like, I can't do it. I can't kill Jamie. They're telepathically communicating. And she says, fine, close your eyes, Brian, please. And the butterfly bursts around Brian's eyes. And Jamie goes, Brian? As he grabs Jamie around the neck. What are you? Elizabeth, is that you? What is? Uh, what are you? I'm sorry, Jamie. There's no other way. I love you. And Brian cries, snaps his neck and goes, no. It's the same composition as the uh, the the classic miracle man mm -hmm. you know right yep which is so strange in this context i don't know but like the goat is so stupid yeah the goat sucks and anyway it leads to a confrontation between brian and betsy and brian is like you used my hands or she goes i did what i had to do right and you know that but you made me do it so you get to stay the good guy 
And that's the end of the arc, which is really good. Like that end is really good. It's just everything that leads up to it makes no sense to me. There's another moment uh, earlier in this run that I think is a great, I, I think it's an instance of Remender understanding Betsy and Brian when he wants to. We see her having this conversation with him in like a gazebo. Yeah. And she goes from just sort of amicably catching up to disclosing to him all of these sort of horrible, violent things she's done with X-Force. And he is shocked and he's appalled and he gets mad at her. And they have this kind of messy reconciliation. And then we find out she's in the whatever the X-Force danger room is. Mm -hmm. And that she's been running this simulation over and over to sort of feign this ritual of absolution. And so I think having it inverted here is really smart. It's just bogged down in so much weird nonsense. Yeah, it's bogged down in a lot of continuity errors and also in the fact that Jamie in this arc just doesn't feel like the same character at all, which means that the emotional payoff isn't there for me. Brian is also such a fucking asshole in this story that I don't think it really works because if the idea is like Brian has to stay the good guy so Betsy is the one who always has to get her hands dirty, the whole thing just feels like extended character assassination of Brian in a way that I don't love. The skinless. And, then, and also, there's the skinless man running around being Good. like, your uh. evil father turned me into the skinless man. So, like, you know, there's that. And he sucks. And don't even worry about yeah. him. We'll get to that in a Phantom X episode. This is not a Phantom X episode. This is a dumb complaint, but it bugs me that the skinless man is an evil barrister. And they have a big courtroom set piece. But he's not involved. The barrister ain't in it. Very weird. I don't like Uncanny X-Force, and we're just going to move on now. Yeah. The art in this arc is beautiful. I like the moment when Betsy makes Brian kill Jamie by taking over his mind. I like that confrontation between them. I don't like really anything else about this story. Right. I do like that Betsy, like, parleys with elves and orcs and things and is like, I am James Braddock's daughter and all of that. And I know that Teenie is an Uncanny X-Horse fan. She mentioned that in the first episode of this podcast. So I do think that this informed some of her thought processes about Betsy and Jamie's relationship, about the Braddock's relationship to Otherworld, because here the ogres and whatnot complain that the Braddock's never paid attention to them, Mm -hmm. that they were too concerned with the Starlight Citadel, which is here called like the Tower Omniversal or something, which is, again, that's not what it's called. But that they were focused on Avalon and never really cared about the outer provinces, which is something that Teeny really, in her huge reimagining of Otherworld, underlines that it's way bigger than Avalon. That's just the only thing that Roma and Merlin and Saturnine care about, really, mm-hmm. which I think was really smart. But also this idea of Jamie, the Jamie of Krakoa, which we'll get to in a second, builds on Claremont's softened Jamie from the Forsaken arc but also has the nasty wit of the 80s Jamie from Excalibur, the late 80s, early 90s Jamie, and also has the idea here from this Otherworld arc of Uncanny X-Force that if Jamie could just get his shit together, he could be a hero like them and they could all be heroes together. Not even get his shit together, just have something generative to do. Something to do, right? Like something productive, a way to be a productive member of society. And on Krakoa, Mm -hmm. where the idea of the villain amnesty is, can you be a productive member of society? Giving him the role that Teeny gives him in Excalibur, I think, was really smart. Mm -hmm. Brian and Betsy don't want to rule Avalon, but all 
Jamie wants is to have his father's seat of power, the one that was denied him by a father who disregarded him and didn't think much of him. And part of why I think the stuff about him being this kind of lawful neutral twit in Uncanny X-Force rankles so badly is because that doesn't even fit tonally with what we know about Otherworld. No. Whereas I think part of what's brilliant about Teeny Howard's take is that you put this guy who operates by kind of folk fairy logic right in the fairylands yeah there's nothing that fairy tale land vibing about uncanny x versus otherworld it's just middle earth there's dnd jokes it's just a dnd thing but like it's yeah. not there's no whimsy to it mm-hmm. i mean it's not a whimsical book run. i get that but like there's nothing playful mm-hmm. or fairy-like about it, which I think is the key to Otherworld stories. Is like Otherworld operates on story logic, on narrative logic. The fey folk are mercurial and strange and a little alien and hard to understand. And here it's just very like, welcome to the order planet where everything is order. It's like wrinkle in time style, right. you know? Doesn't do it for me in this context. I like wrinkle in time. I don't feel like a super huge need to recap everything that's happened on Krakoa just because that's super recent. And I think we'll get to a lot of it in the questions. But are there any Krakoa stories you'd really like to talk about specifically? I do want to talk about how much I like how Teeny Howard has reframed his relationship with Megan and especially with Maggie. Yes, that's my favorite bit, too, is like him deciding I'm the fun uncle Mm -hmm. is a very, very funny direction to take that character in. And I think it works. I don't love the genius child trope. Teeny inherited that character. Yeah, in general. But I think it makes her such a good foil to him. Yeah, I don't usually like it either. But for some reason, Maggie Braddock really works for me. And I think it's because it's Otherworld. Yeah. Because the way Teeny writes her, she's cute, but also creepy. It's like a changeling Eris. Yes, it's very changelingy, or like Claudia from Interview with the Vampire, where you're just like a child shouldn't be talking to me this way. Yeah. But unlike Claudia, who's like a grown woman trapped in that body, Maggie still is a child. She doesn't say things that are disturbingly adult. Mm-hmm. She's just got too much intellect in her head to be a three-year-old, which is yeah funny. It's a cute take on that. But yeah, for people who are not caught up, you should catch up. It's all on Marvel Unlimited now, the 26 issues of Excalibur. Jamie becomes the mutant king of Avalon after he helps Betsy resolve a bunch of problems she's having with Morgan Le Fay. He then imprisons Morgan Le Fay in his basement where Apocalypse says terrible things to her and Morgan's pissed about it, which is where we have left off for Bessie Braddock, Captain Britain, where Morgan is back for revenge. Jamie lost his throne at the end of Excalibur when Merlin seized the Starlight Citadel. And now as of the end of Knights of X, King Arthur is back on the throne and is working with Brian as Captain Avalon to bring peace to the land. We don't quite know where that has left Jamie. Right. So we'll find out, I imagine, pretty soon. I think it's the most functional and the most interesting he's ever been. I agree. I think what Teeny has done with Jamie Braddock is like Gillen's sinister kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, I just Mm -hmm. think that's who the character is now. 
it's a much more usable character. And Sinister is a good comp because Jamie, like Sinister, has these really despicable things in his character history that are real and are serious, but also we have to move on a little bit if we want these to be characters that can exist in an ongoing narrative. And I think the way that Krakoa says... Everything happened, but we're trying to move on and be good people and members of society who are productive is a better solve than what Claremont does in the first Fallen arc where he tries to be like, no, that's not what happened at all. Like, cause it is what happened. Mm -hmm. But I think if you say Jamie was, it honestly is more like Morrison's out for Emma, which is like, I was a drug addict. Right. Saying that Jamie was in debt to the slavers and that his behavior escalated because of that doesn't excuse him for doing the things he did, but it makes it less just he does evil things for fun, which I think is helpful. Right. I think he's a good counterpoint to what, well, not even a counterpoint. I, I think he's just similar to what Leia Williams did with Dawkin. Yeah. I mean, Dakin is a character who, like, that one was harder for me to take, not Leah's take specifically, but, like, the way that they've steadily made Dakin a more heroic character over time. Because mm -hmm. when he was introduced, he was, like, an evil yeah. character. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. a rapist, a serial killer. And they've just really gone out of their way to be like, he was traumatized and he's okay now. And he was crazy and now he's not crazy. And, like, one of the things I actually most liked about the way Leah wrote him was at the end of X Factor. I have some problems with that last issue, but I really like the moment where you realize that he and Aurora are both still crazy. Yes. And that they both find that really sexy about the other person when he's like, don't worry, I killed all those people and we'll just make that a secret between us. I'm like, oh. And she's like, oh, I love that. I'm like, oh, okay, this I like. Which we get glimpses of a Jamie that is still super dangerous. Like, Mm-hmm. The the little very short arc in Vita Ayala's New Mutants. Yes, he's spooky in that. Rod Rice makes him terrifying. Yeah. And also right before X of Swords, when he has the kind of splinter. One of my favorite, I would say my favorite story about the three Braddock siblings is that one mm -hmm. issue, like a story about the three of them together that Teeny does in Ten of Swords when mm -hmm. Saturnine locks Betsy away and Saturnine's like fake Captain's Britain that Jamie created in his pocket dimension that our Rogue mm -hmm. and Gambit and Jubilee yeah. and Richter attack. In that one, Jamie's pretty scary too. Like he murders Captain Britain Jubilee with like a twist of his hand. You just see the, the shades mm -hmm. shattering and it's so creepy because it's very clearly glass. But the sound effect is splutch. Yeah, I have to say Ariana Marr does better sound effects than just about anybody in the biz right now. She is one of my favorite letterers generally, but the sound effects that she did, that's also the issue where Saturnine grabs Betsy by the hair and the sound effect is grab, but it looks <laughs> like the sound that it would make. Like it's really, yeah. I use that picture all the time. It's like a reaction image. And RB Silva does that issue as a fill-in. And so it's just gorgeous like marcus toe does great work throughout that book but rb silva for some reason that issue standing out with a guest artist really worked mm -hmm. for me that panel where she jamie is kind of like urging her to just leap mm -hmm. right i'll catch you jump i love x-men i love these fucking comics yeah 
So yeah, it's really good. There's also the whole sequence in Hellions where he makes Mr. Sinister hand over his cape, which I know <laughs> was something that Teeny and Zeb plotted out together and is just a super, super funny storyline to me that just occurs in the background of both books. And yeah, just in general, like I'm really excited to see where he goes from here. I think that the character is in a more functional, usable state than he's ever been before. As with Shaw and Sinister, I understand if the nastier elements of his backstory make him a character that some people just can't deal with. But I think in an ongoing story, sometimes you have to let the past go a little bit. And look, if I can accept that we all have to be cool with Quentin Quire now, I feel like it's time for us to release some of our angst. Well, Apocalypse is the really great example, right? Like, Sure. If Apocalypse can be an anti-hero now, then so can Jamie Braddock. Apocalypse has enslaved entire civilizations. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. a lot going on there. I think now is a good time to get into the questions, because we got a bunch of questions about Jamie Braddock, and we are five and a half hours into this recording session, which means I'm going to have to cut a lot, because I just, I simply am not going to let this be longer than mm-hmm. five and a half hours. Yeah. Barrett writes, hello, Connor, an esteemed guest, long time, first time, et cetera, et cetera. Super excited to hear you and Holly talk about everyone's favorite reality warping, cape loving, handlebar mustached Englishman. However, there's something that's bugged me about him for a while now. In the big Omega level mutants data page in House of X number one, Jamie's mutant name is listed as Monarch, a name that, if I'm remembering correctly, has never been used before or since. What's the story there? Is Jamie just a big Venture Brothers fan? It's a great code name, especially with the Butterfly Association tying into his relationship with Betsy. But I just think it's weird how Jamie's mutant name has only ever gotten one offhand mention. Sincerely, aka pictures of spider-man on the discord the answer is teeny howard made it up and i agree that it is perfect it is in that data page because as hickman established it on krakoa everyone was supposed to have a mutant name so characters who didn't have one were assigned one and teeny came up with monarch because she knew that he was going to end up on the throne of Avalon and because of the association with Betsy's butterfly, where a monarch is a big, dramatic butterfly, right? There's also this little beat in the House of M universe where our Jamie is flitting around, but there is no House of M Jamie. Well, there was one, like, because Betsy references their childhood, but, like, he's not around, you know? And he's not the king, notably, because Brian is. Yeah, Brian is referred to as the monarch with kind of the bolding that suggests it's Mm -hmm. a little bit more than just like denotative. So I always took it as this kind of like rehabilitative gesture of being like, you are the big brother. Right. You are the first in line. Yeah, I like it because he is the rightful king if you believe that the Braddocks have the right to that throne, right? Mm -hmm. But like, he shouldn't be. Right. And also it's a big, messy, dramatic butterfly, which I like. Because I like the way that that ties him and Betsy closer together. While Monarch also, in the King sense, ties him and Brian closer together. So it, it's a fun bit of wordplay. Christian Holub of Entertainment Weekly writes, Hey, Connor, hope questions are still open for the Jamie Braddock episode because I wanted to get this one in. I'm sure you'll get to it in some way over the course of the episode, but it's been bugging me. I've tried to look it up on my own, but I haven't found a satisfactory answer. Hope you can provide one. As all of us Krakoa-era readers know, Jamie Braddock's an Omega mutant with the ability to warp reality. But when I read the recent Captain Britain omnibus earlier this year on your recommendation, I was struck by two things. One, that Jamie was originally just a totally normal human, and two, that the way Jamie's powers currently work is very, very similar to Alan Moore and Alan Davis's conception of Jim Jaspers. Is this another one of those things where Claremont wanted to use something from the more Captain Britain wasn't able to for legal reasons and so turned Jamie into his Jaspers replacement? Or is there more to it? Thanks, love the pod, and glad to finally submit a question. Sincerely, Christian. That 
is my supposition, but I have no idea if it's true. We would have to ask Chris, but it is on my list of things to ask Chris at some point whenever I am bothering Chris Claremont at conventions, which I do sometimes. I think that's the logical answer, yes. Yeah. Is that Jamie and Saturnine are linked in the same way that Saturnine and Jaspers are, and that it's because he couldn't use Jaspers. Because I think that the evil Saturnine going to get Jim Jaspers is the logical version of that story if you could use Jim Jaspers. On the other hand, it doesn't feel just like a find and replace. No, I mean, the adversary isn't a find and replace either, right? Like, and neither is Mr. Sinister. I think that in the absence of Jaspers, he found various characters to fulfill the roles that he wanted Jaspers to fill in his story. Bringing back Jamie is a logical thing to do if you're writing a book about Brian and Megan. Yeah, he, to me, is a much more intimate scale of villain. I find him a more interesting character than Jim Jaspers. Me too. I love Jasper's warp and I like the way that Jasper's has been used now. I think the crooked market is really fun. I like the way Teeny has reimagined him, but Jim Jasper's as a character doesn't have a ton. Like there's no personal connection really between him and Brian, except that the fury killed Brian once. Whereas Jamie is a much more intimate villain who is therefore a bigger threat and a higher stakes threat. Yeah. And the idea of him being the Captain Britain who should have been, who was passed over, also makes him a foil in a way that's interesting, whereas Jasper's is just the evils of the Tory government. And I get what Alan Moore was doing with him, but it's not as personal to the characters. And I think it's telling that the kind of big picture geopolitical stuff that Claremont talks about wanting to do with mutant wars and with, you know, the original Jasper's pitch. I don't think that's really something you could do with Jamie. Right. I agree. Lucas Rossi writes, Hey Connor, long time listener, first time caller. I find Jamie to be a very interesting character, mostly because I think that the idea of a nearly all powerful character being insane like him is very interesting. Now to my questions. One, what do you think his relationship is like with his family, especially his niece Maggie? Are they happy he's alive or can they barely stand him? I would say tune in to the book about his family that's about to come out and see what happens. But it seems to me that Brian and Betsy and even Megan are happy that he seems to be like stable and with it and trying to do good. Like that does seem to be their ideal situation for him. But I do think he frustrates them by existing, you know? In the first year or so of Excalibur, I think Teeny does such a good job of writing this really precarious and prickly and really ubiquitous situation where there is someone in your family that you love, but they've fucked up a lot of times. Mm -hmm. You want to give them rope and you want to reach out to them, but you also know that in the past, if you brought them back into the fold, they've caused harm. It's sort of a parallel to what Hickman does with Vulcan at the same time. Yeah, yeah. The idea that on Krakoa, our families are together again, even the black sheep were trying to bring them back together, unless it's the Frost family, in which case Emma said, fuck you, Adrian stays dead. But like, that, you know, that's a characterizing moment for Emma too, right? It's yeah. like, no, 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 not even paradise will make me bring that bitch back. It's not going to happen. Two, is Jamie a good person to be in charge of Avalon, considering the fact that he's crazy? Well, he's not anymore, so don't worry too much about it. But it seemed like he was doing an okay job when he was, all things considered. He did okay. I also want to thank you for making this podcast. It helped me a lot with my personal problems and struggles with my sexuality. I think what you're doing is a very good thing, and you should keep doing it. Also, English is not my first language, so sorry if I made any writing mistakes. Well, your English is much better than my Italian, I assume. So kudos to you on that, truly. 
Sofia Mariana Gonzalez writes, hi, Connor and guests. I discovered the pod a few months ago and I've been completely obsessed with it ever since. I've gone back and listened to every episode. This is my first time writing it officially, but I'm the one who DM'd you because we have the same Sappho tattoo, LOL. Oh, I remember that. Great taste in tattoos. Anyway, on to my question. I'm 21 and in my last year of college now. That's when I got that tattoo. Twinsies. I've been into the X-Men ever since my dad showed me the animated cartoon when I was like six. I was hooked. I was the kid who read the Ultimate Marvel character guides cover to cover, and this character always stuck out to me because the picture I saw was completely bonkers, and the stuff they put in his brief description or key facts entry was equally insane. Here's the pick for context. Can you please explain to me where on earth this panel comes from because it's lived rent-free in my brain for like 10 years now. I just need to know. He looks so unhinged, and that napkin is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Thanks, Sofia Mariona. The napkin, in this case, being the Speedo. That is a cutout of the page from the end of Ghost of Braddock Manor where he is dragging Betsy by the hair into the room to confront Brian. It's the really creepy page that we were talking about earlier. It is, like I said, a pretty famous image of Jamie Braddock that you see around. But yeah, he's real creepy in that image. And I am sorry that you saw that as like a seven or eight year old. But as Holly and I pointed out, we were endlessly haunted by one of his trading cards. So that is just kind of a rite of passage as an X-Men fan. Jamie Braddock is going to freak you out when you're way too young to understand the weird, complicated feelings that he makes you have when you look at him. I'm going to read these two together because they are similar and related. Simon Garrett, he writes, Dear Connor, my questions about Jamie's attire or lack thereof. In the stories I've read, he's generally wearing some kind of underwear. My favorite is the classic thong. What's this meant to represent about his character? Is he meant to be naked because he's a reality warper? He's beyond the trappings of the corporeal form? Or is it supposed to show he's a sinister deviant? Does he just like the breeze on his ass cheeks? Obviously, he can't be naked in a comic book, but that thong is pretty risque. And I wonder how Claremont managed to get a male character in a getup like that through editorial. I've been listening to the pod since the third episode, and it's the highlight of my week. I haven't been reading comics since just before Necrotia, as I was suffering from decimation burnout and had to walk away. But I've loved learning about so many of the characters and stories I loved and what has gone on since I stopped. Thank you so much to you and your amazing guests for everything you do. I can't wait to see what's ahead. Simon, AeroBlue1980 on Twitter. And then Alexi McCready writes, Hi, Connor, an esteemed guest. As a fellow Brit, I had to get a question for our reality-bending beefcake sometime villain Jamie Braddock. As someone who grew up in Cornwall, I give you full permission to attempt the accent, Connor. Oh, Cornish is very specific, though. I don't think I can do it. I mean, as much as I can do any of them, all the British people are like, you can't do any of them right now, but you get what I'm saying. I've had a soft spot for any of the Braddock family after discovering that the Braddock Lighthouse is a Cornish lighthouse. A win for Kerno. My question is, do we have a reason for Jamie's fashion choices, mostly the infamous Speedo look? Is this an exhibitionist side of him, or are his powers so immense he simply doesn't care about his clothes? I mean, he's got a great bod. Is he simply showing that off? Top hats, togas, weird armor. What would you say is Jamie's best look, and why? Thank you for this amazing show, Alexi. I really like the King outfit, the King of Avalon outfit, but I do think that the classic thong with the bangles is the moment. Yeah. And I think it's that he is supposed to be naked, but can't be, right? But I do think it makes him look more naked. It's like we were Mm -hmm. saying earlier, like it's so bawdy that it is abject. To me, there is the sense of a couple things. The first is that it sort of vibes as similar to Robot Moira, where he is kind of trapped in this moment of trauma psychosis. Yes. That's, you know, that's his torture underwear. To him, he is still in the witch woman's clutches, you know? Yeah. The other thing is that I feel like to get back to these sort of folk horror gothic kind of elements to him, if Brian is both this kind of Arthurian sovereign and kind of the super science hero jamie has to be this kind of figure of the wood having him in this loincloth 
visually signifies this kind of like neolithic ruggedness in a way that just like Mm -hmm. having his dick out wouldn't yeah it's scarier that like he's not hiding anything but also he's not naked so it feels intentional Mm -hmm. and it's weird that it's an outfit that the witch woman put him in so it's also Mm -hmm. like that it's also him like never leaving that moment i think as you put it i mean he doesn't he truly doesn't until krakoa Mm -hmm. Really? Well, there is this issue of Captain Britain and MI-13, where the puka, this kind of wish-granting demon, Mm -hmm. has everybody in their wish-fulfillment fantasies. Yeah, I love that book. I adore it. And, you know, this isn't the real Jamie. Right. But Brian's in this pub, and, you know, you've brought up the Megan stuff in this plotline twice before, and it's heartbreaking. Brian thinks it's not the real Megan either, but it actually is, yeah. Jamie comes up, and you're immediately like, Brian, be careful. This ain't your Jamie because he has dungarees on and like a- He has clothes on, yeah. (laughs) A t-shirt. It's so visually sticky. Yeah. And I think between how thoroughly Davis nails it and how thoroughly Lee nails it, because those cards were everywhere. It's just, I think it was just hard for a long time to get him out of it without a really serious character overhaul. Like, I always found it vaguely annoying that he shows up in the Bacalo issue with the boxer shorts. Yeah, that annoys me, honestly. Of the many things that are annoying about the first Fallen arc, that's like not top of my list. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not, I, I, it doesn't feel right to me. And it feels like part of that arc's overall attempt at softening Jamie that doesn't quite work for me. And, you know, I think the toga that he has early in Krakoa is a good Oh, I love that, too. Yeah. Yeah. If he's going to lose the King of Avalon look because he's not the King of Avalon anymore, I think the toga is a good compromise between the thong and non-thong. Because you could just assume he's got the thong on under it or nothing under it. And either way, it's still white, which is his signature color. And it is flowing in a way that is sexually suggestive without being nudity. I think Teeny's Jamie is in such a much less comic book crazy space mm-hmm. that I can buy that on the Krakoa, this is just a guy who enjoys being naked and enjoys kind of being a little bit provocative with his body. Sure, I agree. I love the scene of his resurrection where he's just kind it's of- so funny. Akimbo in, in his sort of <laughs> amniotic chair. And he looks fantastic, but he's still definitely doing this as a provocation. Absolutely. Which I think is an interesting parallel to the um, Pibian Cortez stuff. Yeah. In Way of X. Was that Way of X? That was Sword. Sword was the one where he was like sexy naked because Valerio Skeedy was drawing him. But there's more Fabian stuff in Way of X after that. But like he's brought naked and gooey to this hearing. That's in Sword. And that's sort of this ritual of abjection waged against Cortez. Yeah. Whereas Jamie is kind of weaponizing his own nudity. Well, especially because Jamie is like doing it to make his sister squirm, which is Mm -hmm. its own. It's the funny and less disturbing version of that panel of him dragging her into the living room. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's much more like the way that you would tease your siblings without it being sexually creepy. Because to him, Betsy's not a sexual object. That's his sister. Like, they don't Mm -hmm. actually Mm -hmm. have, like, an incestuous vibe. Right. And Betsy's like, oh my god, put some clothes on. Like, but it's not creepy. It's just funny. Yeah. And I think that that is a great 
example, honestly, like in microcosm of the way that Jamie's being written now is like, yes, this is a character with a creepy history, but we've made him fun. And that's mm-hmm. why I make the comparison to Mr. Sinister, because I think the trajectory for them has been very similar. And I think it's been to the benefit of both characters and to the readership because they're more fun to have around this way. This might be an overreach, but I always thought his first gala outfit was kind of like a nod to the Ubuwa from the Alfred Jari play, which really is about this kind of like generative and like liberatory element of just going into a place and not respecting the rules. That's Ubu the King. It's a French play. Yeah, yeah. We'd have to ask Marcus Toe. Chris Garcia writes, hello, Connor and guests. The Braddocks are my fave. I'm forever a Betsy stan, but we're here for Jamie. Questions that I have. One, how would you differentiate Jamie's relationship with Brian versus Betsy? Hmm. I think he resented Brian in a way that he doesn't resent Betsy. And I think that he is possessive of Betsy in a way that he isn't necessarily of Brian. And I think that now he kind of resents Betsy because she's Captain Britain and that's something that's developing. But I think when they were younger, even into like, the 80s and 90s stories it never occurred to him that that could happen yeah because i do think that he is like casually sexist in that very like british aristo way i mean i think it's interesting that in the 70s stuff he was kind of in brian's inner circle Mm -hmm. before betsy yeah he knew about captain britain before betsy did but like the way that the characterization shakes out from there yeah you get the sense that jamie and betsy were closer than brian and jamie ever were yeah and i think that that makes more sense so that works for me i'm interested to see well your second question do you think he ever has resentment for not being captain britain since he is the eldest yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. says so a couple times and that feels like a story that will happen eventually with betsy as captain britain whether it's in this book or another one i believe we do see him as captain britain in secret wars secret wars yeah because hickman is obsessed with captain britain he also is captain britain in the ultimate universe i did after brian gets taken out yeah But the ultimate Braddocks are a mess, so don't worry about it. It seemed like he was broadly happy and competent in that role in Secret Mm -hmm. Wars. In Secret Wars, yeah, but it's like an alternate universe version, so we just don't know anything about him, really. Keep on keeping on, and just a reminder to all the Betsy stands, please buy Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain number one. It's so exciting to see Betsy in a real solo. Well, I agree with that, and make sure you buy two and three and keep buying them. I have accidentally put it on two separate pull lists, so... Well, I bought multiple copies because I wanted that Peach Momoko variant Mm -hmm. because it's gorgeous. Vermont does this stuff on such a small scale that it's super rare to see the like incentive variants. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm in L.A., so it's easier. Yeah. But I believe in you. I have a standing thing with them where if there is an option for them to get a Peach Momoko in. That they will. I will happily take a Peach Momoko. That's a good standing agreement to have. Yeah. Brian Houston writes, hello, Connor, esteemed guest. Maybe it was my childish imagination or the magic of Chris Claremont. When I first encountered Jamie Braddock in the pages of Excalibur, he felt like someone with a rich backstory. Not so much as it turns out. Aside from his heel turn in the Delano Davis Captain Britain series, he was pretty bland before he went completely crazy. And that's about the extent of things until we get to Krakoa. Sorry if that spoiled the character file. (laughs) Anyway, Jamie's a powerful man with few inhibitions, hoop earrings, and a thong. Naturally, I have questions. One, how permanent are Jamie's reality warps? They don't seem to require his full concentration, but he does a lot of impulsive stuff that seems like it doesn't stick long term. I guess another way to phrase this question would be, is the vixen still a fox? I think she is, unless there's a story I've missed. 
He brought back Betsy and she stayed alive. She stayed alive. So yeah, it's pretty persistent unless he makes an effort to untweak. Dr. Crocodile did turn back into a guy. He did get turned back, but who knows how that happened? You know, there could have been a whole story there. Yeah. Justice for Dr. Crocodile, actually. I think we should fix him at some point. Low on the priority list, I realize, of like characters Mm -hmm. in this franchise in need of a little refurbishing. Two, we all know that comic book children are both a storytelling dead end and a way to frustrate artists, like horse sculptures made of hands. But doesn't Jamie seem like someone who'd create mini-me's to help manage his empire? I want this to happen so that Mojo gets jealous, causing Spiral and Jamie to face off. Until it's time for an Elias Bogan episode, the Marvel Wiki shows 12 appearances. Make mine cerebro. Brian T.D. Mollusk on Discord. Well, if I ever do an Elias Bogan episode, Holly will be the guest. Thank you. As the noted Elias Bogan expert. I think... Me and Chris Claremont might be the only living people who give a shit about a life's I think that's probably true. So, you know, someday, perhaps, if Chris gets to do his Sage miniseries that delves deep into the history of Elias Bogan. Actually, Marvel, if you're listening, let Chris write that. Chris, if you're listening, pitch that. Chris is not listening, but you never know. I think the way to go with that is to have Jamie continue to try to influence little Maggie into becoming Stewie from Family Guy. Like, I think that that's the funniest possible route Mm -hmm. is for him to be like the bad influence, fun uncle who's like the devil on her shoulder as she grows into a super intelligent child. But uh, I don't think Jamie should have kids of his own. (laughs) Like X-Baby type things, I think that could be funny. But that also hews a little too close to Jim Jaspers and the Warpies to Mm -hmm. me. Like, you don't want to make him and Jim Jaspers more similar. Well, two things. I think that he would be a lot of fun in a story with the Warpies in it, which I don't think has happened. Not really, no, because they deal with the Warpies right before he calls them up from Dr. Crocodile's house to be like, hey, come rescue me. Yeah. Oh, speaking of children, though, we didn't talk about the Black Widow story where he does ensorcel children. He does have some babies. Minions. Yeah. And that was fine. It's a Jerry Duggan story. It's funny. Black Widow kills him. So mm-hmm. that's how he resurrects on Krakoa, but you don't have to worry about it. It's the lead up to the Infinity crossover. It's like Countdown to Infinity, Black yeah. Widow, or whatever. It's a one shot. It's fun, worth reading. She teams up with Merlin, though. It's super weird, honestly. <laughs> I do, again, really love the Vita Ayala arc with him in it, mm-hmm. where there is this implication of him, which again feels like such a folkloric kind of topoi. He does not know what is appropriate power to give to a child. Right. Like he just sends this kid off to like vampire country with like a horse and five silver pieces or whatever and gets one of my favorite lines about him in Krakoa where Danny calls him King Worst Braddock. Yes. (laughs) I think that's a good use of how I would like to see him in kind of like a not even a mentorship role. Like he's not Exodus. We don't need to see him with his, you know, vacation Bible camp. But I do like him kind of on the margins of that milieu. Broadway writes, hi, Connor, and all new, all different guests. It's Broadway again. This is my third time emailing, so I'm quickly anamorphing into Third Avenue, I guess. That's funny. I'm high-key obsessed with Jamie the Mad. While he's only been seen being horny for women, everything about Jamie has a queer chaos to it. He's the messy child, barely wears clothing, oscillates between deranged and brilliant, has an obsession with fashionable capes. Am I the only one who reads him as a disaster bi or pansexual? As a known pansexual and Sagittarius myself, Jamie reeks of my people. Am I just thirsty? Thoughts? As always, thank you for the pod. Thank you for demonstrating the ability to have complex conversations that are humorous but also take subjects seriously and intellectually it's a skill most podcasters wish they had broadway aka b way third on twitter all pronouns welcome well thank you that's very sweet 
I think that there is an obvious queer sexuality to this character that's bubbling mm-hmm. just underneath the surface, as with most Claremont characters. I think there's a deep sexual charge to his relationship with Nigel Frobisher, but that depends right. on what you view Nigel's gender identity as. But like, whatever's going on there, it's queer, right? And he and Sinister were vibing, let's be honest. That is true. Both in the Krakoan stuff and also a little bit in Secret Wars. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it. So yes, is my answer. I think that he's definitely, I mean, I think that all the Braddocks are queer. That's my thing, Mm -hmm. if I'm being serious. And like, in terms of most likely to least likely to act on it, it's like Jamie, Betsy, Brian. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like he's playing in the pool of the quote unquote confirmed bachelor in the 70s. Yes, it's Black Tom-esque, right? Yes, he is so dapper and he has his little loft And he went to British boarding school. Like, Mm -hmm. come on. Mm Mm-hmm. Margot writes, Dear Connor and Holly, super excited for this episode. Holly's one of my favorite people, and I'm so freaking excited for this. I'm sure this subject has come up, but as a fan of the classic Captain Britain, I wonder how Jamie and Jasper stack up against each other. They both seem like riffs on the ruling class, but with superpowers, but they do definitely differ in some ways. I guess I can't quite put my finger on how their models of capricious, toffish, Tory reality warping differ from each other. Certainly Claremont uses them both in his returns, haha. Until Jamie Braddock puts on a shirt, make mine cerebral Margot. We've addressed this a little bit, but I do think that politically they are different. I think mm-hmm. that Jim Jaspers is more of a populist yes. character. He does not seem to be particularly upper class to me. His manner of speaking is more middle class. Sure. Jaspers, I mean, and like accents and things like that are enormously class coded in Britain. And he is saturated in this kind of like mid-century musical. Yeah, Jasper's looks like a character from a Broadway musical or like a vaudeville character almost. Like a carry-on Krakoa. He's very carry-on, absolutely. The other difference is the pleasure principle we were talking about, where it's like Jamie Mm -hmm. does bad things because it makes him feel good. Jasper's does bad things because he seeks to dominate the earth mm-hmm. those are just different motivations i do think that teeny's jaspers who is a bit less over the top i must destroy all creation to suit me is a little bit closer to jamie but in mm-hmm. a different way they're both more human characters under teeny howard than they have been previously but their motivations are still different in that jaspers is motivated primarily by the acquisition of money and power still whereas jamie is motivated primarily even when it comes to i want to sit on the throne Mm -hmm. he wants to sit on the throne because it makes him feel good to sit on his dad's throne not because he's like desperate to be a king you know what i mean he wants a cape and he wants a crown yeah it's just different It's about, like, the present moment and the pleasure of the present moment, whereas Jasper's is, like, an infection that seeks to destroy... And I think Teeny's emphasis on tying him with commerce... Yes, really smart. ...codes him in sort of the really stridently, monarchically structured world of other worlds. Because even if we've come to love Brian and we've come to love Betsy and we've come to, you know, I've come to love Jamie... I hope Margot has gotten to this point at hour like 19 and a half, but we'll see. <laughs> I should have known, Holly, that the first time we sat down together, it was going to run long, especially if we we're going to talk about the Braddocks. You know how I feel about these crazy mm-hmm. Aristo kooks. 
But I think that it's really sharp that Teeny has brought back Merlin and Arthur as these really explicitly regressive figures of what monarchy and what sovereignty is to sort of be that primordial power principle that's kind of sweeping and encroaching in this really inexorable way. And I think no matter what our protagonists think about Jasper's to Merlin and to Arthur, I think his sort of association with the market and the sort of agora would debase him to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. And I also think there's something functionally different. Like linking him to commerce makes a ton of sense to me because Jaspers is like Sebastian Shaw <laughs> to go back to last week. Jaspers is a mutant with superhuman power that's vast and potentially world destroying who makes his whole political platform superhumans are dangerous and must be destroyed because he wants to be the only one <laughs> and therefore corner the market on omnipotent godlike power, which is very similar to Shaw's approach to mutancy as IP. Mm -hmm. And I think Jamie's just very different from that. It's just a different approach. Like Jamie loves being a mutant, is having a great time, isn't really in solidarity with anybody but himself, but yeah. isn't seeking to destroy others in that way. I don't think Jamie has ever thought about how much stuff costs. Truly, how much could a banana possibly cost, Betsy? Mm -hmm. 12 pounds? Like he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Cameron Cummins writes, hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. To be quite honest, while I love what I've read thus far, including Jamie Braddock, this is more or less just an excuse for me to write in and tell you how thankful I am to have your podcast. This has been the most challenging year of my life. My father passed away in February at the age of 52 after an eight-year battle with cancer. Around the same time as when I discovered your podcast, I'd always loved the X-Men. My dad and I used to watch the movies together when they were on television, and I loved the Evolution cartoon. However, I'd never read any comic book material, and your podcast inspired me to pick up with the Morrison run and then jump straight into Hawksbox. As I'm writing this email i'm almost finished with hickman's inferno i can't adequately put into words how much these comics and your podcast have helped me heal it always hit close to home when you would discuss how close you are with your family as i am with mine in particular i found the episode with your father to be quite emotional and lovely so thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for creating such a loving and healing space for me to disappear into for a few hours every week um thank you for that can i um be schmaltzy for a second yeah Sure. My dad also died last year in March. And I think like a lot of queer people of our generation, I felt like there were a lot of conversations that never got to take place. Mm -hmm. And so I listened to that Sauron episode quite a bit last spring, just because it felt yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, um, I'm sorry. I love my dad and he's the best and it just um it feels really good to share him with people who don't have that whether it's because they lost their father or because they never had that kind of relationship with their father in the first place so um i'm grateful i've had that opportunity and uh it's also nice because you know hopefully my father will live another 30 40 years i hope he lives to be 150 but his father my grandfather died when he was not much older than my dad is now and it's something my dad and i talk about a lot because my dad will pretty soon be older than his father ever was which is a weird experience to have mm. one thing about that episode that I think about is like that is now three or four hours of just a conversation between me and my dad about something that is fun to us and us just vibing that now we have forever. My brother doesn't listen to my podcast, but he listened to that episode because he thought it would be interesting to hear what my dad and I had to say, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So that one's really special to me too. And I'm glad that the response to it, uh, a lot of people seem to really like that one and I, and I'm, I'm glad. So thank you for writing in about that. The rest of your question is about reality workers and mental illness. And the next person also asked that. So I'm going to read the next one, but I just, I couldn't not read that when I started reading it. I was like, oh, um, okay. I mean, like, I, I just, thank you really Cam, for writing in. I'm going to stop babbling, but you made me emotional <laughs> in a good way, in a good way, in a good way. And I, I'm glad that I can help in a good way too. I'm kind of rambling at this point and I feel I have so much more to say, but I better keep it brief. So in conclusion, Jamie Braddock's the hottest Braddock. No offense to the twins whom I love. Thanks for the hours upon hours of amazing content. Cam, PS, I've yet to join the Cerebro Discord, but I plan on doing so as soon as I get caught up on the current comics. You should. You can mute the channels with spoilers. It'll be fine. Nate Randall writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest, I live in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, and I don't have an accent, but a rogue wouldn't be fitting if you feel like doing one, lol. Connor, this podcast has meant so much to me as a gay nerd growing up in the rural Midwest, and one of only a few out queer people here, and it's been difficult making friends that share my interests. Ruber has offered a safe haven for me and my gay nerdy hobbies. Furthermore, you, Connor, have become something of an older queer figure for me to look up to as a Gen Z gay that doesn't really know any older queer people. Guys, you're killing me this week. <laughs> um, you and your podcast have made my life better. I'm incredibly thankful for finding you in this amazing community you've created. On top of all that, this podcast gives me a way to connect further with my flat scan father. Hi, Dad, if you're listening. With all that out of the way, my questions in regards to Jamie's powers and reality workers in general, they carry a hefty burden, being able to sense and manipulate the very fabric of space and time. This unfortunately seems to lead most, if not all of them, to go crazy. Proteus, Legion, Mikhail Rasputin, Wanda, Dark Phoenix, the list goes on. This doesn't bode well for poor Franklin Richards. But my question is, why do you think this is seemingly the only storyline for characters with these types of powers? Is it just too boring to have mentally stable reality workers, or does it have something to do with the powers themselves representing something sinister? All the characters listed above, including Jamie, have villainous eras. Is reality warping just inherently bad as its power represents the loss of free will on a cosmic level or the manipulation of forces that should not be controlled? Or is there a way to have a heroic reality warper that doesn't go crazy? Anyway, sorry for the longish question that I hope made sense. Thank you again for all you do, Connor. And until Zaladane is resurrected on Krakoa, make mine cerebro sincerely nate randall well hopefully after that because i do believe that she's coming i can feel it in the wind i think it's a couple different things one is omnipotent characters are hard to use in your story so you have to place limitations on them right he's crazy so he just does whimsical things that he feels like rather than solving every problem is a good solve for that mm -hmm. it's again like q on star trek like he's not going to get the enterprise out of every sticky situation because he doesn't want to because that's not fun second is that a reality warper going crazy is a great way to do a company-wide event like house of m so there's that and the third thing is that, yeah, exerting your will on the fabric of reality around you is a domineering thing to do. And so I think it lends itself toward villainous characters. I also think it's the kind of thing that would make you mentally unstable, because how do you know if anything's real? I think that good stories about Wanda Maximoff and Billy Kaplan have explored that. The Gillen McKelvey Young Avengers explores the idea of like, what if it's paranoia, but what if Teddy isn't real and he's just something Billy created because Billy can do that. Mm -hmm. As an obsessive compulsive person, I think about shit like that all the time. So if I had the power to shape reality to my will, I'd probably be a lot crazier than I am already. I think there's also the element that it gives plausible deniability for the good guys to win. Mm -hmm. Like 
if the Dark Phoenix was just totally pragmatic, you know, there just wouldn't be Earth. Right. Like, if she just decided, I'm going to fucking do it, I'm sick of these guys. Fuck them. They need to have something that gives that wiggle room. And I think Proteus is an interesting example because he has this very glaring material weakness. Mm -hmm. But we also get him sort of finding out how to use his powers as he goes. So that we're kind of invited to imagine where it would be if he was allowed to walk around for another day or another week. David Kuritsky writes, Dear Connor and Illustrious Guest, first, thank you so much for continuing the hard work it takes to produce this podcast each week. Your research is so impressive, and your guests bring amazingly diverse and unique perspectives to examine the wonderful world of mutants. The witty, lighthearted banner you have with your guests always puts me in a great mood, and listening to Cerebro on my commute is easily the highlight of my week. Thanks, David. My question relates to sibling dynamics in mutant stories, specifically when there are three siblings. I noticed there's a pattern of a third later revealed sibling who comes forward to primarily serve as a foil to the two better known closer siblings. Examples outside of the Braddocks that come to mind are the Rasputins and the Summerses. The third sibling mainly acts as an antagonist and also appears to be all powerful. Gabriel Summers and Jamie Braddock are both officially Omega level mutants and Mikhail Rasputin might as well be. Is there some precedent for this in mythology or literature? I know they use the same trope in the MCU, with the Hela portrayed by Kate Blanchett in the Thor movies, but I don't think that's based on actual Norse mythology. And the pattern doesn't seem to hold when there are more than three siblings, such as the Frost, Guthries, or Sun Quas. Any thought about why this keeps coming up? Wishing you continued success and can't wait for another 100 episodes. Proud member of the Zala gang, David Koritsky. I think that there is a general rule of threes in all fiction where, like, the third thing is significant. The twist of the forgotten sibling or the sibling you didn't know existed is something you see in a lot of fiction. I mean, look at Star Wars, like there is another. In that case, it's two, not three, but there is a long lost siblings thing. I think that in this case, it's that if you have a pair of siblings who are heroes, then an intimate threat to give them as a villain that's pretty obvious is a third sibling if they have one. And so characters like Jamie and Mikhail, who existed in the backstory, are logical characters to bring in. With Gabriel, I think it's a little different because Nicieza seeded that for a very different purpose and then Brubaker ran with it. I think, though, that he fulfills a similar function, which is like you have Cyclops and Havoc, they're siblings, they have these energy powers, cool, okay. What if there was one of them who was really bad and his energy power was way worse than theirs? Similar mm -hmm. to how Mikhail's ability to teleport people and alter reality and stuff is sort of a hyped up version of Ilyana's power, particularly because at the time that Mikhail's relevant in the 90s, Ilyana's dead. That's the other right. thing that's like right. kind of important to remember there. Like Mikhail and Ilyana, as far as I know, outside of New Mutants Truth or Death, have never interacted on panel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. because he was dead in Claremont's conception of the characters and then is retconned to be alive after Ilyana's dead. So they haven't really crossed paths. I just think it's that the number three appeals to our like lizard brain in terms of patterns, because like three is a pattern, right? And it's a logical, close quarters, high stakes villain to introduce into a story. I think it's also going back to this really like half gothic of like Lacanian root of a lot of like the grammar of superhero comics where one of the scariest things in that grammar is your family has done something bad that you had concealed from you right mm -hmm. I do like the Percy stuff 
There are not a lot of good Mikhail stories. I think Percy's is the only good Mikhail story, yeah. if I'm being honest, apart from like the stories about him being a dead cosmonaut in Claremont. But like as a character, I think the Percy one that's going on right now is the only good one I've ever read. Yeah, that's yeah. But I do think it works that he is not a secret brother, but he is a brother whose presumed heroism gets undercut really severely. Mm-hmm. He's like Jamie that way. Mm-hmm. In both cases, Brian and Piotr are the younger brother who idolizes an older brother who's a famous national yeah. hero. And then they find out that actually they're a really shitty person. And I think that's part of why it took so long for someone to make Vulcan work. Because he doesn't have that. No, the problem with Vulcan, and I still don't think he works, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think Al Ewing made him work as an antagonist for Storm and as a pawn for Brand, but I still don't feel that he works as a Summers mm -hmm. because he has no connection to them. He never knew them. They never met. It's the same reason that Adam X doesn't really stick as a character because they don't care. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, Scott and Alex theoretically care, but it's like, I mean, you're adopted, Holly. If you met yeah. a biological sibling who you had never met, it would be interesting. But like, mm -hmm. would you feel as close to them as you do to your brother you grew up with? Probably not. No, and, and you know, if they were theoretically Vulcan. Yeah, I and if they were like an of... evil yeah. psychopathic dictator, I don't know that you would be like, man, it's really my responsibility as yeah. your biological sibling to make this work, you know? Yeah, I think that is also, you brought up this trope in Star Wars. I think it's part of what's unsatisfying about the rise of Skywalker, where it's like just revealing, did you know that this guy you've never heard of is your father? Is your grandfather? Who cares? I never met him. Palpatine is your grandfather? I don't give a fuck. I grew up in like the desert. Right. Like, well, I mean, we 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 can't get into the, we can't, oh, I will be here for, because uh, I am a last Jedi head, mm -hmm. Ryan Johnson, King of Kings. It was important, I think, that Ray came from no one and from nowhere. And I think the Palpatine twist fucking sucks. So that's that on that. I like Ian McDermott in that movie. I mean, I love Ian McDermott doing just about anything, but I think it fucking yeah. sucks to make Rey part of a Force lineage when the whole reason The Last Jedi is so good in the end of it is that anybody can be the Messiah. It doesn't have to be... Like, like it rebukes the eugenics of the prequels, mm -hmm. which I think is really important. And then, mm -hmm. never mind, actually, she's just from another yeah. family. That It's why Hope not being biologically a Summers is really yes. important. I love Hope. I have like no real opinion on Hope, but I mm -hmm. do think it's super cool that she's not biologically related to the Summers family and that she is the ultimate mutant messiah and that the Summers family had to be significant, but in the sense that they needed to exist to create the circumstances by which Hope could be born and raised in safety. Mm -hmm. That is good to me in a way that the Rise of Skywalker fucking sucks. And if anybody retcons that Hope is biologically related to them, that will also suck. It just will. So there you have it. Max Tibby writes, Hi, Connor. First off, I just have to thank you for this fucking incredible podcast, specifically the platforming of marginalized voices and exploration of the themes of marginalization in these comics. You've broadened my flat skin understanding of queer reading of these books in particular, and I feel a deeper appreciation for a series I've been reading since I was a small child than I ever have before because of it. Also, your love for the Outback era warms my heart as someone who spends a lot of time living and working in Outback Australia. Apologies for the long question, but I feel it's an important one to ask. 
My question is less about Jamie Braddock and more about the portrayal of Britain and British mutants as a whole and the relation to real life politics. Recent years seem to have seen a rise of transphobia in the West. I'm a dual citizen of Australia and the UK. And while transphobia is of course an issue everywhere, it seemed especially deliberate, overbearing and mainstreamed in the UK over recent years. Whilst the X-Men franchise is often focused on American politics, I don't feel it has touched on UK political issues nearly as much. That is until Teeny Howard's frankly spectacular relaunch of Excalibur with Hoxpox in 2019. In this new era, England is singled out as a nation that's uniquely hostile to mutants, far more so than other so-called progressive nations. I can't find myself viewing this as anything other than a direct allegory to the current plague of transphobia in the UK. Scenes such as Pete Wisdom waking up on Krakoa and realizing he no longer has a place in the nation he was once proud to call home felt gut-wrenching to me as someone who no longer feels comfortable identifying with the British part of my heritage. And I can only imagine how this must have felt for trans readers of British descent. Do you think this parallel between the intense transphobia of the current United Kingdom and the antagonistic role of the UK in the current comics is intentional? If so, do you think it's been executed well? And finally, how directly do you think the inherent political commentary of the X-Men should relate to current day political struggles? Keen to hear your thoughts on this, and thanks again for this brilliant podcast, Max. So I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this, Holly, but just like right. as a preface, I don't want to speak for Teeny because as people who listen to this podcast know, she's a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to put words in her mouth, sure. but I don't see how you could read that comic and not make the connect. I mean, the bad guys are wizards. wizards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, I think it's also about Brexit. I think it's about the Tory government generally. Mm-hmm. I think it's about a lot of things, but I do think that that's very much there. It feels so heartening to me. In terms of just, I, I don't even want to say something as glib as allyship, but just in terms of seeing artists and writers thinking about this issue in a way that's simpatico to me, to have both Teenies, her matter of England, running kind of in concurrence with Kieran Gillen's uh, Once in Future. Mm-hmm. I think both are such brilliant explorations of how to navigate this gulf between what the national myth of Britishness is and sort of what the sort of symbolic gravity of Britishness is versus how do we live ethically and how do we live responsibly and how do we live with love for the figure of the neighbor right? in a way that I think both of them recognize is not super prioritized in large swaths of the UK's mass media. I love the line in X of Swords Stasis where Jamie is at this sort of otherworld congress and he says, should I hazard a British accent at like Go hour 33? Also, it's 10 of swords. I haven't corrected you yet, oh, but right, I right, do right, have right. to. 10 of swords, 10 of That's swords. Fine. Avalon votes yay. We have nothing to hide and we love visitors. Like. I do think that that subtext is there for sure. Right. Do you um know this? It was a TV movie in on the BBC in the 70s called Penda's Fen. No, I don't. It's beautiful. It's if I had to say like a top five movies, it changes every day, but that would be on it like 80% of days. It's about this kid, adolescent, 16 or 17 or something, who is this kind of pre-Thatcherite died in the wool conservative. And he begins to have this sort of sexual awakening about his bisexuality while having these visions of a pre-Christian Britain and sort of comes to question this almost like proto-fascist ideation of what nationhood means to him. Long story short, it winds up with him embracing hybridity, porousness and openness and sort of mutability and like uh, acceptance and embrace of change. 
in a way that I think is so baked into the logic of the X-Men comics that I, I think it would be truly difficult to create a fascist X-Men comic. Yeah, I mean, even X-Men comics that I'm, like, not crazy about, it's not really their politics that I disagree. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, right. it's more just the tone doesn't do it for me, or I find certain things glib sometimes, but the core heart of the X-Men is that they are social justice warriors. Like, they are mm-hmm, the marginalized mm-hmm. in a world that hates and fears them. Stephen Deeney writes, you're Connor an esteemed guest. We've seen mutants such as Wanda and Legion rewrite reality in the past. Jamie's power has been established as being even more powerful than those two. At first, Jamie was only able to affect the immediate area around him, but since Hawksbach has been established, he's an Omega-level reality warper. Merlin recently referred to him as a psionicist. This is an individual whose reality warping powers transcend magic. The power is so immense that it actually affects and is able to easily overpower magic. Is Jamie's power able to overcome and affect magic because his family lineage is tied to magic? Captain Britain, the Siege Perilous, the Lighthouse, Otherworld. Until Magneto goes on Mori for a paternity test, make mine Cerebro. Sincerely yours, Dini Taz on the Discord. This is an interesting question because we know that Jamie supposedly does not have the Otherworld genes. Right. Whatever that means. So I don't think that's why. I think it's because his manner of altering reality is quantum in a way that is logical and scientific, despite his chaotic personality and energy, and that that fucks with the kind of story logic that magic operates on. I also, though, do think it's relevant that in the story, the Ghost of Braddock Manor story that we talked about, Megan is resistant to jamie's reality warping power in a way that nobody else really is and there are a couple ways you could regard that it could just be because she is like naturally a fluid metamorphic being but i think that the fact that she takes on her true fey form when he tries to meddle with her that way to me it's all functionally magic the in-universe reason why megan can resist him is less interesting than how that functions as sort of a climax of her journey prior in the run right what that means to her as a character that she can do that like her saying i have authorship over my body the specific line that i think is really important there and we didn't mention like this part when we were talking about that's a scene about class yes Megan is not just working class. She was never sent to school because her parents were afraid of her because of her powers. Jamie calling her a bimbo specifically sets her off because she's like, yeah, you're right. I'm illiterate and I'm poor, but I don't need to be a scholar to know that you are full of shit or to be more powerful than you. I think that arc is kind of Megan's story. It is. Absolutely. It's about her entering this very, almost on the nose, class-coded. I mean, it's a fucking castle. Yeah. (laughs) But it also is like the payoff of her backpacking journey with Rachel, where she discovers Mm -hmm. her fairy nature and all of Mm -hmm. that stuff. And rejecting this sort of atavistic presence there that says you do not belong. I think that that is more what that scene is about than anything else. But functionally, yes, Megan is resistant to his power because of her fey nature. So I don't think that he overpowers all magic. I think that specifically the kind of complex, I'm working narrative story magic shit that Merlin and Roma do is 
something that Jamie can gum up because of the way that his power works. And that makes a lot of sense to me. It's the same reason they're afraid of Jim Jaspers and his reality cancer. Like they need everything to be very long, the sort of Joseph Campbellian line that they're taking the narrative on. And when you disrupt that, they get pissed. Right. Last question. Michael Phillips writes, greetings, Connor, and honored Holly. Connor, I'm a gay from Southern California who lives in Bushwick, so if you want to take a crack at an accent, it's essentially a vocal fry with a sibilant S. Happy New Year's and holidays to you both. I'm sitting on January 1st at a bar thinking about this last year and how helpful this podcast has been, accompanying some wonderful as well as difficult times. I love looking through the episode log and remembering I was doing laps procrastinating going into a difficult workday while listening to an episode on Girlboss Abigail Brand, or that I was walking in my hometown's park just after my nephew was born listening to your talk about Pyro's experience of resurrection after a queer-coded plague. Thank you for sharing those anecdotes. Anywho, we played a fun drinking game last night of which actors in the Wicked movie we think Jackie Hoffman knows exists. Jeff Goldblum, yes. Jonathan Bailey, no. Oh, I think that Jackie Hoffman knows who Jonathan Bailey is now because of Bridgerton. Anyway, it got me thinking who in the X-Men universe would have no idea the other person exists, and I remembered you joking that Xavier probably never learned any student's name after Jubilee. With everyone in Krakoa, who do you think is the most mainstream person Jamie has no clue about? Does he walk around saying, did you know Scott and Emma were a thing? Does he know who Maggot is? Has he ever said, what the fuck's a long shot? Until they bring back Jamie's white thong, make mine Cerebro Michael Phillips. Can I just up the ante? Yeah. If I found out that he did not know who Logan was, I would find that plausible. I fully would believe that Jamie Braddock has no idea who Wolverine is. So that's the answer because Wolverine's the most famous X-Men character. And I truly believe Jamie Braddock has never heard of him. I feel like if they crossed paths at the gala, Jamie would like hand him an empty cup. Right. He'd be like, can you freshen this up, love? Yeah. Now, would they fuck? Yeah. Yes. But I don't think Jamie knows who he is. No. I think he'd be like, bit of rough trade with the waiter. And they're like, that's not a waiter. That's Wolverine. It's like, oh, oops. <laughs> well, Holly, is there anything else you want to say about Jamie Braddock before we wrap up? Yeah. This whole exercise has been sort of um, a demonstration of what I think is the allure of this podcast to me in which I went into researching for this episode with opinions about Jamie, but uh, really nothing ride or die. And at this point, I do think he's a character that does say a lot of interesting shit, even for someone with, you know, long deserts of not very many stories or not very good stories. I think it's also a testament to how good the comics are right now that Teeny has managed to sort of synthesize really almost all of this into a character that feels like a dimensional and a nuanced guy. My priority was to do a good enough job to be asked back to do Black with Smith and oh I feel confident. Honey, I feel confident. Honey, the Black with Smith episode is already in the schedule as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Don't even worry about that for now thank you so much for being my guest this was great fun it was great to get a chance to chat with you we do chat in the discord server like constantly but <laughs> it's good to chat chat and it was nice to meet your wife during the break big fan yes. of her as i'm sure you are too given the mm -hmm. marriage why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? I am really trying hard to de-heist myself from Twitter. Tell me about it, sister. Theoretically, I am on there at Goblin Gavot uh, with a little dash with an between underscore the two. between mm -hmm. them, right? Yeah. That's a Gavot like a dance. G-A-V-O-T-T-E. Final Fantasy XI reference. 
I have two small press books that may be varying degrees of difficulty to find in 2023. That would be <laughs> Mall is Lost through Adjunct Press and Heaven's Wish to Destroy All Minds through Woe Aroa. I also have work in the Nightboat anthology, We Want It All, an anthology of radical transpoetics, which is a really beautiful anthology put together by really brilliant people, I think in 2021 or 2020. You also mentioned at the outset, the three Cyclops pieces at Shelf Dust. I'm really proud of those. I had not done serious writing about comics before. And throughout grad school, comics were kind of my escape from mm -hmm. being at work since, you know, Academia sucks. I get it. Yeah, it can be super totalizing. And so it felt really awesome to be able to do those and feel kind of proud of them as like intellectual work. Other than that, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a real treat. And I mean, it's going to be one of the longest episodes of the show because I, I frankly, you're too smart for me to want to cut too much of thank this. You. I got to be real. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month, the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast. You can get an ad-free version of every episode the minute they come out, plus exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes. There are a bunch coming very soon. I'm recording one like tomorrow, in fact. More importantly, the Patreon is what keeps this show going. It's what keeps me going, to be perfectly honest. And I really appreciate anybody who kicks in. There's a private channel on the Discord server just for members of the House of Z. So that's a little added incentive if you want to come join us and talk about well, about the real housewives a lot of the time, but also just generally about whatever you feel like. Thank you as always for your support. Next week's episode will feature friend of the pod, Chuck Austin, on Annie Gazakanian and his iconic run on Uncanny X-Men. And then for episode 100, fan favorite guest Sarah Century returns for the epic Madeline Pryor episode. Questions are now closed because... I am recording both of those soon. But thank you, as always, for your support. I'm really excited to announce what's in store for season four. So until next time, everybody, thank you for listening and bye. Take care, everybody. And uh, come post in the Discord. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men.